This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Great God Pan by Arthur Mackin. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon. It runs 2 hours 47 minutes, and we will be discussing it Afterward. The Great God Pan by Arthur Macken. Chapter 1 The Experiment. I'm glad you came, Clark. Very glad indeed. I was not sure you could spare the time. I was able to make arrangements for a few days. Things are not very lively just now. But have you no misgivings, Raymond? Is it absolutely safe? The two men were slowly pacing the terrace in front of Dr. Raymond's house. The sun still hung above the western mountain line, but it shone with a dull red glow that cast no shadows, and all the air was quiet. A sweet breath came from the great wood on the hillside above, and with it, at intervals, the soft murmuring call of wild doves. Below, in the long lovely valley, the river wound in and out between the lonely hills. And, as the sun hovered and vanished into the west, a faint mist, pure white, began to rise from the hills. Dr. Raymond turned sharply to his friend. Safe? Of course it is. In itself, the operation is a perfectly simple one. Any surgeon could do it. And there is no danger at any other stage? None. Absolutely no physical danger whatsoever. I give you my word. You are always timid, Clark. Always. But you know my history. I've devoted myself to transcendental medicine for the last twenty years. I have heard myself called quack and charlatan and impostor. But all the while, I knew I was on the right path. Five years ago, I reached the goal. And since then, every day has been a preparation for what we shall do tonight. I should like to believe it is all true. Clark knit his brows and looked doubtfully at Dr. Raymond. Are you perfectly sure, Raymond, that your theory is not a phantasmagoria? A splendid vision, certainly, but a mere vision after all. Dr. Raymond stopped in his walk and turned sharply. He was a middle-aged man, gaunt and thin, of a pale yellow complexion, but... As he answered Clark and faced him, there was a flush on his cheek. Look about you, Clark. You see the mountain, and hill following after hill, as on wave on wave. You see the woods and orchard, the fields of ripe corn, the meadows reaching to the reed beds by the river. You see me standing here beside you, and hear my voice. But I tell you that all these things, yes, from that star that has just shone out in the sky to the solid ground beneath our feet, 
I say that all these are but dreams and shadows, the shadows that hide the real world from our eyes. There is a real world, but it is beyond this glamour and this vision, beyond these chases in Arras, dreams in a career, beyond them all as beyond a veil. I do not know whether any human being has ever lifted that veil, but I do know, Clark, that you and I shall see it lifted this very night before another's eyes. You may think this all strange nonsense. It may be strange, but it is true, and the ancients knew what lifting the veil means. They called it seeing the god Pan. Clark shivered. The white mist gathering over the river was chilly. It is wonderful indeed, he said. We are standing on the brink of a strange world, Raymond. If what you say is true, I suppose the knife is absolutely necessary. Yes, a slight lesion in the grey matter, that is all. A trifling rearrangement of certain cells. A microscopic alteration that would escape the attention of 99 brain specialists out of a 100. I don't want to bother you with shop, Clark. I might give you a mass of technical detail that would sound very imposing and would leave you as enlightened as you are now. But I suppose you have read casually in out-of-the-way corners of your paper that immense strides have been made recently in the physiology of the brain. I saw a paragraph the other day about Digby's theory and Brown Faber's discoveries. Theories and discoveries. Where they are standing now, I stood fifteen years ago, and I need not tell you that I have not been standing still for the past fifteen years. It will be enough if I say that five years ago I made the discovery that I alluded to when I said that ten years ago I reached the goal. After years of labour, after years of toiling and groping in the dark, after days and nights of disappointments, and sometimes of despair, in which I used to now and then tremble and grow cold with the thought that perhaps there were others seeking for what I sought. At last, after so long, a pang of sudden joy thrilled my soul, and I knew the long journey was at an end. And what seemed then, and still seems a chance, the suggestion of a moment's idle thought, followed up on familiar lines and paths that I had tracked a hundred times already, the great truth burst upon me, and I saw, mapped out in lines of sight, a whole world, a sphere unknown, continents and islands, and great oceans in which no ship has sailed, to my belief, since a man first lifted up his eyes and beheld the sun and the stars of heaven and the quiet earth beneath. You will think all this high-flown language, Clark, but it is hard to be literal. And yet, I do not know whether what I am hinting at cannot be set forth in plain and lonely terms. For instance, this world of ours is now 
pretty well girded with the telegraph wires and cables. Thought, with something less than the speed of thought, flashes from sunrise to sunset, from north to south, across the floods and the desert places. Suppose that an electrician of today were to suddenly perceive that he and his friends have been merely playing with pebbles and mistaking them for the foundations of the world. Suppose that such a man saw uttermost space lie open before the current, and the words of men flash forth to the sun and beyond the sun into systems beyond and the voice of articulate-speaking men echo in the waste void that bounds our thought. As analogies go, this is a pretty good analogy of what I have done. You can understand a little of what I felt as I stood here one evening. It was a summer evening, and the valley looked much as it does now. I stood here and saw before me the unutterable, unthinkable gulf that yawns profound between two worlds, the world of matter and the world of spirit. I saw the great empty stretch dim before me, and in that instant a bridge of light leapt from the earth to the unknown shore, and the abyss was spanned. You may look in Brown Faber's book if you like, and you will find that, to the present day, men of science are unable to account for the presence, or to specify the functions of a certain group of nerve cells in the brain. That group is, as it were, land to let, a mere waste place for fanciful theories. I am not in the position of Brown Faber and the specialists, I am perfectly instructed as to the possible functions of those nerve centres in the scheme of things. With a touch, I can bring them into play. With a touch, I say, I can set free the current. With a touch, I can complete the communication between this world of sense and... We shall be able to finish the sentence later on. Yes, the knife is necessary, but think what that knife will effect. It will level utterly the solid world of sense, and probably for the first time since man was made, a spirit will gaze on a spirit world. Clark, Mary will see the god Pan. But you remember what you wrote to me. I thought it would be requisite that she... He whispered the rest into the doctor's ear. Not at all, not at all. That is nonsense, I assure you. Indeed, it is better as it is. I am quite certain of that. Consider the matter well, Raymond. It's a great responsibility. Something might go wrong. You would be a miserable man for the rest of your days. No, I think not, even if the worst happened. As you know, I rescued Mary from the gutter, and from almost certain starvation, when she was a child. I think of her life as mine, to use as I see fit. Come, it's getting late. 
We had better go in. Dr. Raymond led the way into the house, through the hall, and down a long, dark passage. He took a key from his pocket and opened a heavy door, and motioned Clark into his laboratory. It had once been a billiard room, and was lighted by a glass dome in the centre of the ceiling. Whence there still shone a sad grey light on the figure of the doctor, as he lit a lamp with a heavy shade, and placed it on a table in the middle of the room. Clark looked about him. Scarcely a foot of wall remained bare. There were shelves all around, laden with bottles and vials of all shapes and colours, and, at one end, stood a little Chippendale bookcase. Raymond pointed to this. You see that parchment, Oswald Crowleyus? He was one of the first to show me the way, though I don't think he ever found it himself. That is a strange saying of his. In every grain of wheat there lies hidden the soul of a star. There was not much furniture in the laboratory, the table in the centre, a stone slab with a drain in one corner, two armchairs where Raymond and Clark were sitting. That was all, except an odd-looking chair at the furthest end of the room. Clark looked at it and raised his eyebrows. Yes, that is the chair, said Raymond. We may as well place it in position. He got up and wheeled the chair to the light, and began raising and lowering it, letting down the seat, setting the back at various angles, and adjusting the footrest. It looked comfortable enough, and Clark passed his hand over the soft green velvet, as the doctor manipulated the levers. Now, Clark, make yourself quite comfortable. I have a couple of hours' work before me. I was obliged to leave certain matters to the last. Raymond went to the stone slab, and Clark watched him drearily as he bent over a row of vials and lit the flame under the crucible. The doctor had a small hand lamp, shaded as the larger one, on a ledge above his apparatus and Clark, who sat in the shadows, looked down at the great shadowy room, wondering at the bizarre effects of brilliant light and undefined darkness contrasting with one another. Soon he became conscious of an odd odour, at first the merest suggestion of odour, in the room, and, as it grew more decided, he felt surprised that he was not reminded of the chemist's shop or the surgery. Clark found himself idly endeavouring to analyse the sensation, and, half-conscious, he began to think of a day, fifteen years ago, that he had spent roaming through the woods and meadows near his own home. It was a burning day at the beginning of August. The heat had dimmed the outlines of all things and all distances with a faint mist and people who observed the thermometer spoke of an abnormal register, of a temperature that was almost tropical. Strangely, that wonderful hot day of the fifties rose up again in Clark's imagination. The sense of dazzling, all-pervading sunlight 
seemed to blot out the shadows and the lights of the laboratory, and he felt again the heated air beating in gusts about his face, saw the shimmer rising from the turf, and heard the myriad murmur of the summer. I hope the smell doesn't annoy you, Clark. There's nothing unwholesome about it. It may make you a bit sleepy. That's all. Clark heard the words quite distinctly, and knew that Raymond was speaking to him. But for the life of him, he could not rouse himself from his lethargy. He could only think of the lonely walk he had taken fifteen years ago. It was his last look at the fields and woods he had known since he was a child, and now it all stood out in brilliant light, as a picture before him. Above all, there came to his nostrils the scent of summer, the scent of flowers mingled, and the odour of the woods, of cool shaded places, deep in the green depths, drawn forth by the sun's heat, and the scent of the good earth, lying as it were with arms outstretched and smiling lips, overpowered all. His fancies made him wander, as he had wandered long ago, from fields into the wood, tracking a little path between the shining undergrowth between the ilex trees, and here and there a vine climbed from bough to bough, and sent up waving tendrils, and dropped with purple grapes, and the sparse grey-green leaves of a wild olive tree stood out against the dark shadows of the ilex. Clark, deep in the folds of dream, was conscious that the path from his father's house had led him into an undiscovered country, and he was wondering at the strangeness of it all, when suddenly... In place of the hum and murmur of the summer, an infinite silence seemed to fall on all things, and the wood was hushed. And, for a moment in time, he stood face to face there with a presence that was neither man nor beast, neither the living nor the dead, but all things mingled, the form of all things but devoid of all form. And in that moment, the sacrament of body and soul was dissolved, and a voice seemed to cry, Let us go hence. And then the darkness of the darkness beyond the stars, the darkness of the everlasting. When Clark woke up with a start, he saw Raymond pouring a few drops of some oily fluid into a green vial, which he stoppered tightly. "'You have been dozing,' he said. "'The journey must have tired you out. "'It is done now. "'I'm going to fetch Mary. "'I shall be back in ten minutes.' Clark lay back in his chair and wondered. It seemed as if he had but passed from one dream into another. He half expected to see the walls of the laboratory melt and disappear— and to awake in London, shuddering at his own sleeping fancies. But at last the door opened, and the doctor returned, and behind him came a girl of about seventeen, dressed all in white. She was so beautiful 
that Clark did not wonder at what the doctor had written to him. She was blushing now over face and neck and arms, but Raymond seemed unmoved. Mary, he said, the time has come. You are quite free. Are you willing to trust yourself to me entirely? Yes, dear. Did you hear that, Clark? You are my witness. Here is the chair, Mary. It is quite easy. Just sit in it and lean back. Are you ready? Yes, dear. Quite ready. Give me a kiss before you begin. The doctor stooped and kissed her mouth, kindly enough. Now shut your eyes, he said. The girl closed her eyelids, as if she were tired and longed for sleep, and Raymond placed the green vial to her nostrils. Her face grew white, whiter than her dress. She struggled faintly, and then, with the feeling of submission strong within her, crossed her arms upon her breast as a little child about to say her prayers. The bright light of the lamp fell full upon her, and Clark watched changes fleeting over her face as the changes of the hills when the summer clouds float across the sun. And then she lay all white and still, and the doctor turned up one of her eyelids. She was quite unconscious. Raymond pressed hard on one of the levers, and the chair instantly sank back. Clark saw him cutting away a circle, like a tonsure from her hair, and the lamp was moved nearer. Raymond took a small glittering instrument from a little case, and Clark turned away shudderingly. When he looked again, the doctor was binding up the wound he had made. She will awake in five minutes. Raymond was still perfectly cool. There is nothing more to be done. We can only wait. The minutes passed slowly. They could hear a slow, heavy ticking. There was an old clock in the passage. Clark felt sick and faint. His knees shook beneath him. He could hardly stand. Suddenly, as they watched, they heard a long drawn sigh, and suddenly did the colour that had vanished return to the girl's cheeks, and suddenly her eyes opened. Clark quailed before them. They shone with an awful light, looking far away, and a great wonder fell upon her face, and her hands stretched out. As if to touch what was invisible. But in an instant, the wonder faded and gave place to the most awful terror. The muscles of her face were hideously convulsed. She shook from head to foot. The soul seemed to be struggling and shuddering within the house of flesh. It was a horrible sight, and Clark rushed forward as she fell shrieking to the floor. Three days later, Raymond took Clark to Mary's bedside. She was lying wide awake, rolling her head from side to side and grinning vacantly. 
Yes, said the doctor, still quite cool. It is a great pity. She is a hopeless idiot. However, it could not be helped. And, after all, she has seen the great god Pan. Chapter 2 Mr. Clark's Memoirs Mr. Clark, the gentleman chosen by Dr. Raymond to witness the strange experiment of the god Pan, was a person in whose character caution and curiosity were oddly mingled. In his sober moments, he thought of the unusual and eccentric with undisguised aversion. Yet, deep in his heart, there was a wide-eyed inquisitiveness with respect to all the more recondite and esoteric elements in the nature of men. The latter tendency had prevailed when he accepted Raymond's invitation, for though his considered judgment had always repudiated the doctor's theories as the wildest nonsense, yet he secretly hugged a belief in fantasy, and would have rejoiced to see that belief confirmed. The horrors that he witnessed in the dreary laboratory were, to a certain extent, salutary. He was conscious of being involved in an affair not altogether reputable, and for many years afterwards he clung bravely to the commonplace, and rejected all occasions of occult investigation. Indeed, on some homeopathic principle, he had, for some time, attended the seances of distinguished mediums, hoping that the clumsy tricks of these gentlemen would make him altogether disgusted with mysticism of every kind. But the remedy, though caustic, was not efficacious. Clark knew that he still pined for the unseen, and, little by little, the old passion began to reassert itself, as the face of Mary... Shuddering and convulsed with an unknown terror, faded slowly from his memory. Occupied all day in pursuits both serious and lucrative, the temptation to relax in the evening was too great, especially in the winter months, when the fire cast a warm glow over his snug bachelor apartment, and a bottle of some choice claret stood ready by his elbow. His dinner digested, he would make a brief pretense of reading the evening paper. But the mere catalogue of news soon palled upon him, and Clark would find himself casting glances of warm desire in the direction of an old Japanese bureau, which stood a pleasant distance from the hearth. Like a boy before a jam closet, for minutes he would hover indecisive, but lust always prevailed and Clark ended up drawing up his chair, lighting a candle, and sitting down before the bureau. Its pigeonholes and drawers teemed with documents on the most morbid subjects, and in the well reposed a large manuscript volume, in which he had painfully entered the gems of his collection. Clark had a fine contempt for published literature, the most ghostly story ceased to interest him if it had been printed. His sole pleasure was in the reading, compiling, 
and rearranging of what he called his Memoirs to Prove the Existence of the Devil. And, engaged in this pursuit, the evening seemed to fly, and the night appeared too short. On one particular evening, an ugly December night, black with fog and raw with frost, Clark hurried over his dinner, and scarcely deigned to observe his customary ritual of taking up the paper and laying it down again. He paced two or three times up and down the room, and opened the bureau, stood still a moment, and sat down. He leant back, absorbed in one of those dreams to which he was subject, and at length drew out his book and opened it at the last entry. There were three or four pages densely covered with Clark's round-set penmanship, and at the beginning he had written in a somewhat larger hand, Singular Narrative told to me by my friend Dr. Phillips. He assures me that all the facts related therein are wholly true, but refuses to give either the surnames of the persons concerned or the place where these extraordinary events occurred. Mr. Clark began to read over the account for the tenth time, glancing now and then at the pencil notes he had made when it was told to him by his friend. It was one of his humours to pride himself on a certain literary ability. He thought well of his style, and took pains in arranging the circumstances in dramatic order. He read the following story. The persons concerned in this statement are Helen V., who, if she is still alive, must now be a woman of twenty-three. Rachel M., since deceased, who was a year younger than the above, and Trevor W., an imbecile, aged eighteen. These persons were, at the period of the story, inhabitants of a village on the borders of Wales, a place of some importance in the time of the Roman occupation, but now a scattered hamlet, of not more than five hundred souls. It is situated on rising ground, six miles above the sea, and is sheltered by a large and picturesque forest. Some eleven years ago, Helen V. came to the village under rather peculiar circumstances. It is understood that she, being an orphan, was adopted in her infancy by a distant relative, who brought her up in his own house until she was twelve years old. Thinking, however, it would be better for the child to have playmates of her own age, he advertised in several local papers for a good home in a comfortable farmhouse for a girl of twelve, and this advertisement was answered by Mr. R., a well-to-do farmer in the above-mentioned village. His references proving satisfactory, the gentleman sent his adopted daughter to Mr. R., with a letter in which he stipulated that the girl should have a room to herself, and stated that her guardians need be at no trouble in the matter of education, as she was already sufficiently educated for the position in life which she would occupy. In fact, Mr. R. was given to understand that the girl be allowed to find her own occupations, and to spend her time 
almost as she liked. Mr. R duly met her at the nearest station, a town seven miles away from his house, and seems to have remarked nothing extraordinary about the child, except that she was reticent as to her former life and her adopted father. She was, however, of a very different type from the inhabitants of the village. Her skin was a pale, clear olive, and her features were strongly marked, and of a somewhat foreign character. She appears to have settled down easily enough into farmhouse life, and became a favourite with the children, who sometimes went with her on her rambles in the forest, for this was her amusement. Mr. R. states that he has known her to go out herself directly after their early breakfast, and not return till after dusk, and that feeling uneasy at a young girl being out alone for so many hours, he communicated with her adopted father, who replied in a brief note that Helen must do as she chose. In the winter, when the forest paths are impassable, she spends most of her time in a bedroom, where she slept alone, according to the instructions of her relative. It was on one of these expeditions to the forest that the first of the singular incidents with which this girl is connected occurred the date being about a year after her arrival at the village. The preceding winter had been remarkably severe, the snow drifting to a great depth, and the frost continuing for an unexampled period. And the summer following was as noteworthy for its extreme heat. On one of the very hottest days in this summer, Helen V. left the farmhouse for one of her long rambles in the forest taking with her, as usual, some bread and meat for lunch. She was seen by some men in the fields, making for the old Roman road, a green causeway which traverses the highest part of the wood, and they were astonished to observe that the girl had taken off her hat, though the heat of the sun was already tropical. As it happened, a labourer, Joseph W. by name, was working in the forest near the Roman road, and at twelve o'clock his little son Trevor brought the man his dinner of bread and cheese. After the meal, the boy, who was about seven years old at the time, left his father at work and, as he said, went to look for flowers in the wood, and the man, who could hear him shouting with delight at his discoveries, felt no uneasiness. Suddenly, however, he was horrified at hearing the most dreadful screams, evidently the result of great terror proceeding from the direction in which his son had gone, and he hastily threw down his tools and ran to see what had happened. Tracing his path by the sound, he met the little boy, who was running headlong and was evidently terribly frightened, and, on questioning him, the man elicited that after picking a posy of flowers, he felt tired, and lay down on the grass and fell asleep. He was suddenly awakened, as he stated, by a peculiar noise, a sort of singing he called it, and, on peeping through the branches, he saw Helen V. playing on the grass, with a strange naked man, whom he seemed unable to describe more fully. He said, he felt dreadfully frightened, 
and ran away crying for his father. Joseph W. proceeded in the direction indicated by his son, and found Helen V. sitting on the grass in the middle of a glade or open space left by charcoal burners. He angrily charged her with frightening his little boy, but she entirely denied the accusation and laughed at the child's story of a strange man, to which he himself did not attach much credence. Joseph W. came to the conclusion that the boy had woken up with a sudden fright, as children sometimes do. But Trevor persisted in his story, and continued in such evident distress, that at last his father took him home, hoping that his mother would be able to soothe him. For many weeks, however, the boy gave his parents much anxiety. He became nervous and strange in his manner, refusing to leave the cottage by himself, and constantly alarming the household by waking in the night with cries of, The man in the wood! Father! Father! In the course of time, however, the impression seemed to have worn off, and about three months later, he accompanied his father to the home of a gentleman in the neighbourhood, for whom Joseph W. occasionally did work. The man was shown into the study, and the little boy was left sitting in the hall. And, a few minutes later, while the gentleman was giving W. his instructions, they were both horrified by a piercing shriek and the sound of a fall, and rushing out, they found the child lying senseless on the floor, his face contorted with terror. The doctor was immediately summoned, and after some examination, he pronounced the child to be suffering from a kind of fit, apparently produced by a sudden shock. The boy was taken to one of the bedrooms, and, after some time, recovered consciousness, but only to pass into a condition described by the medical man as one of violent hysteria. The doctor exhibited a strong sedative, and in the course of two hours, pronounced him fit to walk home. But, in passing through the hall, the paroxysms of fright returned, and with additional violence. The father perceived that the child was pointing at some object, and heard the old cry, The man in the wood! and, looking in the direction indicated, saw a stone head of grotesque appearance, which had been built into the wall above one of the doors. It seems the owner of the house had recently made alterations in his premises, and, on digging the foundations for some offices, the men had found a curious head, evidently of the Roman period, which had been placed in the manner described. The head is pronounced by the most experienced archaeologists of the district to be that of a fawn or satire. Dr. Phillips tells me that he had seen the head in question and assures me that he has never received such a vivid presentiment of intense evil. From whatever cause arising, this second shock seemed too severe for the boy Trevor, and... At the present date, he suffers from a weakness of intellect, which gives but little promise of amending. The matter caused a good deal of sensation at the time, 
and the girl Helen was closely questioned by Mr. R, but to no purpose, she steadfastly denying that she had frightened or in any way molested Trevor. The second event with which this girl's name is connected took place about six years ago, and is of a still more extraordinary character. At the beginning of the summer of 1882, Helen contracted a friendship of a peculiarly intimate character with Rachel M., the daughter of a prosperous farmer in the neighbourhood. This girl, who was a year younger than Helen, was considered by most people to be the prettier of the two, though Helen's features had, to a great extent, softened as she became older. The two girls, who were together on every available opportunity, presented a singular contrast. One with a clear olive skin, an almost Italian appearance, and the other of the proverbial red and white of our rural districts. It must be stated that payments made to Mr. R for the maintenance of Helen were known in the village for their excessive liberality and the impression was general that she would one day inherit a large sum of money from her relative. The parents of Rachel were therefore not averse from their daughter's friendship with the girl, and even encouraged the intimacy, though they now bitterly regret having done so. Helen still retained her extraordinary fondness for the forest, and on several occasions Rachel accompanied her, the two friends setting out early in the morning and remaining in the wood until dusk. Once or twice after these excursions, Mrs. M thought her daughter's manner rather peculiar. She seemed languid and dreamy, and, as has been expressed, different from herself. But these peculiarities seem to have been thought of too trifling for remark. One evening, however, after Rachel had come home, her mother heard a noise, which sounded like suppressed weeping in the girl's room, and, going in, found her lying half undressed upon the bed, evidently in the greatest distress. As soon as she saw her mother, she exclaimed, "'Ah, mother, mother, why did you let me go to the forest with Helen?' Mrs. M., was astonished at so strange a question, and proceeded to make inquiries. Rachel told a wild story. She said, Clark closed the book with a snap, and turned his chair towards the fire. When his friend sat one evening in that very chair and told his story, Clark had interrupted him at a point a little subsequent to this had to cut short his words in a paroxysm of horror. "'My God!' he had exclaimed. "'Think, think what you are saying. "'It is too incredible, too monstrous. "'Such things can never be in this quiet world, "'where men and women live and die and struggle and conquer, "'or maybe fail and fall down under sorrow, "'and grieve and suffer strange fortunes for many a year.' But not this, Phillips, not such things as this. 
There must be some explanation, some way out of the terror. Why, man, if such a case were possible, our earth would be a nightmare. But Phillips had told his story to the end, concluding, Her flight remains a mystery to this day. She vanished in broad sunlight. They saw her walking in a meadow, and a few moments later, she was not there. Clark tried to conceive the thing again as he sat by the fire, and again his mind shuddered and shrank back. Appalled at the sight of such awful, unspeakable elements, enthroned, as it were, and triumphant in human flesh. Before him stretched the long, dim vista of the green causeway in the forest, as his friend had described it. He saw the swaying leaves and the quivering shadows on the grass. He saw the sunlight and the flowers. And far away, far in the long distance, two figures moved toward him. One was Rachel, but the other? Clark had tried his best to disbelieve it all. But at the end of the account, as he had written in his book, he had placed the inscription, Et Diabolus Incarnate Est, Et Homo Factus est. And a devil was made incarnate, and a human being was produced. Chapter 3 The City of Resurrections. Herbert? Good God! Is it possible? Yes, my name's Herbert. I think I know your face, too. I don't remember your name. My memory is very queer. Don't you recollect Villiers of Wadham? So it is. So it is. I beg your pardon, Villiers. I didn't think I was begging of an old college friend. Good night. My dear fellow, this haste is unnecessary. My rooms are close by. But we won't go there just yet. Suppose we walk up Shaftesbury Avenue a little way. But how in heaven's name have you come to this pass, Herbert? It's a long story, Villiers. A strange one, too. But you can hear it if you like. Come on, then. Take my arm. You don't seem very strong. The ill-assorted pair moved slowly up Rupert Street. One in dirty, evil-looking rags the other attired in the regulation uniform of a man about town, trim, glossy, and eminently well-to-do. Villiers had emerged from his restaurant after an excellent dinner of many courses, assisted by an ingratiating little flask of Chianti, and in that frame of mind, which was with him almost chronic, had delayed a moment by the door, peering round in the dimly lighted street in search of those mysterious incidents and persons with which the streets of London teem in every quarter and every hour. Villiers prided himself as a practised explorer of such obscure mazes and byways of London life, and in this unprofitable pursuit he displayed an assiduity 
that was worthy of more serious employment. Thus he stood by the lamp-post, surveying the passers-by with undisguised curiosity, and, with that gravity known only to the systematic diner, had just enunciated in his mind the formula, London has been called the city of encounters. It's more than that. It is the city of resurrections. When these reflections were suddenly interrupted by a piteous whine at his elbow and a deplorable appeal for arms. He looked around in some irritation and, with a sudden shock, found himself confronted by the embodied proof of his somewhat stilted fancies. There, close beside him, his face altered and disfigured by poverty and disgrace, his body barely covered by greasy, ill-fitting rags, stood his old friend, Charles Herbert, who had matriculated on the same day as himself, with whom he had been merry and wise for twelve revolving terms. Different occupations and varying interests had interrupted the friendship, and it was six years since Villiers had seen Herbert, and now he looked upon this wreck of a man with grief and dismay, mingled with a certain inquisitiveness as to what dreary chain of circumstances had dragged him down to such a doleful pass. Villiers felt together with compassion all the relish of the amateur in mysteries, and congratulated himself on his leisurely speculations outside the restaurant. They walked on in silence for some time, and more than one passer-by stared in astonishment at the unaccustomed spectacle of a well-dressed man with an unmistakable beggar hanging on to his arm. And, observing this, Villiers led the way to an obscure street in Soho. Here he repeated his question. How on earth has it happened, Herbert? I always understood you would succeed to an excellent position in Dorsetshire. Did your father disinherit you? Surely not. No, Villiers, I came into all the property at my poor father's death. He died a year after I left Oxford. He was a very good father to me, and I mourned his death sincerely enough. But you know what young men are. A few months later I came up to town, and went a good deal into society. Of course I had excellent introductions. I managed to enjoy myself very much in a harmless sort of way. I played a little, certainly, but never for heavy stakes and the few bets I made on races brought me in money. Only a few pounds, you know, but enough to pay for cigars and such petty pleasures. It was in my second season that the tide turned. Of course, you have heard of my marriage? No, I never heard anything about it. Yes, I married Villiers. I met a girl of the most wonderful and most strange beauty at a house of some people whom I knew. I cannot tell you her age. I never knew it, but so far as I can guess, I should think she must have been about nineteen when I made her acquaintance. My friends had come to know her at Florence. She told them she was an orphan, the child of an English father and an Italian mother, 
and she charmed them as she charmed me. The first time I saw her was at an evening party. I was standing by the door, talking to a friend, when suddenly, above the hum and babble of conversation, I heard a voice which seemed to thrill to my heart. She was singing an Italian song. I was introduced to her that evening, and in three months I married Helen. Villiers, that woman, if I can call her woman, corrupted my soul. The night of the wedding I found myself sitting in her bedroom in the hotel, listening to her talk. She was sitting up in bed, and I listened to her as she spoke in her beautiful voice, spoke of things which even now I would not dare whisper in the blackest night, though I stood in the midst of a wilderness. You, Villiers, you may think you know life and London and what goes on day and night in this dreadful city. For all I can say, you may have heard the talk of the vilest. But I tell you, you can have no conception of what I know. Not in your most fantastic, hideous dreams can you have imaged forth the faintest shadow of what I heard and seen. Yes, seen. I have seen the incredible. Such horrors that even myself sometimes stop in the middle of the street and ask whether it is possible for a man to behold such things and live. In a year, Villiers, I was a ruined man, in body and soul. In body and soul. But your property, Herbert. You had land in Dorset. I sold it all. The fields and woods. The dear old house. Everything. And the money? She took it from me. And then left you? Yes. She disappeared one night. I don't know where she went. But I'm sure if I saw her again it would kill me. The rest of my story is of no interest. Sordid misery, that is all. You may think, Villiers, that I have exaggerated and talked for effect, but I have not told you half. I could tell you certain things which would convince you, but you would never know a happy day again. You would pass the rest of your life as I pass mine, a haunted man. A man who has seen hell. Villiers took the unfortunate man to his rooms and gave him a meal. Herbert could eat little and scarcely touched the glass of wine set before him. He sat moody and silent by the fire and seemed relieved when Villiers sent him away with a small present of money. By the way, Herbert, said Villiers, as they parted at the door. What was your wife's name? You said Helen, I think. Helen what? The name she passed under when I met her was Helen Vaughan, but what her real name was I can't say. I don't think she had a name. No, no, not in that sense. 
Only human beings have names, Villiers. I can't say any more. Goodbye. Yes, I will not fail to call if I can see any way in which you can help me. Good night. The man went out into the bitter night, and Villiers returned to his fireside. There was something about Herbert which shocked him inexpressibly. Not his poor rags, nor the marks which poverty had set upon his face, but rather an indefinite terror which hung about him like a mist. He had acknowledged that he himself was not devoid of blame. The woman, he had avowed, had corrupted him body and soul, and Villiers felt that this man, once his friend, had been an actor in scenes evil beyond the power of words. His story needed no confirmation. He himself was the embodied proof of it. Villiers mused cautiously over the story he had heard, and wondered whether he had heard both the first and the last of it. No, he thought, certainly not the last. Probably only the beginning. A case like this is like a nest of Chinese boxes. You open one after the other, and find quainter workmanship in every box. Most likely, poor Herbert is merely one of the outside boxes. There are stranger ones to follow. Villiers could not take his mind away from Herbert and his story, which seemed to grow wilder as the night wore on. The fire seemed to burn low, and the chilly air of the morning crept into the room. Villiers got up with a glance over his shoulder, and, shivering slightly, went to bed. A few days later, he saw at his club a gentleman of his acquaintance named Austin, who was famous for his intimate knowledge of London life, both in its tenebraeus and luminous phases. Villiers, still full of his encounter in Soho and its consequences, thought Austin might possibly be able to shed some light on Herbert's history, and so, after some casual talk, he suddenly put the question. Do you happen to know anything of a man named Herbert? Charles Herbert? Austin turned round sharply, and stared at Villiers with some astonishment. Charles Herbert? Weren't you in town three years ago? No. Then you have not heard of the Paul Street case? It caused a good deal of sensation at the time. What was the case? Well, a gentleman, a man of very good position, was found dead, stark dead, in the area of a certain house in Paul Street, off Tottenham Court Road. Of course, the police did not make the discovery. If you happen to be sitting up all night and have a light in your window, the constable will ring the bell. But if you happen to be lying dead in someone else's area, you'll be left alone. In this instance, as in many others, the alarm was raised by some kind of vagabond. I don't mean a common tramp or a public-house loafer, but a gentleman whose business, or pleasure, or both, made him a spectator of the London streets at five o'clock in the morning. The individual was, as he said, 
going home. It did not appear whence or whither, and had occasion to pass through Paul Street between four and five a.m. Something or other caught his eye at number twenty. He said, absurdly enough, that the house had the most unpleasant physiognomy he had ever observed. But at any rate, he glanced down the area and was a good deal astonished to see a man lying on the stones, his limbs all huddled together and his face turned up. Our gentleman thought his face looked peculiarly ghastly, and so set off at a run in search of the nearest policeman. The constable was, at first, inclined to treat the matter rather lightly, suspecting common drunkenness. However, he came and, after looking at the man's face, changed his tone quickly enough. The early bird, who had picked up this fine worm, was sent off for a doctor. And the policeman rang and knocked at the house till a slatternly servant girl came down, looking more than half asleep. The constable pointed out the contents of the area to the maid, who screamed loudly enough to wake up the street. But she knew nothing of the man, had never seen him at the house, and so forth. Meanwhile, the original discoverer had come back with a medical man. And the next thing was to get into the area. The gate was open, so the whole quartet stumped down the steps. The doctor hardly needed a moment's examination. He said the poor fellow had been dead for several hours, and it was then that the case began to get interesting. The dead man had not been robbed, and in one of his pockets were. Papers identify him as, well, as a man of good family and means, a favourite in society, and nobody's enemy as far as could be known. I don't know his name, Villiers, because it has nothing to do with the story, and because it's no good raking up these affairs about the dead when there are no relations living. The next curious point was that the medical men couldn't agree. As to how he met his death, there were some slight bruises on his shoulders, but they were so slight that it looked as if he had been pushed roughly out of the kitchen door, and not thrown over the railings from the street, or even dragged down the steps. But there were positively no other marks of violence about him, certainly none that would account for his death. And when they came to the autopsy, there wasn't a trace of poison of any kind. Of course, the police wanted to know all about the people at number twenty, and here again, so I heard from private sources, one or two very curious points came out. It appears that the occupants of the house were a Mister and Missus Charles Herbert. He was said to be a landed proprietor, though it struck most people that Paul Street was not exactly the place to look for country gentry. As for Mrs. Herbert, nobody seemed to know who or what she was, and between ourselves, I fancy the divers after her history found themselves in rather strange waters. Of course, they both denied knowing anything about the deceased, and 
In default of any evidence against them, they were discharged. But some very odd things came out about them. Though it was between five and six in the morning when the dead man was removed, a large crowd had collected, and several of the neighbours ran to see what was going on. They were pretty free with their comments, by all accounts. And from these, it appeared that number 20 was in very bad odour in Paul Street. The detectives tried to trace down these rumours to some solid foundation of fact, but could not get hold of anything. People shook their heads and raised their eyebrows and thought the Herberts rather queer, would rather not be seen going into their house and so on, but there was nothing tangible. The authorities were morally certain that the man met his death in some way or another in the house, and was thrown out by the kitchen door. But they couldn't prove it, and the absence of any indications of violence or poisoning left them helpless. An odd case, wasn't it? But, curiously enough, there's something more that I haven't told you. I happen to know one of the doctors who was consulted as to the cause of death, and, some time after the inquest, I met him and asked him about it. Do you really mean to tell me, I said, that you were baffled by the case, that you actually don't know what the man died of? Pardon me, he replied. I know perfectly well what caused death. Blank died of fright, of sheer awful terror. I never saw features so hideously contorted in the entire course of my practice, and I have seen the faces of a whole host of dead. The doctor was usually a cool customer enough, and a certain vehemence in his manner struck me, but I couldn't get anything more out of him. I suppose the Treasury didn't see their way to prosecuting the Herberts for frightening a man to death. At any rate, nothing was done, and the case dropped out of men's minds. Do you happen to know anything of Herbert? Well, replied Villiers, he was an old college friend of mine. You don't say. Have you seen his wife? No, I haven't. I have lost sight of Herbert for many years. It's queer, isn't it? Parting with a man at the college gate or at Paddington, seeing nothing of him for years, and then finding him pop up his head in such an odd place. But I should have liked to have seen Mrs. Herbert. People said extraordinary things about her. What sort of things? Well, I hardly know how to tell you. Everyone who saw her at the police court said she was at once the most beautiful woman and the most repulsive they had ever set eyes on. I have spoken to a man who saw her, and I assure you he positively shuddered as he tried to describe the woman, but he couldn't tell why. She seems to have been some sort of an enigma, and I expect that if one dead man could have told tales, he would have told some uncommonly queer ones. And there you go again in another puzzle. What could a respectable country gentleman like Mr. Blank, we'll call him that if you don't mind, 
want in such a very queer house at number 20. It's altogether a very odd case, isn't it? Indeed it is, Austin. An extraordinary case. I didn't think when I asked you about my old friend I should strike on such strange metal. Well, I must be off. Good day. Villiers went again, thinking of his own conceit of the Chinese boxes. Here was quaint workmanship indeed. Chapter 4 The Discovery in Paul Street A few months after Villiers' meeting with Herbert, Mr. Clark was sitting, as usual, by his after-dinner hearth, resolutely guarding his fancies from wandering in the direction of the bureau. For more than a week, he had succeeded in keeping away from the memoirs, and he cherished hopes of a complete self-reformation. But, in spite of his endeavours, he could not hush the wonder and the strange curiosity that the last case he had written down had excited within him. He had put the case, or rather the outline of it, conjecturally to a scientific friend, who shook his head and thought Clark getting queer. And, on this particular evening, Clark was making an effort to rationalise the story, when... A sudden knock at the door roused him from his meditations. Mr. Villiers to see you, sir. Dear me, Villiers, it is very kind of you to look me up. I have not seen you for many months. I should think nearly a year. Come in, come in. And how are you, Villiers? Want any advice about investments? No, thanks. I fancy everything I have in that way is pretty safe. No, Clark, I've really come to consult you about a rather curious matter that has been brought under my notice of late. I am afraid you will think it all rather absurd when I tell my tale. I sometimes think so myself. And that's just what made up my mind to come to you, as I know you're a practical man. Mr. Villiers was ignorant of the memoirs to prove the existence of the devil. Well, Villiers, I shall be happy to give you my advice, to the best of my ability. What is the nature of the case? It's an extraordinary thing altogether. You know my ways. I always keep my eyes open in the streets, and in my time I have chanced upon some queer customers, and queer cases too. But this, I think, beats all. I was coming out of a restaurant one nasty winter night, about three months ago. I had had a capital dinner and a good bottle of Chianti, and I stood for a moment on the pavement, thinking what a mystery there is about London streets and the companies that pass along them. A bottle of red wine encourages these fancies, Clark. And I dare say... I should have thought a page of small type, but I was cut short by a beggar who had come behind me and was making the usual appeals. Of course I looked round, and this beggar turned out to be what was left of an old friend of mine, a man named Herbert. I asked him how he had come to such a wretched pass, and he told me. 
we walked up and down one of those long, dark Soho streets, and there I listened to his story. He said he had married a beautiful girl some years younger than himself, and, as he put it, she had corrupted him body and soul. He wouldn't go into the details. He said he dare not. That what he had seen and heard haunted him by night and day. And when I looked into his face, I knew he was speaking the truth. There was something about the man that made me shiver. I don't know why, but it was there. I gave him a little money and sent him away. And I assure you that when he was gone, I gasped for breath. His presence seemed to chill one's blood. Isn't this all a little bit fanciful, Villiers? I suppose the poor fellow had made an imprudent marriage, and in plain English, gone to the bad. Well, listen to this. Villiers told Clark the story he had heard from Austin. You see, he concluded, there can be but little doubt that this Mr. Blank, whoever he was, died of sheer terror. He saw something so awful, so terrible, that it cut short his life. And what he saw, he most certainly saw in that house, which, somehow or other, had got a bad name in the neighbourhood. I had the curiosity to go and look at the place for myself. It's a saddening kind of street. The houses are old enough to be mean and dreary, but not old enough to be quaint. As far as I could see, most of them are let in lodgings, furnished and unfurnished, and almost every door has three bells to it. Here and there, the ground floors have been made into shops of the most commonest kind. It's a dismal street in every way. I found number 20 was to let, and I went to the agents and got the key. Of course, I should have heard nothing of the Herberts in that quarter, but I asked the man fair and square how long they had left the house and whether there had been any other tenants in the meanwhile. He looked at me queerly for a minute and told me the Herberts had left immediately after the unpleasantness as he called it, and since the house had been empty. Mr. Villiers paused for a moment. I have always been rather fond of going over empty houses. There's a sort of fascination about the desolate empty rooms, with the nails sticking in the walls, and the dust thick upon the window sills. But I didn't enjoy going over number 20 Paul Street. I had hardly put my foot inside the passage when I noticed a queer, heavy feeling about the air of the house. Of course, all empty houses are stuffy and so forth, but this was something quite different. I can't describe it to you, but it seemed to stop the breath. I went into the front room and the back room and the kitchens downstairs. They were all dirty and dusty enough, as you would expect. But there was something strange about them all. I couldn't define it to you. I only know I felt queer. It was one of the rooms on the first floor, though, 
that was the worst. It was a largish room, and once on a time the paper must have been cheerful enough. But when I saw it, paint, paper, and everything else were most doleful. But the room was full of horror. I felt my teeth grinding as I put my hand on the door. And when I went in, I thought I should have fallen fainting to the floor. However, I pulled myself together and stood against the end wall, wondering what on earth there could be about the room to make my limbs tremble and my heart beat as if I were at the hour of death. In one corner, there was a pile of newspapers littered on the floor, and I began looking at them. They were papers of three or four years ago, some of them half torn and crumpled as if they had been used for packing. I turned the whole pile over, and amongst them I found a curious drawing. I will show it to you presently. But I couldn't stay in the room. I felt it was overpowering me. I was thankful to come out, safe and sound, into the open air. People stared at me as I walked along the street, and one man said I was drunk. I was staggering about from one side of the pavement to the other, and it was as much as I could do to take the key back to the agent and get home. I was in bed for a week, suffering from what my doctor called nervous shock and exhaustion. One of those days, I was reading the evening paper. And happened to notice a paragraph headed "Starved to Death." It was the usual kind of thing: a model lodging house in Marleybone, a door locked for several days, and a dead man in his chair when they broke in. The deceased said the paragraph was known as Charles Herbert, and is believed to have been once a prosperous country gentleman. His name was familiar to the public three years ago in connection with the mysterious death in Paul Street, Tottenham Court Road. The deceased being the tenant of the house number twenty, in the area of which a gentleman of good position was found dead under circumstances not devoid of suspicion. Tragic ending, wasn't it? But after all, if what he told me were true, which I am sure it was. The man's life was all a tragedy, and a tragedy of a stranger sort than they put on the boards. And that is the story, is it? Said Clark musingly. Yes, that is the story. Well, Villiers, I scarcely know what to say about it. There are no doubt circumstances in the case which make it seem peculiar. The finding of the dead man in the area of Herbert's house, for instance, and the extraordinary opinion of the physician as to the cause of death. But after all, it is conceivable that the facts may be explained in a straightforward manner. As to your own sensations, when you went to see the house, I would suggest that they were due. To a vivid imagination, you must have been brooding in a semi-conscious way over what you had heard. 
I don't exactly see what more can be said or done in the matter. You evidently think there is a mystery of some kind. But Herbert is dead. Where then do you propose to look? I propose to look for the woman, the woman whom he married. She is the mystery. The two men sat silent by the fireside. Clark secretly congratulating himself on having successfully kept up the character of advocate of the commonplace, and Villiers wrapped in his gloomy fancies. I think I will have a cigarette, he said at last, and put his hand to his pocket to feel for the cigarette case. Ah, he said, starting slightly, I forgot I had something to show you. You remember my saying that I had found a rather curious sketch amongst the pile of old newspapers at the house in Paul Street? Here it is. Villiers drew out a small thin parcel from his pocket. It was covered with brown paper and secured with string, and the knots were troublesome. In spite of himself, Clark felt inquisitive. He bent forward on his chair. As Villiers painfully undid the string and unfolded the outer covering. Inside was a second wrapping of tissue, and Villiers took it off and handed the small piece of paper to Clark without a word. There was dead silence in the room for five minutes more. The two men sat so still that they could hear the ticking of the tall, old fashioned clock. That stood outside in the hall, and in the mind of one of them, the slow monotony of sound woke up a far, far memory. He was looking intently at the small pen and ink sketch of the woman's head. It had evidently been drawn with great care and by a true artist, for the woman's soul looked out of the eyes, and the lips were parted. With a strange smile. Clark gazed still at the face. It brought to his memory one summer evening long ago, and he saw again the long, lovely valley, the river winding between the hills, the meadows, and the cornfields, the dull red sun, and the cold white mist rising from the water. He heard a voice speaking to him across the waves of many years, saying, Clark, Mary will see the God Pan. And then he was standing in the grim room beside the doctor, listening to the heavy ticking of the clock, waiting and watching, watching the figure lying on the green chair beneath the lamplight. Mary rose up. And he looked into her eyes, and his heart grew cold within him. Who is this woman? he said at last. His voice was dry and hoarse. That is the woman who Herbert married. Clark looked again at the sketch. It was not Mary after all. There certainly was Mary's face, but there was something else. Something he had not seen on Mary's features when the white clad girl entered the laboratory with the doctor. 
nor at her terrible awakening, nor when she lay grinning on the bed. Whatever it was, the glance that came from those eyes, the smile on the full lips, or the expression of the whole face, Clark shuddered before it at his innermost soul, and thought unconsciously of Dr. Phillips' words, the most vivid presentment of evil I have ever seen. He turned the paper over mechanically in his hand, and glanced at the back. Good God, Clark, what is the matter? You are as white as death. Villiers had started wildly from his chair, as Clark fell back with a groan, and let the paper drop from his hands. I don't feel well, Villiers. I am subject to these attacks. Pour me out a little wine. Thanks. That'll do. I shall feel better in a few minutes. Villiers picked up the fallen sketch, and turned it over as Clark had done. You saw that? he said. That's how I identified it as being a portrait of Herbert's wife. Or should I say his widow? How do you feel now? Better, thanks. It was only a passing faintness. I don't think I quite catch your meaning. What did you say enabled you to identify the picture? This word, Helen, written on the back. Didn't I tell you her name was Helen? Yes, Helen Vaughan. Clark groaned. There could be no shadow of doubt. Now, don't you agree with me, said Villiers, that in the story I have told to you tonight, and in the part this woman plays in it, there are some very strange points. Yes, Villiers, Clark muttered. It is a very strange story indeed, a strange story indeed. You must give me time to think it over. I may be able to help you, or I may not. Must you be going now? Well, good night, Villiers. Good night. Come and see me in the course of a week. Chapter 5 Letters of Advice Do you know Austin? said Villiers, as the two friends were pacing sedately along Piccadilly one pleasant morning in May. Do you know I am convinced that what you told me about Paul Street and the Herberts is a mere episode in an extraordinary history. I may as well confess to you that when I asked you about Herbert a few months ago, I had just seen him. You had seen him? Where? He begged of me in the street one night. He was in the most pitiable plight. But I recognized the man, and I got him to tell me his history, or at least the outline of it. In brief, it amounted to this. He had been ruined by his wife. In what manner? He would not tell me. He would only say that she had destroyed him, body and soul. The man is dead now. And what has become of his wife? Ah, that's what I should like to know. And I mean to find her sooner or later. I know a man named Clark, a dry fellow. In fact, a man of business, but shrewd enough. You understand my meaning. Not shrewd in the mere business sense of the word, but a man who really knows something about men and life. 
Well, I laid the case out before him, and he was evidently quite impressed. He said it needed consideration, and asked me to come again in the course of a week. A few days later, I received this extraordinary letter. Austin took the envelope, drew out the letter, and read it curiously. It ran as follows. My dear Villiers, I have thought over the matter on which you consulted me the other night, and my advice to you is this. Throw the portrait into the fire. Blot out the story from your mind. Never give it another thought, Villiers, or you will be sorry. You will think, no doubt, that I am in possession of some secret information, and to a certain extent that is the case. But I only know a little. I am like a traveller who has peered over an abyss, and has drawn back in terror. What I know is strange enough, and horrible enough, but beyond my knowledge there are depths and horrors more frightful still, more incredible than any tale told of winter nights about the fire. I have resolved, and nothing shall shake that resolve, to explore no farther. And, if you value your happiness, you will make the same determination. Come and see me by all means, but we will talk on more cheerful topics than this. Austin folded the letter methodically, and returned it to Villiers. "'It is certainly an extraordinary letter,' he said. "'But what does he mean by the portrait?' "'Ah, I forgot to tell you. I have been to Paul Street, and have made a discovery.' Villiers told his story, as he had told it to Clark, and Austin listened in silence. He seemed puzzled.' How very curious that you should experience such an unpleasant sensation in that room, he said at length. I hardly gather it was a mere matter of the imagination, a feeling of repulsion, in short. No, it was more physical than mental, as if I were inhaling at every breath some deadly fume which seemed to penetrate every nerve and bone and sinew of my body. I felt racked from head to foot. My eyes began to grow dim. It was like the entrance of death. Yes, yes, very strange, certainly. You see, your friend confesses that there is some very black story connected with this woman. Did you notice any particular emotion in him? "'When you were telling your tale?' "'Yes, I did. "'He became very faint, "'but he assured me it was a mere passing attack "'to which he was subject.' "'Do you believe him?' "'I did at the time, but I don't know. "'He heard what I had to say with a good deal of indifference, "'till I showed him the portrait.' It was then he was seized with the attack of which I spoke. He looked ghastly, I assure you. Then he must have seen the woman before. But there might be another explanation. 
It might have been the name, and not the face, which was familiar to him. What do you think? I couldn't say. To the best of my knowledge, it was after turning the portrait in his hands that he nearly dropped from the chair. The name, you know, was written on the back. Quite so. After all, it is impossible to come to any resolution in a case like this. I hate melodrama, and nothing strikes me as more common and tedious than the ordinary ghost story of commerce. But really, Villiers, it looks as if there were something very queer at the bottom of all this. The two men had, without noticing it, turned up Ashley Street, leading northward from Piccadilly. It was a long street, and a rather gloomy one, but here and there a brighter taste illuminated the dark houses with flowers and gay curtains and a cheerful paint on the doors. Villiers glanced up as Austin stopped speaking and looked at one of these houses. Geraniums, white and red, dropped from every sill, and daffodil-coloured curtains were draped back from each window. Looks rather cheerful, doesn't it? he said. Yes, and the inside is still more cheery. One of the pleasanter houses of the season, or so I have heard. I haven't been there myself, but I've met several men who have, and they tell me it's uncommonly jovial. Whose house is it? Uh, Mrs. Beaumont's. And who is she? I couldn't tell you. I've heard she comes from South America. But, after all, who she is is of little consequence. She is a very wealthy woman, there's no doubt of that. And some of the best people have taken her up. I hear she has some wonderful claret, pretty marvellous wine, which must have cost an absolute sum. Lord Argentine was telling me about it. He was there last Sunday evening. He assures me he never tasted such wine. And Argentine, as you know, is an expert. By the way, that reminds me. She must be an oddish sort of woman, this Mrs. Beaumont. Argentine asked her how old the wine was. And what do you think she said? About a thousand years old, I believe. Argentine thought she was chaffing him, you know. But when he laughed, she said she was speaking quite seriously and offered to show him the jar. Of course, he couldn't say anything more after that, but it seems rather antiquated for a beverage, doesn't it? Why, here we are at my rooms. Come in, won't you? Yes, thanks. I think I will. I haven't seen the curiosity shop for a while. It was a room furnished richly, yet oddly, where every jar and bookcase and table, and every rug and jar and ornament, seemed to be a thing apart, preserving each its own individuality. Anything fresh lately? said Villiers after a while. No, I think not. You saw those queer jugs, didn't you? I thought so. I don't think I've come across anything for the last few weeks. Austin glanced round the room from cupboard to cupboard, from shelf to shelf, in search of some new oddity. His eyes fell at last 
on an odd chest, pleasantly and quaintly carved, which stood in a dark corner of the room. Ah, he said, I was forgetting. I have got something to show to you. Austin unlocked the chest, drew out a thick quarto volume, laid it on the table, and resumed the cigar he had put down. Do you know Arthur Merrick, the painter, Villiers? A little. I met him two or three times at the house of a friend of mine. What has become of him? I haven't heard his name mentioned for some time. He's dead. You don't say. Quite young, wasn't he? Yes, only thirty when he died. What did he die of? I don't know. He was an intimate friend of mine, and a thoroughly good fellow. He used to come here and talk to me for hours. He was one of the best talkers I have met. He could even talk about painting, and that's more than can be said of most painters. About eighteen months ago, he was feeling rather overworked, and partly at my suggestion, he went off on a sort of roving expedition, with no very definite end or aim about it. I believe New York was his first port, but I never heard from him. Three months ago, I got this book with a very civil letter from an English doctor practicing in Buenos Aires, stating that he had attended the late Mr. Meyrick during his illness, and that the deceased had expressed an earnest wish that the enclosed packet should be sent to me after his death. That was all. And you haven't written for further particulars? I have been thinking of doing so. You would advise me to write to the doctor? Certainly. And what about the book? It was sealed up when I got it. I don't think the doctor had seen it. Is it something very rare? Merrick was a collector, perhaps. No, I think not. Hardly a collector. Now, what do you think of these Anu jugs? They are peculiar, but I like them. But aren't you going to show me poor Merrick's legacy? Yes, yes, to be sure. The fact is, it's a rather peculiar sort of thing, and I haven't shown it to anyone. I wouldn't say anything about it if I were you. Here it is. Villiers took the book. And opened it at haphazard. It isn't a printed volume, then, he said. No, it is a collection of drawings in black and white by my poor friend Meyrick. Villiers turned to the first page. It was blank. The second bore a brief inscription, which he read Silit per diem universus. Next sign, horore secretus est. Lucet nocturnis ignibus. Chorus Egyptanum undic personator. Odeunto et canis tibarium et tinnitus symbolarum per orum maritamum. There is a universal silence throughout the day. And the place is hidden away and not without horror. It is lit up by night by fires. 
and a chorus of Aigipan resounds everywhere. The sounds of flutes and the ringing of cymbals are heard along the sea coast. On the third page was a design which made Villiers start and look up at Austin. He was gazing abstractedly out of the window. Villiers turned page after page, absorbed, in spite of himself, in the dreadful Walpurgis night of evil, strange, monstrous evil, that the dead artist had set forth in hard black and white. The figures of fauns and satyrs and aigapans danced before his eyes. The darkness of the thicket, the dance on the mountain top, the scenes of lonely shores, in green vineyards, by rocks and desert places, passed before him, a world before which the human soul seemed to shrink back and shudder. Villiers whirled over the remaining pages. He had seen enough. But the picture on the last leaf caught his eye as he almost closed the book. Austin! Well, what is it? Do you know who that is? It was a woman's face, alone on the white page. Know who it is? No, of course not. I do. Who is it, then? It is Mrs. Herbert. Are you sure? I am perfectly sure of it. I am perfectly sure of it. Poor Merrick. He is one more chapter in her history. But what do you think of the designs? They are frightful. Lock the book up again, Austin. If I were you, I would burn it. It must be a terrible companion, even though it be in a chest. Yes, they are singular drawings. But I wonder what connection there could be between Meyrick and Mrs. Herbert. Or what link between her and these designs? Ah, who can say? It is possible that the matter may end here, and we shall never know. But in my own opinion, this Helen Vaughan, or Mrs. Herbert, is only the beginning. She will come back to London, Austin. Depend upon it. She will come back. And we shall hear more about her then. I doubt it will be very pleasant news. Chapter 6 The Suicides Lord Argentine was a great favourite in London society. At twenty, he had been a poor man, decked with the surname of an illustrious family, but forced to earn a livelihood as best he could. And the most speculative of moneylenders would not have entrusted him with fifty pounds on the chance of his ever changing his name for a title and his poverty for a great fortune. His father had been near enough to the fountain of good things to secure one of the family's livings, but the son, even if he had taken orders, would scarcely have obtained so much as this. Moreover, felt no vocation for the ecclesiastical estate. Thus he fronted the world with no better armour than the bachelor's gown and the wits of a younger son's grandson, with which equipment 
he contrived in some way to make a very tolerable fight of it. At twenty-five, Mr. Charles Oberon saw himself still as a man of some struggles and of warfare with the world. But out of the seven who stood before him and the high places of his family, three only remained. These three, however, were good lives, but not yet proof against Zulu assegais and typhoid fever. So one morning, Oberon woke up and found himself Lord Argentine, a man of thirty who had faced the difficulties of existence and had conquered. The situation amused him immensely, and he resolved that riches should be as pleasant to him as poverty always had been. Argentine, after some little consideration, came to the conclusion that dining, regarded as a fine art, was perhaps the most amusing pursuit open to fallen humanity, and thus his dinners became famous in London, and an invitation to his table, a thing covetously desired. After ten years of lordship and dinners, Argentine still declined to be jaded, still persisted in enjoying life, and, by a kind of infection, had become recognised as the cause of joy in others. In short, the best of company. His sudden and tragical death, therefore, caused a wide and deep sensation. People could scarcely believe it, even though the newspaper was before their eyes. And the cry of, Mysterious death of a nobleman, came ringing up from the street. But there stood the brief paragraph, Lord Argentine was found dead this morning by his valet, under distressing circumstances. It is stated that there can be no doubt that his lordship committed suicide, though no motive can be assigned for the act. The deceased nobleman was widely known in society, and much liked for his genial manner and sumptuous hospitality. He is succeeded by, etc., etc. By slow degrees, the details came to light, but the case still remained a mystery. The chief witness at the inquest was the deceased's valet, who said that the night before his death, Lord Argentine had dined with a lady of good position, whose name was suppressed in the newspaper reports. About eleven o'clock, Lord Argentine had returned, and informed his man that he should not require his services till the next morning. A little later, the valet had occasion to cross the hall, and was somewhat astonished to see his master quietly letting himself out at the front door. He had taken off his evening clothes, and was dressed in a Norfolk coat and knickerbockers, and wore a low brown hat. The valet had no reason to suppose that Lord Argentine had seen him, and though his master rarely kept late hours, thought little of the occurrence until the next morning, when he knocked at the bedroom door at a quarter to nine as usual. He received no answer, and after knocking two or three times, entered the room, and saw Lord Argentine's body leaning forward at an angle from the bottom of the bed. He found that his master had tied a cord securely to one of the short bedposts, and 
After making a running noose and slipping it round his neck, the unfortunate man must have resolutely fallen forward to die by slow strangulation. He was dressed in the light suit in which the valet had seen him go out, and the doctor who was summoned pronounced that life had been extinct for more than four hours. All papers, letters, and so forth seemed in perfect order. And nothing was discovered which pointed, in the most remote way, to any scandal, either great or small. Here the evidence ended; nothing more could be discovered. Several persons had been present at the dinner party at which Lord Argentine had assisted, and to all these he seemed in his usual genial spirits. The valet, indeed, said he thought his master appeared. A little excited when he came home, but confessed that the alteration in his manner was very slight, hardly noticeable indeed. It seemed hopeless to seek for any clue, and the suggestion that Lord Argentine had been suddenly attacked by acute suicidal mania was generally accepted. It was otherwise, however, when within three weeks three more gentlemen. One of them a nobleman, and two others men of good position and ample means, perished miserably in almost precisely the same manner. Lord Swanley was found one morning in his dressing room, hanging from a peg affixed to the wall, and Mr. Collier Stuart and Mr. Herries had chosen to die as Lord Argentine. There was no explanation in either case. A few bald facts. A man, a living man in the evening, and a body with a black, swollen face in the morning. The police had been forced to confess themselves powerless to arrest or to explain the sordid murders of Whitechapel, but before the horrible suicides of Piccadilly and Mayfair, they were dumbfounded, for not even the mere ferocity which did duty as an explanation of the crimes of the East End. Could be of service in the West. Each of these men who had resolved to die a tortured, shameful death was rich, prosperous, and to all appearances in love with the world. And not the acutest research should ferret out any shadow of a lurking motive in either case. There was a horror in the air, and men looked at one another's faces when they met. Each wondering whether the other was to be the victim of the fifth nameless tragedy, journalists sought in vain for their scrapbooks for materials whereof to concoct reminiscent articles, and the morning paper was unfolded in many a house with a feeling of awe. No man knew when or where the next blow would light. In a short while after the last of these terrible events. Austin came to see Mr. Villiers. He was curious to know whether Villiers had succeeded in discovering any fresh traces of Mrs. Herbert, through either Clark or by other sources, and he asked the question soon after he sat down. "No," said Villiers. "I wrote to Clark, but he remains obdurate, and I have tried other channels, but without any result." I can't find out what became of Helen Vaughan after she left Paul Street, 
but I think she must have gone abroad. To tell the truth, Austin, I haven't paid much attention to the matter for the past few weeks. I knew poor Harry's intimately, and his terrible death has been a great shock to me. A great shock. I can well believe it, answered Austin gravely. You know, Argentine was a friend of mine. If I remember rightly, we were speaking of him that day you came to my rooms. Yes, it was in connection with that house in Ashley Street, Mrs. Beaumont's house. He said something about Argentine dining there. Quite so. Of course, you knew it was there that Argentine dined the night before. Before his death. No, I had not heard that. Oh, yes. The name was kept out of the papers to spare Mrs. Beaumont. Argentine was a great favourite of hers, and it is said she was in a terrible state for some time after. A curious look came over Villiers's face. He seemed undecided whether to speak or not. Austin began again. I never experienced such a feeling of horror as when I read the account of Argentine's death. I didn't understand it at the time. I don't now. I knew him well, and it completely passes my understanding for what possible cause he, or any of the others, for the matter of that, could have resolved in cold blood. To die in such an awful manner. You know how men babble away at each other's characters in London. You may be sure any buried scandal or hidden skeleton would have been brought to light in a case such as this. But nothing of the sort has taken place. As for the theory of mania, that is very well, of course, for the coroner's jury. But everyone knows it's all nonsense. Suicidal mania is not smallpox. Austin relapsed into gloomy silence. Villiers sat silent also, watching his friend. The expression of indecision still fleeted across his face. He seemed as if weighing his thoughts in the balance, and the considerations he was resolving. Left him still silent. Austin tried to shake off the remembrance of the tragedies, as hopeless and perplexed as the labyrinth of Delidolus, and began to talk in an indifferent voice of the more pleasant incidents and adventures of the season. That Mrs. Beaumont, he said, of whom we were speaking, is a great success. She has taken London almost by storm. I met her the other night at Fulham's. She really is a remarkable woman. You have met Mrs. Beaumont. Yes, she had quite a court around her. She would be called very handsome, I suppose. Yet there was something about her face which I didn't like. The features are exquisite, but the expression is strange. All the time I was looking at her. And afterwards, when I was going home, I had a curious feeling that very expression was, in some way or another, familiar to me. You must have seen her in the row. 
No, I'm quite sure I never set eyes on the woman before. It is that which makes it puzzling. And to the best of my belief, I have never seen anyone like her. What I felt was a kind of dim, far-off memory, vague but persistent. The only sensation I can compare it to is that old feeling that one sometimes has in a dream, when fantastic cities and wondrous lands and phantom personages appear familiar and accustomed. Villiers nodded and glanced aimlessly round the room, possibly in search of something on which to turn the conversation. His eyes fell on an old chest, somewhat like that in which the artist's strange legacy lay hid beneath a Gothic escutcheon. Have you written to the doctor about poor Merrick? he asked. Yes, I wrote asking for full particulars as to his illness and death. I don't expect an answer for another three weeks or a month, though I thought I may as well inquire whether Merrick knew an English woman named Herbert, and if so, whether the doctor could give me any information about her. It's very possible that Merrick fell in with her at New York, or Mexico, or San Francisco. I have no idea to the extent or direction of his travels. Yes, it's very possible that the woman may have had more than one name. Exactly. I wish I had thought of asking you to lend me the portrait of her which you possess. I might have enclosed it in my letter to Dr. Matthews. So you might. That never occurred to me. We might send it now. Hark! What are those boys calling? While the two men had been talking together, a confused noise of shouting had been gradually growing louder. The noise rose from the eastward and swelled down Piccadilly, drawing nearer and nearer, a very torrent of sound, surging up streets usually quiet, and making every window a frame for a face, curious or excited. The cries and voices came echoing up the silent street where Villiers lived, growing more distinct as they advanced. And as Villiers spoke, an answer rang up from the pavement. East End Dorras, another awful suicide, full details. Austin rushed down the stairs and bought a paper and read out the paragraph to Villiers as the uproar in the street rose and fell. The window was open, and the air seemed full of noise and terror. Another gentleman has fallen victim to the terrible epidemic of suicide, which for the last month has prevailed in the West End. Mr. Sidney Crayshaw of Stoke House Fulham and King's Pomeroy Devon was found after a prolonged search, hanging dead from the branch of a tree in his garden at one o'clock today. The deceased gentleman dined last night at the Carlton Club and seemed in his usual health and spirits. He left the club about ten o'clock and was seen walking leisurely up St. James's Street a little later. Subsequent to this, his movements cannot be traced. On the discovery of the body, medical aid was at once summoned, but life had evidently been long extinct. So far as known, Mr. Crayshaw 
had no trouble or anxiety of any kind. This painful suicide, it will be remembered, is the fifth of the kind in the last month. The authorities at Scotland Yard are unable to suggest any explanation of these terrible occurrences. Austin put down the paper in mute horror. I shall leave London tomorrow, he said. It is a city of nightmares. How awful this is, Villiers! Mr. Villiers was sitting by the window, quietly looking out into the street. He had listened to the newspaper report attentively, and the hint of indecision was no longer on his face. Wait a moment, Austin, he replied. I have made up my mind to mention a little matter that occurred last night. It stated, I think, that Crayshaw was last seen alive in St. James's Street, shortly after ten? Yes, I think so. I will look again. Yes, you are quite right. Quite so. Well, I am in a position to contradict that statement at all events. Crayshaw was seen after that, considerably later indeed. How do you know? "'because I happened to see Crayshaw myself at two o'clock this morning.' "'You saw Crayshaw? You, Villiers?' "'Yes, I saw him quite distinctly. "'Indeed, there were but a few feet between us. "'Where in heaven's name did you see him?' "'Not far from here. I saw him in Ashley Street. "'He was just leaving a house.' Did you notice what house it was? Yes. It was Mrs. Beaumont's. Phileas, think what you are saying. There must be some mistake. How could Crayshaw be in Mrs. Beaumont's house at two o'clock in the morning? Surely, surely, you must have been dreaming. Phileas, you were always rather fanciful. No. I was wide awake enough. Even if I had been dreaming, as you say, what I saw would have roused me effectually. What you saw? What did you see? Was there anything strange about Crayshaw? But I can't believe it. It is impossible. Well, if you like, I will tell you what I saw. Or if you please, what I think I saw. And you can judge for yourself. Very good, Villiers. The noise and clamour of the street had died away, and now and then the sound of shouting still came from the distance, and the dull leaden silence seemed like the quiet after an earthquake or a storm. Villiers turned from the window and began speaking. I was at a house near Regent's Park last night. When I came away, Fancy took me to walk home instead of taking a hansom. It was a clear, pleasant night enough, and after a few minutes I had the streets pretty much to myself. It's a curious thing, Austin, to be alone in London at night, the gas lamps stretching away in perspective, and the dead silence, and then perhaps the rush and clatter of a hansom on the stones, and the fire starting up under the horse's hooves. I walked along pretty briskly, for I was feeling a little tired 
of being out in the night. And as the clocks were striking two, I turned down Ashley Street, which you know is on my way. It was quieter than ever there, and the lamps were fewer. Altogether, it looked as dark and gloomy as a forest in winter. I had done about half the length of the street when I heard a door close very softly. I naturally looked up to see who was abroad like myself at such an hour. As it happens, there is a street lamp close to the house in question, and I saw a man standing on the step. He had just shut the door, and his face was towards me, and I recognized Crayshaw directly. I never knew him to speak to, but I had often seen him, and I am positive that I was not mistaken in my man. I looked into his face for a moment, and then, I will confess the truth, I set off at a good run and kept it up till I was within my own door. Why? Why? Because it made my blood run cold to see the man's face. I could never have supposed that such an infernal melody of passions could have glared out of any human eyes. I almost fainted as I looked. I knew I had looked into the eyes of a lost soul, Austin. The man's outward form remained, but all hell was within it. Furious lust and hate that was like fire, and the loss of all hope and horror that seemed to shriek aloud in the night, though his teeth were shut, and the utter blackness of despair. I am sure he did not see me. He saw nothing that you and I can see. But what he saw, I hope we shall never. I do not know when he died. I suppose in an hour, perhaps two. But when I passed down Ashley Street and heard the closing door, that man no longer belonged to this world. It was a devil's face I looked upon. There was an interval of silence in the room when Villiers ceased speaking. The light was failing, and all the tumult of an hour ago was quite hushed. Austin bent his head at the close of the story, and his hand covered his eyes. What can it mean? he said at length. Who knows, Austin? Who knows? It's a black business. But I think we had better keep it to ourselves. For the present, at any rate. I will see if I cannot learn anything about that house through private channels of information. And if I do light upon anything, I will let you know. Chapter 7 The Encounter in Soho. Three weeks later, Austin received a note from Villiers, asking him to call either that afternoon or the next. He chose the nearer date, and found Villiers sitting as usual by the window, apparently lost in meditation on the drowsy traffic of the street. There was a bamboo table by his side, a fantastic thing enriched with gilding and queer painted scenes, 
and on it lay a little pile of papers, arranged and docketed as neatly as anything in Mr. Clark's office. Well, Villiers, have you made any discoveries in the last three weeks? I think so. I have here one or two memoranda which struck me as singular, and there is a statement to which I shall call your attention. And these documents relate to Mrs. Beaumont? It really was Crayshaw, whom you saw that night on the doorstep of the house in Ashley Street? As to that matter, my belief remains unchanged, but neither my inquiries nor their results have any special relation to Crayshaw. But my investigations have had a strange issue. I have found out who Mrs. Beaumont is. Who is she? In what way do you mean? I mean that you and I know her better under another name. What name is that? Herbert. Herbert? Austin repeated the word, dazed with astonishment. Yes, Mrs. Herbert of Paul Street. Helen Vaughan of earlier adventures unknown to me. You had reason to recognize the expression of her face. When you go home, look at the face in Merrick's Book of Horrors, and you will know the sources of your recollection. And you have proof of this? Yes, the best of proof. I have seen Mrs. Beaumont, or shall we say, Mrs. Herbert. Where did you see her? Hardly in a place where you would expect to see a lady who lives in Ashley Street, Piccadilly. I saw her entering a house in one of the meanest and most disreputable streets in Soho. In fact, I had made an appointment, though not with her, and she was precise to both time and place. All this seems rather wonderful, but I cannot call it incredible. You must remember, Villiers, that I have seen this woman in the ordinary adventure of London society, talking and laughing and sipping her coffee in a commonplace drawing-room with commonplace people. But you know what you are saying. I do. I have not allowed myself to be led by surmises or fancies. It was with no thought of finding Helen Vaughan that I searched for Mrs. Beaumont in the dark waters of the life of London. But such has been the issue. You have been in strange places, Villiers. Yes, I have been in very strange places. It would have been useless, you know, to go to Ashley Street and to ask Mrs. Beaumont to give me a short sketch of her previous history. No, assuming, as I had to assume, that her record was not of the cleanest. It would have been pretty certain that at some point previous she must have moved in circles not quite so refined as her present ones. If you see mud at the top of a stream, you may be sure that it was once at the bottom. I went to the bottom. I have always been fond of diving into Queer Street for my amusement, and I found my knowledge of that locality and its inhabitants very useful. It is, perhaps, needless to say, 
that my friends have never heard the name of Beaumont, and, as I have never seen the lady, was quite unable to describe her. I had to set to work in an indirect way. The people there know me. I have been able to do some of them a service now and again, so they made no difficulty about giving their information. They were aware that I had no communication, direct or indirect, with Scotland Yard. I had to cast out a good many lines, though, before I got what I wanted. And when I landed the fish, I did not for a moment suppose it was my fish. But I listened to what I was told out of a constitutional liking for useless information, and I found myself in possession of a very curious story. Though, as I imagined, not the story I was looking for. It was to this effect: five or six years ago, a woman named Raymond suddenly made her appearance in the neighbourhood to which I am referring. She was described to me as being quite young, probably not more than seventeen or eighteen, very handsome, and looking as if she came from the country. I should be wrong in saying that she found her level in going to this particular quarter or associating with these people. From what I was told, I should think the worst den in London far too good for her. The person from whom I got my information, as you may suppose, no great Puritan, shuddered and grew sick in telling me of the nameless infamies that were laid to her charge. After living there for a year, perhaps a little more, she disappeared as suddenly as she came, and they saw nothing of her till about the time of the Paul Street case. At first, she came to her old haunts only occasionally, then more frequently, and finally took up her abode there as before, and remained for six or eight months. It's no use my going into details as to the life the woman led. If you want particulars, you can look at Merrick's legacy. Those designs were not drawn from his imagination. She again disappeared, and the people of the place saw nothing of her till a few months ago. My informant told me she had taken some rooms in a house which he pointed out, and these rooms she was in the habit of visiting. Two or three times a week, and always at ten in the morning. I was led to expect that one of these visits would be paid on a certain day about a week ago, and I accordingly managed to be on the lookout in company with my cicerone at quarter to ten. And the hour and the lady came with equal punctuality. My friend and I were standing under an archway, a little way back from the street. But she saw us, and gave me a glance that I shall be long in forgetting. That look was quite enough for me. I knew Miss Raymond to be Mrs. Herbert. As for Mrs. Beaumont, she had quite gone out of my head. She went into the house, and I watched it till four o'clock, when she came out, and then I followed her. It was a long chase. And I had to be very careful to keep a long way in the background, and yet not lose sight of the woman. 
she took me down to the Strand, and then to Westminster, and then up St. James's Street and along Piccadilly. I felt queerish when I saw her turn up Ashley Street. The thought that Mrs. Herbert was Mrs. Beaumont came into my mind, but it seemed too impossible to be true. I waited at the corner, keeping my eye on her all the time, and I took particular care to note the house at which she stopped. It was the house with the gay curtains, the home of the flowers, the house out of which Crayshaw came the night he hanged himself in his garden. I was just going away with my discovery when I saw an empty carriage come round and draw up in front of the house. I came to the conclusion that Mrs. Herbert was going out for a drive, and I was right. There, as it happened, I met a man I know, and we stood talking together a little distance from the carriageway, to which I had my back. We had not been there ten minutes when my friend took off his hat, and I glanced around and saw the lady I'd been following all day. Who is that? I said. And his answer was, "Mrs. Beaumont lives in Ashley Street." Of course, there could be no doubt after that. I don't know whether she saw me, but I don't think she did. I went home at once, and on consideration, I thought that I had a sufficiently good case with which to go to Clark. Why to Clark? Because I am sure that Clark is in possession of facts about this woman. Facts of which I know nothing. Well, what then? Mister Villiers laid back in his chair and looked reflectively at Austin for a moment before he answered. My idea was that Clark and I should call on Missus Beaumont. You would never go into such a house as that. No, no, Villiers, you cannot do it. Besides, consider what result. I will tell you soon, but I was going to say that my information does not end there. It has been completed in an extraordinary manner. Look at this neat little packet of manuscript. It is paginated, you see, and I have indulged in the civil coquetry of a ribbon of red tape. It has an almost legal air, hasn't it? Run your eyes over it, Austin. It is an account of the entertainment Mrs. Beaumont provided for her choicer guests. The man who wrote this escaped with his life, but I do not think he will live for many years. The doctors tell me he must have sustained some severe shock to the nerves. Austin took the manuscript, but never read it. Opening the neat pages at haphazard. His eye was caught by a word and a phrase that followed it, and sick at heart, with white lips and a cold sweat pouring like water from his temples, he flung the paper down. Take it away, Villiers. Never speak of this again. Are you made of stone, man? Why, the dread and horror of death itself. The thoughts of a man who stands in the keen morning air on the black platform, bound with the bell tolling in his ears, and waits for the harsh rattle of the bolt 
and nothing as compared to this. I will not read it. I should never sleep again. Very good. I can fancy what you saw. Yes, it is horrible enough. But after all, it is an old story, an old mystery played in our day. And in dim London streets instead of the vineyards and olive gardens. We know what happened to those who chanced to meet the great god Pan, and those who are wise know that all symbols are symbols of something, not of nothing. It was, indeed, an exquisite symbol beneath which men long ago veiled their knowledge of the most awful, the most secret forces that lie. At the heart of all things, forces beyond which the souls of men must wither and die and blacken, as their bodies blacken under the electric current. Such forces cannot be named, cannot be spoken, cannot be imagined, except under a veil and a symbol, a symbol to the most of us, appearing a quaint poetic fancy. To some, a foolish tale, but you and I, at all events, have known something of the terror that may dwell in the secret place of life, manifested under human flesh, that which is without form, taking to itself a form. Oh, Austin, how can it be? How is it that the very sunlight does not turn to blackness before this thing? The hard earth melt and boil beneath such a burden. Villiers was pacing up and down the room, and the beads of sweat stood out on his forehead. Austin sat silent for a while, but Villiers saw him make a sign upon his breast. I say again, Villiers, you will surely never enter such a house as that. You would never pass out alive. Yes, Austin, I shall go out alive. I and Clark with me. What do you mean? You cannot. You would not dare. Wait a moment. The air was very pleasant and fresh this morning. There was a breeze blowing, even through this dull street, and I thought I would take a walk. Piccadilly stretched before me in a clear, bright vista, and the sun flashed on the carriages. And on the quivering leaves in the park, it was a joyous morning, and men and women looked at the sky and smiled as they went about their work or their pleasure, and the wind blew as blithely as upon the meadows and the scented gorse. But somehow or other, I got out of the bustle and the gaiety, and I found myself walking slowly along a quiet, dull street. Where there seemed to be no sunshine and no air, and there the first few foot passengers loitered as they walked, and hung indecisively about corners and archways. I walked along, hardly knowing where I was going or what I did there, but feeling impelled, as one sometimes is, to explore still further, with a vague idea of reaching some unknown goal. Thus I forged up the street, noting the small traffic of the milk shop, and wondering at the incongruous medley of penny pipes, black tobacco, sweets, newspapers, and comic songs which 
here and there jostled one another in the short compass of a single window. I think it was a cold shudder that suddenly passed through me that first told me that I had found what I wanted. I looked up from the pavement and stopped before a dusty shop, above which the lettering had faded, where the red bricks of two hundred years ago had grimed to black. Where the windows had gathered to themselves the dust of winters innumerable. I saw what I required, but I think it was five minutes before I had steadied myself and could walk in and ask for it in a cool voice and with a calm face. I think there must, even then, have been a tremor in my words, for the old man who came out of the back parlour. And fumbled slowly amongst his goods, looked oddly at me as he tied the parcel. I paid what he asked, and stood leaning by the counter with a strange reluctance to take up my goods and go. I asked about the business, and learnt that trade was bad and the profits cut down sadly. But then the street was not what it was before traffic had been diverted. But that was done forty years ago, just before my father died. He said, "I got away at last and walked along sharply. It was a dismal street indeed, and I was glad to return to the bustle and the noise." Would you like to see my purchase? Austin said nothing, but nodded his head slightly. He still looked white and sick. Villiers. Pulled out a drawer in the bamboo table, and showed Austin a long coil of cord, hard and new, and at one end was a running noose. It is the best hempen cord," said Villiers, "just as it used to be made for the old trade." The man told me, "Not an inch of jute from end to end." Austin set his teeth hard and stared at Villiers. Growing whiter as he looked, you would not do it," he murmured at last. "You would not have blood on your hands." "My God!" he exclaimed with sudden vehemence. "You cannot mean this, Villiers, that you will make yourself a hangman?" "No, I shall offer a choice, and leave Helen Vaughan alone with this cord in a locked room for fifteen minutes." If, when we go in, it is not done, I shall call the nearest policeman. That is all. I must go now. I cannot stay here any longer. I cannot bear this. Good night. Good night, Austin. The door shut, but in a moment it was open again, and Austin stood white and ghastly in the entrance. I was forgetting, he said. That I too have something to tell. I have received a letter from Doctor Harbinger. I have received a letter from Doctor Harding of Buenos Aires. He says that he attended Merrick for the three weeks before his death. And does it say what carried him off in the prime of life? It was not fever. No, it was not fever. According to the doctor. It was an utter collapse of the whole system, probably caused by some severe shock. But he stated that the patient would tell him nothing, and that he was 
consequently at some disadvantage in treating the case. Is there anything more? Yes. Dr. Harding ends his letter by saying, I think that this is all the information I can give you about your poor friend. He had not been long in Buenos Aires, and scarcely knew anyone, with the exception of a person who did not bear the best of characters, and has since left, a Mrs. Vaughan. Chapter 8 The Fragments Amongst the papers of the well-known physician, Dr. Robert Matheson, of Ashley Street, Piccadilly, who died suddenly of apoplectic seizure at the beginning of 1892, a leaf of manuscript paper was found, covered with pencil jottings. These notes were made in Latin, much abbreviated, and had evidently been made in great haste. The manuscript was only deciphered with difficulty, and some words have, up to the present time, have evaded all the efforts of the expert employed. The date, 25th July, 1888, is written on the right-hand corner of the manuscript. The following is a translation of Dr. Matheson's manuscript. Whether science would benefit by these brief notes if they could be published, I do not know, but rather doubt. But certainly I shall never take the responsibility of publishing or divulging one word of what is here written, not only on account of my oath given freely to those two persons who were present, but also because the details are too abominable. It is probable that, upon mature consideration, and after weighing the good and evil, I shall one day destroy this paper, or at least leave it under seal to my friend D, trusting in his discretion to use it or to burn it as he may think fit. As was befitting, I did all that my knowledge suggested, to make sure I was suffering under no delusion. At first astounded, I could hardly think, but in a minute's time I was sure that my pulse was steady and regular, and that I was in my real and true senses. I then fixed my eyes quietly on what was before me. Though horror and revolting nausea rose up within me, and an odour of corruption choked my breath, I remained firm. I was then privileged, or accursed, I dare not say which, to see that which was on the bed, lying there black like ink, transformed before my eyes. The skin and the flesh and the muscles and the bones and the firm structure of the human body that I had thought to be unchangeable and permanent as adamant began to melt and dissolve. I know that the body may be separated into its elements by external agencies, but I should have refused to believe what I saw. For here there was some internal force, of which I knew nothing, 
that caused dissolution and change. Here, too, was all the work by which man had been made repeated before my eyes. I saw the form waver from sex to sex, dividing itself from itself, and then again reunited. Then I saw the body descend to the beasts whence it ascended, and that which was on the heights go down to the depths, even to the abyss of all being. The principle of life which makes organism always remained, while the outward form changed. The light within the room had turned to blackness, not the darkness of night, in which objects are seen dimly, for I could see clearly and without difficulty. But it was the negation of light. Objects were presented to my eyes, if I may say so, without any medium, in such a manner that if there had been a prism in the room, I should have seen no colours represented in it. I watched, and at last I saw nothing but a substance as jelly. Then the ladder was ascended again. Here the manuscript is illegible. For one instance I saw a form, shaped in dimness before me, which I will not farther describe. But the symbol of this form may be seen in ancient sculptures, and in paintings which survived beneath the lava, too foul to be spoken of. As a horrible and unspeakable shape, neither man nor beast was changed into human form, there came finally death. I who saw all this, not without great horror and loathing of soul, here write my name, declaring that all I have set on this paper be true. Robert Matheson, Medical Doctor Such, Raymond, is the story of what I know and what I have seen. The burden of it was too heavy for me to bear alone, yet I could tell it to none but you. Villiers, who was with me at the last, knows nothing of the awful secret of the wood, of how what we both saw die lay upon the smooth sweet turf amidst the summer flowers, half in sun, half in shadow, holding the girl Rachel's hand, called and summoned those companions, and shaped in solid form upon the earth we tread upon, the horror which we can but hint at, which we can only name under a figure. I could not tell Villiers of this, nor of that resemblance which struck me with a blow upon my heart when I saw the portrait, which filled the cup of terror at the end. What this can mean I cannot guess. I know that what I saw perish was not Mary, Yet in the last agony Mary's eyes looked into mine. Whether there can be any one who can show the last link in this chain of awful mystery, I do not know. But if there be any one who can do this, 
You, Raymond, are the man. And if you know the secret, it rests with you to tell it, or not, as you please. I am writing this letter to you immediately on my getting back to town. I have been in the country for the past few days. Perhaps you may be able to guess in which part. While the horror and wonder of London was at its height, for Mrs. Beaumont, as I have told you, was well known in society, I wrote to my friend Dr. Phillips, giving him some brief outline, or rather hint, of what had happened, and asking him to tell me the name of the village where the events he had related to me occurred. He gave me the name, and he said it with less hesitation, because Rachel's father and mother were dead, and the rest of the family had gone to a relative in the state of Washington six months before. The parents, he said, had undoubtedly died of grief and horror caused by the terrible death of their daughter, and by what had gone before that death. On the evening of the day which I received Philip's letter, I was at Kermion, and standing beneath the mouldering Roman walls, white with the winters of seventeen hundred years. I looked over the meadow where once stood the older temple of the god of the deeps, and saw a house gleaming in the sunlight. It was the house where Helen had lived. I stayed at Kermeon for several days. The people of the place I found knew little and had guessed less. Those whom I spoke to on the matter seemed surprised that an antiquarian, as I professed myself to be, should trouble about a village tragedy, of which they gave a very commonplace version, and, as you may imagine, I told nothing of what I knew. Most of my time was spent in the great wood that rises just above the village, and climbs the hillside, and goes down to the river in the valley. Such another long, lovely valley, Raymond, as that on which we looked one summer night, walking to and fro before your house. For many an hour I strayed through the maze of the forest, turning to the right and now to the left, pacing slowly down long alleys of undergrowth, shadowy and chill, even under the midday sun, and halting beneath great oaks, lying on the short turf of a clearing, where the faint sweet scent of wild roses came to me on the wind, and mixed with the heavy perfume of the elder, whose mingled odour is like the odour of the room of the dead, a vapour of incense and corruption. I stood on the edges of the wood, gazing at all the pomp and procession of the foxgloves, towering amidst the bracken and shining red in the broad sunshine, and beyond them, into deep thickets of close undergrowth, where springs boil up from the rock and nourish the water-weeds, dank and evil. But in all my wanderings I avoided one part of the wood, it was not till yesterday 
that I climbed to the summit of the hill, and stood upon the ancient Roman road that threads the highest ridge of the wood. Here they had walked, Helen and Rachel, along this quiet causeway, upon the pavement of green turf, shut in on either side by high banks of red earth and tall hedges of shining beech. And here I followed their steps, looking out now and again through partings in the boughs, and seeing on one side the sweep of the wood stretching far to the right and left, and sinking into the broad level, and beyond the yellow sea and the land over the sea. On the other side was the valley and the river, and hill following hill, as wave on wave, and wood and meadow and cornfield and white houses gleaming, and a great wall of a mountain, and far blue peaks in the north. So at least I came to the place. The track went up a gentle slope, and widened out into an open space, with a wall of thick undergrowth about it, and then, narrowing again, passed into the distance and the faint blue mist of summer heat. And into this pleasant summer glade, Rachel passed a girl, and left it, who can say what? I did not stay long there. In a small town near Kermeon is a museum, containing for the most part Roman remains that have been found in the neighbourhood at various times. On the day of my arrival in Kermeon, I walked over to the town in question and took the opportunity of inspecting the museum. After I had seen most of the sculptured stones, coffins, rings, coins, and fragments of tessellated pavement which the place contains, I was shown a small square pillar of white stone, which had been recently discovered in the wood of which I have been speaking. And, as I found on inquiry, in that open space where the Roman road broadens out. On one side of the pillar was an inscription, of which I took a note. Some of the letters have been defaced, but I do not think there can be any doubt as to those which I supply. The inscription is as follows. Devom nodente, Flavius senilsit posit. Proter nuptia, quays vidit subumbra. To the great god Nodens, the god of the deep or the abyss, Flavius Sensilis has erected this pillar on account of the marriage which he saw beneath the shade. The custodian of the museum informed me that local antiquaries were much puzzled, not by the inscription, or by any difficulty in translating it, but as to the circumstance or rite to which allusion 
is made. And now, my dear Clark, as to what to tell you about Helen Vaughan, whom you say you saw die under circumstances of the utmost and most incredible horror. I was interested in your account, but a good deal, nay all, of what you have told me, I knew already. I can understand the strange likeness you remarked in both the portrait and the actual face. You have seen Helen's mother. You remember that still summer night so many years ago, when I talked to you of the world beyond the shadows and of the god Pan? You remember Mary. She was the mother of Helen Vaughan, who was born nine months after that night. Mary never recovered her reason. She lay, as you saw her, all the while upon her bed, and a few days after the child was born, she died. I fancy that just at the last she knew me. I was standing by the bed, and the old look came into her eyes for a second. And then she shuddered and groaned and died. It was an ill work I did that night when you were present. I broke open the door of the house of life, without knowing or caring what might pass forth or enter in. I recollect your telling me at the time, sharply enough, and rightly too, in one sense, that I had ruined the reason of a human being by a foolish experiment, based on an absurd theory. You did well to blame me, but my theory was not all absurdity. What I said Mary would see, she saw. But I forgot that no human eyes can look upon a sight with impunity. And I forgot, just as I have said, that when the house of life is thus thrown open, there may enter in that for which we have no name, and human flesh may become the veil of a horror one dare not express. I played with energies which I did not understand. You have seen the ending of it. Helen Vaughan did well to bind the cord about her neck and die, though the death was horrible. The blackened face, the hideous form upon the bed, changing and melting before your eyes from woman to man, from man to beast, and from beast to worse than beast. All the strange horror that you witness surprises me but little. What you say the doctor whom you sent for saw and shuddered at, I noticed a long time ago. I knew what I had done the moment the child was born, and when it was scarcely five years old, I surprised it, not once or twice, but several times, with a playmate. You may guess of what kind. It was for me a constant and incarnate horror, and after a few years I felt I could bear it no more. 
and I sent Helen Vaughan away. Now you know what frightened the boy in the wood. The rest of the strange story, and all else that you tell me, as discovered by your friend, I have contrived to learn from time to time, almost to the last chapter. And now Helen is with her companions. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Evan. Hi, I'm Will. Hi, I'm Jewett. And we're going to talk about The Great God Pan by Arthur Mackin. Uh, there's some question as how to pronounce his name, but just say Mackin, it's fine. Um, he won't get upset. Uh, this is first published as a, uh, a sort of a short story in a magazine called The Whirlwind, Whirlwind in 1890, and then was expanded and republished in a book called The Great God Pan um, and The Inmost Light. If you open up the book, it says The Great God Pan on the cover. It also says And the Inmost Light on the inside. Inmost Light is a separate story, unconnected. It's just packed together to make it book length. Both of them are up on the website. People can download it. Presumably, they've all heard the audiobook right before listening to us talk about this pretty amazing and uh, a little bit confusing Horror story? It is confusing. It, it, isn't it just the Jeffrey Epstein of, like, 1890s? <laughs> oh, well, like, like more messed uh, up than Jeffrey Epstein. Is it? Yeah. I think it's as messed no, I up. Think... I just wonder no. if it's less messed up, it's just because it's Victorians experiencing it that they... It definitely wasn't what I thought this, It wasn't what I thought it was about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did like, you I think it was, was about? I thought I was getting something like, um, like the, not really something, I, I thought I was getting some more fantasy story than what I, than what it was. It's a, it's a science fiction horror, basically, right? Not yeah, a fantasy. Yeah, I thought it was more like a science fiction fantasy story when I first started to read it. No, I, I mean science fiction with a capital S on science. Like the the for opening chapter, the guy's a mad scientist, right? Yeah, I thought it. Yeah, I guess I thought it was more like fantasy stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when you hear the great god Pan, you think it's going to be like a fantasy story. And it's it's a metaphor. Cool. It's a symbol. Yeah, it's a metaphor. Yeah, like I didn't. You know, I mean, when I picked it up, I thought like this was going to be like something like a. You know, more like Hillboy or something. It's not, <laughs> not even like that. It's all. much more like Alan Moore, I think, than yeah. Hellboy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, I, 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 if he doesn't do it as a comic, I, I don't think I'll read it because it'll be too long. Jerusalem, etc. But if he yeah. did it as a comic, I would totally read it. The, his response to it, because it's pretty, it's, I think it's pretty timely given how it's about uh, abusive underage girls, um, and then the consequences, you know, people getting suicided, <laughs> uh, not getting prosecuted for it, <laughs> and it's a public scandal, but um, it's also a conspiracy. Um, it, it, I think it is a very much a direct response to uh, to 
the strange case of Dr. Jekyll, or just strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, and it, well, I mean, it comes out a couple of years after. Um, and that is, it's basically the same thing, but I think yeah. he, he basically, he doesn't, he, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson really pulls his punches compared to, I think, what Mackin's doing here. Mackin is much more, uh, like, like if you look at what actually happens in Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, he tramples a boy. It's kind of an accident, but he also kinds of appreciates it. Um, and it's a public thing. And then there's a shame associated with it. And then there's an investigation. And it turns out that one character is actually the other character. And it's actually a murder mystery, or at least it's a mystery. The time everybody knows the secret of the story now, right? Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are the same person. But when you're reading it at the time, you don't know that. Um, it was like a, it was one of those state secrets. You, uh, you gotta read it and then, then you make the big discovery and like, oh, it's a science fiction story, right? Like that. And that's what we have here with the way this book is structured. And then it's also, you know, it's familiar to us as well because this is the structure Dracula uses. Um, and Dracula comes after this. I think he's, Stoker's picked this up and said, fuck yeah, I'm running with this. So it, but, but but even but even more than Dracula, this story has this. I mean, I was trying to map out in my brain as I was listening to this the different the different layers as we go down and up through time and through people telling other stories of that are all centered around this. It's, so it's a lot more complicated than even Dracula. Dracula is a is a linear narrative of of, of letters and other materials, whereas this this, this is linear as well. It, it's well, it's linear, but well, it jumps Dr- around. Dracula has the benefit of being like a, a singular novel. I mean, um, this this is actually a fix up, right? Like there were two separate, sh- yeah, there were two separate short stories. Um, I only know about the first one. I don't know about yeah, the second. Yeah, hold on, one. it's in the it's in the Wikipedia article. Let's. Um, I did not know that. That changes my perception of this. Yeah, yeah. So there were there were two unrelated short stories, and it was only after he had uh, written both of them he realized they were connected. Okay. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, so, uh, I had to listen to this twice cause I really couldn't At follow least. it the, fir- the first time through. Uh, well, it's, your, it's disconnected. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think that's, uh, because it, it got it started as two different narratives and I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out where, well, we'll let you look for that. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll look for that. Jew- Jewett, you, back. you read, um, strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyder. You just know all about it. Oh, no, I've read that book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty short, right? It's it's a similar yeah, length to this. Yeah. Um. Well, did you get that vibe while reading it? Yeah, the mad scientist vibe definitely. Uh, I mean, it, he's a, instead of applying it to a an, a girl, right? He's applying it to himself. He's exper- It's a much more ethical book. It's a much more pleasant book. <laughs> yeah. This is pretty fucking evil book. This is Jeffrey Epstein's sort of evil island, and then. It, it's sort of Jolene Maxwell or whatever her name is, um, sort of revenge. And like who, the people who get hurt in this story are like, uh, I don't know, Prince Andrew. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's still surprising that this book was really written, right? When it was written. I mean, it, it is, this book was supposed, it, it kind of like, I, I know this book was kind of a, a minorly big deal in England yeah. when it was wrote. It, 
it still is in some ways even though there's been other books written like it, it's still kind of a shocking book to even read right mm. now I mean, it's, yeah it's, especially then i couldn't imagine reading it then when you're like i mean it was you know I just couldn't imagine what the mindset of reading this book was like. I, I couldn't believe that they wouldn't want him committed. Uh, well, <laughs> I want to point out that Mr. Jamoon has done a show on this separately. Um, it's on, I think it's Tumagoria episode 7. It's from 2015, so it's way before all the Jeffrey Epstein stuff is sort of in the public mind. I, but I guess the, he the points, Jeffrey, Epstein, oh, Jeffrey Epstein of the time was with Alistair. He was friends with Alistair Crowley, yes, right? So yes, Crowley was huge. So, I mean, I guess Crowley was doing all of his weird stuff, so this book kind of fit in more with Aleister Crowley's England, you know? At yeah. Least, you know. So, um, one of the points that he made in that show is that our perceptions of what the Victorians were really like is very broken. Um, there's, They were just as much people as we are uh, in that they're interested in sex and they're interested in nude pictures and they're interested in... I don't know, drugs. Um, their laws were slightly different. So, like, you know, Oscar Wilde's wonderful. Everybody knows he's gay. But if if you catch him in the act and some powerful person in that society, his son is getting fucked by Oscar Wilde, that's not good. Not good for Oscar Wilde. And that's what happened, right? Right, yeah, because it's kind of weird because they damn Oscar Wild, but yet Aleister Crowley kind of hung out with celebrities and stuff. <laughs> it, it, well, you know, yeah. uh, getting on that private plane with Clinton and <laughs> going to yeah, the well, sex just, island, um, you know, it hasn't hurt him yet. Uh, it probably won't because he's that powerful. But the thing is, is you know, it, the guy whose kid he was having sex with was a lord, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's he, you know, Oscar Wilde was not. He's he's from a certain class, but he, you know, and and also the laws were the laws, right? So, yeah. another way to go would to have have him just suicided in prison, which you know it sounded like he wanted to have happen to him. If you read his uh, ball- what is Ballad of Reading Jail or whatever it's called, it's really fucking horrible, right? It, that, prison was really fucking bad back then, and. Probably really fucking bad now too, but uh, it's interesting to think about uh, this book in terms of you know we don't have the internet back then we have lots of tech but we don't have the ability to do research and one of the things we can do now is we can type into Google um, Pan and if we you know do statue you can see the statue that is in those drawings that we're not allowed to see in the book, right? There's so many, in this book, there's so many times where somebody whispers in somebody's ear or we're shown a page, but we don't actually get to see it. And that is the effect of, like, the horror that totally affects Lovecraft and makes him start madly writing stories that are sort of like this. And that's why he praised it so much. That's why it's sort of overpraised, right? is because Lovecraft can't believe how amazing this is. This is what I was thinking. From Beyond is basically this story. If you think about it. Well, Dunwich Horror, too. Dunwich Horror, absolutely, especially with the, you know, the Mary and that stuff. But, like, just yeah. the uh, the pocket version of this is From Beyond. There's a mad scientist. He invites a guy over. There's no girl. And he says, have a seat. <laughs> 
Um, he turns on the machine and why are all the, these clothes missing all over the house? Where are your servants? How come you're going so crazy? And he says, well, I've, I've found a way to literally fuck with stuff inside your skull. Um, I, I, I thought at first that, um, our doctor, what's his name? Raymond? Is that his name? Yeah. Dr. Raymond was, um, like he's cutting the corpus callosum or something. He makes it sound like it's just very minor brain surgery, which is pretty funny because <laughs> very minor brain surgery. I guess you, those things can go together, right? <laughs> very minor brain surgery back in, you know, 1890s. No uh, penicillin. Okay, whatever. Uh, cut the corpus callosum and things, you know, you'll start seeing things. It's just the pineal gland is the difference in, in, uh, from beyond, but the things there, that notice you and you witness, right? It's like, it, it's very much what Lovecraft's talking about in a lot of his fiction. Even the tomb has that, like with all the pa- the penisky and uh, the, the nymphs and all sorts of stuff that this kid is seeing. And then those things go away. Mackin is very, it, y'all read more of his stuff than this? Not directly. No? Will, I think you must have heard some for, uh, if you're listening to lots of reading short and deep, right? I haven't, I haven't gotten into any of his stuff on there, although, uh, I I see it on the list. Um, I first found out about this guy, um, from that, uh, history book we read. Um, trying to remember the name of it right now. Mm. Uh, it was the one about how, like, horror emerged from the Great War or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a chapter Wasteland. in that book cool. on the Bowman. Right. Oh, yeah. So, um, uh, thinking about like how to compare this guy Mackin, if you haven't read a lot of his stuff, he's kind of like a cons- he's kind of like Alex Jones, except as an author, because um, he's talking about all sorts of weird, wild conspiracy stuff, and he's often right. Um, but, but it's sort of in the same way it gets out of, you know, you ever heard of Pizzagate? I'm sure you've heard the words. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so if you look into what's going on in Pizzagate, it's kind of interesting because it's not in- as insane as it sounds. There's some guy went downstairs into a actual pizza restaurant and, well, he thought he was convinced that there was a child sex trafficking going on there. And, you know, he's off his rocker a bit. <laughs> goes in shooting people. You have to be a little bit, right? Um, but the thing is, is if you trace it back, um, it's, it's to do with Hillary Clinton and, you know, this is all back in 2016, right? And they talk about it as be- being debunked and stuff like that. But really, it, there is like the name Clinton is associated with, with, um, a pedophile ring, but it's a different Clinton. And, you know, she was associated with New York. So, like, th- there is a kind of uh, game of telephone going on, right? And and then, you know, people hype things up and they focus on the wrong things. And instead of being focused on the actual Clinton who's doing uh, pedophilia, <laughs> um, and we're not talking about Bill, we're talking about an, a- 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 an unrelated person, right? Um, they They take that and they run it into like a huge news story, right? That's what happened with Mackin's story um, called The Bowman. 
it was it, he wrote a fiction piece it was published in the newspaper and then people started republishing it without his permission changing the details um and and saying it was true and providing witnesses and it was it was exactly what you think of when you think of QAnon and 4chan and all that stuff it's exactly the same thing that happened there was tons of that during world war 1 including uh phrases that come down Today, there's a phrase called having snow on your boots. You know about this phrase? Snow on your boots? Yeah, he has snow on his boots. It means he's a Russian. Um, so we've got the, you know, people saying how many rubles is Putin paying? <laughs> sort of ridiculous stuff going on. And, you know, the Russians are interfering with the elections and blah, blah, blah. Like it, 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 that kind of conspiracy stuff is right from World War One. They said that the, there was this theory and it's associated with Mackin, but he was not largely responsible for it. He just points to it in, in, uh, responses to the Bowman, um, that there was a rumor that became a certainty that everybody knew about that Russian troops were being landed in Scotland and coming down by train to London and they were on their way here now. This is actually not in terms of like invading, but rather to support the Western Front, right? At the time in the war, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's under censorship. And they were on their way here now. They still had snow on their boots, right? That's the phrase. And they're using that phrase right up into the seventies. It sort of lost its cachet. Most people don't know about it anymore. But these sort of cultural legacies of like weird, wacky conspiracy theories um, that are based in fiction are persistent. And Mackin is sort of associated with that. So we can see that in this story, right? There's there's a rumor that this person is that person and that there's a, a a house and a woman who is associated with ill repute, um, but she has a public face that's very, um, I don't know, reputable. And that yet someone came, was coming out of her house at two o'clock in the morning, right? Which suggests a, a bad relationship, right? Just like the same way that finding uh, Bill Clinton on a on Jeffrey Epstein's plane over and over again is a problem. It's a it's an association we think is a problem. So I have a I have a comment on yeah, the Epstein stuff, mm-hmm. but I, I also have a I found the part of the Wikipedia article where it explains how it's a fix up, so I'm mm-hmm. just gonna read that. Yeah, go for it. Um, uh, what is now the first chapter of the novella was published in 1890 in a magazine called The Whirlwind, mm-hmm. while that while what is now the third chapter of the book was published in the same magazine the following year as a standalone story uh, called The City of Resurrections. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Machen, or however you say his name, Macon, uh, only viewed the two works as connected after they were finished. Uh, once he decided the two stories were connected, uh, he wrote the rest of The Great God Pan in a single evening, save for its final chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, it's like, it, it's the same effect as when I read my student's Emily story. I um, said, so there's something missing here, and then I add in the skeleton, and now the backstory is explained, right? It, it's, it's a very easy thing to, if you think of that first chapter, it opens and it closes, and there is a kind of resolution, but it's a very unsatisfactory resolution, right? 
she's dead or she's <laughs> yeah. she's she's I, no I, I, longer uh, a being like we we want her to be a human being she's i mean i love I, I i love thinking about when that opening chapter is happening i'm like i thought the first thing is that the girl is actually belongs to the witness right but actually it's yeah. the other way around so what the hell's the guy doing there to witness therefore he's there to witness it that's what he's there for to witness her saying yeah it's okay even though she's fucking 12 years old or whatever, even yeah, though... The, the consent problem. Uh, it, but it's not even informed consent, right? It's just consent yeah. to whatever, I don't know. You're my boss, yeah. you bought me. Yeah, th- yeah. That, that, was, that was really queasy. It's like... Right. Uh, it's it's uh, problematic. <laughs> uh, uh, there, there's a line from that scene I want to read, and then I have, uh, I think, what could be kind of an epigraph to what's going on here. Um... So this is uh, this is Doctor Raymond talking, um, and uh, the uh, the guy who's just there to witness asks him, "Are you like worried? You know, like that something very bad could happen here?" Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, "No, I think not. Even if the worst happened, as you know, I rescued Mary from the gutter and from almost certain starvation when she was a child. I think her life is mine. Right. Use as I see fit. Come, it's getting late. We had better go on." Um, so like that's uh you know no, he's evil. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I mean there's a lot going on there. Um and so the epigraph I want to offer to this is like uh it's a tweet from yesterday from someone I don't know at s disorganizing whose display name is going aquatic ape shit. <laughs> and uh the tweet is actually a, a joke on Frankenstein, but I think it re- really works here. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> Capital is actually the narrator of the book, not its villain. Right. The proletariat is Capital's monster. Mm, yeah, I saw that tweet. That was a good tweet. Yeah, I think that's kind of what's going on here. So um, uh, they take this, uh, you know, like poor child from the street, uh, do this horrible uh, thing to her, and it creates, uh, you know, this like horrible monster we have to put down. Yeah. And who are all the people that yeah. she's killing? It's like the Epstein folks. Yes. It's the bourgeoisie. Yeah, this... I've seen this interpretation of of Capital before. Uh, My favorite is the Many-Headed Hydra, which is... It's about 20 years old now, but it's a wonderful history of the Atlantic, right? And the Hydra metaphor, the Hercules metaphor, is... I think you get it from... It's written by two guys. I think he gets it from Bacon, who talked about the need for the state to be Hercules mm. putting down the many headed Hydra, which was made up of like slaves and commoners and sailors, pirates, you know, religious dissenters, all these different, you know, threatening forces that were kind of the same kind of things that would have freaked out Lovecraft, right? These underground kind of currents of of knowledge and, and suspicious people. Yeah, you mentioned Weird that ideas. in the horror of uh, Red Hook show as well, that book. Yeah. Um, which I was also thinking about. Um, it's kind of similar. Yeah. There's all, there's all, yeah. it's really pervasive in Lovecraft, this kind of storytelling. And, uh, there's so many great books from this period that really need more attention. The one I'm thinking of is, uh, like that, that are of this length and are of this quality. Although I think the yeah, one I'm thinking of is even better is the Barry Payne book we did. Do you remember that one, Paul? Yeah, uh, the title. The Undying Thing. Yes. Maybe, yeah, you were on that. 
Yes, it was. Um, so that that one is it's uh, around the same period, like 1901, and it's it's a basically it's the same plot and premise as well. It's a base same premise as the Hound of the Baskervilles, and they're published simultaneously. So that's a really weird thing, but. Um, it's a it's a werewolf story. It's a cursed lineage story, um, in the same way that the Hound of the Baskervilles is. Except in that case, uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles, it's all like um, false, right? There is no right. There's curse. no supernatural element. Whereas in the Undying Thing, it's real, um, and it's this veil beyond the uh, these yellow books um, that are. Me- oh, you guys probably didn't see that I. I found a, bi- a critical biography of of uh, Mackin, and I started reading it. Did I send it to anybody? Y- y- I saw where you tweeted it out, but I, I haven't read it. It's really it's it's quite interesting. The guy who wrote it is named William Francis Geckle, G G E K L E, and it's 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 not an insubstantial book. It's two hundred thirty pages. Um, I read the first fifty, or I had the audiobook of it read to me on archive.org while I was processing it. And he was so passionate about, about Mackin in a way that I'm not, I appreciate Mackin. I think he's really interesting, but he was like, Oh my God, this guy's amazing. And I guess you have to be, if you're going to write a big book in 1949 about a guy who's been dead for 50 years, right? Or maybe not 50 years, but whatever. In any case, um, he, he talks about, Mackin being associated with, with so much of this, um, what I would say, sort of, yeah, Aleister Crowley, Alex Jones, um, stuff, but not, be, not being evil, right? He's just, he's just associated in the same way that, um, Conan Doyle's associated with fairies. He's, if, except Conan Doyle believes it, whereas Mackin is interested in it, in a certain sense. And that, that, um. Because he comes at it so elliptically. He does. And it, it, he actually comes at it through his childhood. So he's Welsh, right? And he moves to London, um, after, you know, getting an education and immediately goes to work, um, in publishing, um, writing stuff and editing stuff and then becomes a sort of like a, a star in that field, in the publishing field. Um, and, the story, you know, sort of culminates in his greatest success of this, the Bowman, which is not a success that he really, you know, thinks is worthy of any attention because it's a, a story that took, took bottom up support rather than, you know, government propaganda. It was, it was like the people want this to be true. It's a QAnon style story, right? Like, should, should we stop for a moment and explain sh- the plot of the Bowman? Yeah, go for it. It's um, it's pretty simple story. Yeah, it's a pretty simple story. So uh, barely a story, really. It, it, the, it's a uh, it's just an anecdote from World War One. Uh, the uh, English soldiers, or I guess the British soldiers on the Western Front, uh, you know, they're under attack by the Germans, and uh, here come the ghosts of the like Agincourt bowmen who, uh, 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 you know, fought bravely against the French at the end of the Hundred Years' War. Is that the correct mm-hmm. history? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that that's basically it. It's a story about like, you know, the legacy supernatural of, uh, intervention in yeah, in a it, war, it, showing it that the positive, British are right. Of the, 
Yeah, the the project of the modern British state. As God is on our side. Project that was going on back then. Right, and this is nineteen. It's published in nineteen fourteen, and they had just the United uh, the United States, the UK, had just suffered a great defeat, like a whole bunch of people killed. Right, eighty. The retreat of the eighty thousand. It starts with. It was during the retreat of the eighty thousand, and the authority of the censorship is sufficient excuse for not being more explicit. So he's you playing with this actual tropes. Of, you know, they're trying to suppress it. They're not trying to hide the truth from us, which was literally the case, right? Un- under the censorship in the UK, you can't publish the stats on how many people are getting ground up in the meat grinder because that's going to hurt recruitment. <laughs> right? So he says, on this dreadful day, then, with 300,000 men in arms, with all their artillery swelled like a flood against the little English company, there was at one point above all other points in our battle line, that was, for a time, in awful danger, not merely a defeat, but an utter annihilation. And so there's this terrible thing that's about to happen, right? And then there's these witnesses that are in the soldiers uh, saying what's going to happen. And then it's sort of a reminiscence there. And then the, the bowmen come. And it was like, oh, even the Germans were so upset, right? And it it it, it totally... Is, is like within six months, it's out of his hands. Copyright doesn't matter anymore. Um, he's trying to like, come on, everybody. This is just you a fiction story I wrote. It. it doesn't say fiction when it's in a, its original publication, right? It's just in the newspaper. It says by Arthur Mackin. He also wrote, uh, you know, nonfiction that was in the newspapers. So it's possible, but people don't care. They take the story and run with it. And, it is such that it's, you know, if you look around hard enough, you will find people who still believe that it actually happened. And it, it gets transferred into the Second World War in different places, and in between, it's it's a legend, right? It's huge. The thing is, is that's not what Mackin should be known for in terms of fiction. It's sort of like that was one of his shittiest stories. He thinks so. <laughs> And it's not a, it's a, it's really an anecdote more than anything else. It's like a sort of a, 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 a fantasia. But what he, he is mostly about is actually a childhood and reminiscence, um, which is what Lovecraft's largely about too. Um, and there's two stories, uh, other that I'll mention. One is called The Lost Club. This also was republished in Weird Tales, just like The Bowman. Um, and that one is about, the secret club in London, you know, they, there were a club society. It's mentioned in, I think it's mentioned in this story, right? But everybody knows about, you know, Sherlock Holmes, his brother, and they go to the club and they live at the club. And right. If you're a man, uh, who's married and you're having trouble with your wife, you just go sleep at your club. Um, and the club would be a gentleman's club, which means only women of the evening are allowed to go in there. Right. No wives. Um, and it's all hush hush. And there's one club called the Hellfire Club. If everybody's in comics is familiar with that from, uh, X-Men, right? Right. But, but, they, but they sold that from a real Hellfire Club in the 18th and 19th century. They, they did. And this, I, I actually think he stole it from the Avengers, the, the, the TV show. They, they, <laughs> well, they stole it. From, they stole yeah. No, there's a real yeah. Hellfire Club though as well. But, but here in this story, it's the Colton Club. Yes. Um, in any case, there's a story called The Lost Club, and it's about two dudes who, uh, one day to get out of the rain, 
go to a club and uh, one invites the other in there. And then when he witnesses what goes on in there, he flees from it. And later when he goes back to try and find it, it's not there. It's the Lost Club. It's 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 an interesting story. It sort of fits with the with the um, the way we think of this story's story being told. Um, there's another one he's got called the Cozy Room, um, which is is a very beautiful to read. In fact, um, and it's about this guy who's he seems to really appreciate his room, and at the end of the story you realize why he appreciates it so much, even though it's so minor as it is, is because. Um, he's being executed. He's in the death chamber, right? The next morning he's going to be executed. And it's got a nice drawing on the wall, the bars on the window, those don't matter. Um, and it's like that fear of being hung that we see in this story very obliquely, very indirectly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's crazy. And Mr. Jim Moon, um, and I talked, I, Paul, were you on out of the earth show? Yes. Yeah. So that one is very similar to this in tone and description. So this is a, another kind of one that took off as a rumor during world war two or world war one. And basically it's about a guy who goes on vacation in Wales, uh, near where Arthur's uh, castle is. And uh, there's rumors of uh, the reason he's on vacation there is because his boss from London sends him there. Basically, the narrator is Mackin. Um, and he says um, it even starts. It's so weird. It, it references the Bowman, right? I'll just read this from the second paragraph here. Yet it was also entirely innocent, nay, casual on my part, a poor linnet of prose I did but perform in my indifferent piping in the evening news because I wanted to do so, because I felt that the story of the bowman ought to be told. An inventor of fantasies is a poor creature, heaven knows, when all the world is at war. So he's at, he's at war, he's sent off to the countryside for his nerves or whatever, and he's also there to investigate a kind of a weird rumor of queer children. Um, and sort of the evil children that are in the countryside. And the way it it plays out, you're not really sure what's going on, but basically um, the war has turned the country evil and the people don't know it. They just talk about these queer children that are evil and they come out of the earth. There's no explaining where it comes from. It's very subtle, very much like this, that there's a reality behind the veil, that phrase that's used in this book. Very, very interesting stuff. He's very subtle. And I think that that's what Lovecraft is picking up. He's saying, yes, exactly this, except the gods are not so much uh, Pan and such, but rather they're, there's folk beliefs. This is what Evan's always talking about with the witch, the witch book that... Uh, Murray. Murray. Murray, right. Which, what's it called? What's the name witch of that cults book? Witch Cults of... Witch Cults of Europe or something. Right. The Witch Cult of Europe. I can just say a little bit about that. Sure, go for I it. Mean, what, what's important is like why Lovecraft was interested in this book, it seems. And if you read his letters, you know he was really into this book. And he recommended it a lot. Mm-hmm. More than I think in any other fi- nonfiction book that I came across in those letters. Um, 
it basically posits that witches were real. Because I, I think, and maybe that wasn't an uncommon interpretation at the time, because now historians tend to say, oh, this was the Reformation and paranoia about true belief, or it was sexism, misogyny, you know, you know, kind of about the establishment of patriarchy in the modern era, you know, these different interpretations of the modern state being formed, right, with the Inquisition and all this. And this is kind of what's been... And so this idea that the witches were a real kind of subculture, you know, it's not as prominent in the historiography anymore. But Murray it thought this was yeah. real. Murray thought this was a real subculture, and it, the witch not not that magic was real necessarily, but that peasant people did magic, right? They cast spells, or whatever, right? They actually kind of had their Christian belief, and they added on to it this kind of superstition, and. That's not that hard to imagine as being real, for me anyways. I mean, plenty of Christians embrace all sorts of other heterodox beliefs, don't they? Mm -hmm. Crystals or psychic powers or believe in ghosts or something, right? And then that's the history of Christianity in general. I mean, absorbing lots of foreign pagan gods into sainthood. So, yeah. And so what kind of Lovecraft thought was wild about this was, I mean, that kind of matches what he's writing about, right? Which is these occult traditions that are sort of hidden and underground and, and especially for Lovecraft networked. And anyways, so yeah, I think I that mean, like, like, like calls is like Cthulhu and the, the cults in Louisiana. The, the, yeah. The red hook has this red hook I mean, has it. I, the yeah. festival, whatever, all these stories. I mean, I mean even like case of Charles Dexter Ward uh, even in the Dunwich Horror, I mean, the Watleys got these ideas and books from somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's not entirely clear where they got them from, but it's it's kind of in it's in the earth, it's in the sea. There's I, I, there there's there's tendrils of yeah. that's the real tentacle. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the real that's the real tentacle. That, the real that, that, tentacle that, is these networks of vernacular knowledge that that that, that persist of, over time. Yeah, and I don't think, yeah, I don't think that's really accepted anymore. But there was there was a time where so like, oh yeah, there's a. Condi- there's I a think it's 100 percent true, back. Paul. But I think which are real. I, 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 I do too. But think I'm, of, I'm not. I'm not sure. There, there's like, I mean, the continuous tradition. I think these things get reinvented and redeveloped. And oh, obviously, yeah, I totally. Rather agree. than but, just like 1500 years of this, I don't think that's true. But yeah, not as like a not as a clear. Well, uh, I, I, I appreciate I, that way, I, I, but if you're a peasant in 1400 France or somewhere, and you're right, illiterate, you got yeah, you're gonna. First of all, you're not even clear on what to believe. You go to church, you're speaking Latin. They, they're they're pictures yeah, yeah, they yeah, point and, to, and, but and, and, and you're illiterate. Service yeah. back then was not even for the people who were there. They were for the priests themselves. I mean, they they would sometimes just do it behind screens and just do it, and you just listened. If and you you're could, also going to your bet. You are on tiptoes and water up to your neck, right? That's what being a peasant in those days were. A bad harvest, an army comes through. A black death. There's no refrigerators, there's no canned food. You're done, right? Like, every, your, your life is done, right? And so you had your bets, right? So you put, it could just be the, shoe, the horseshoe on the door or the charm or whatever. But you're going to embrace whatever folklore is out there. That's what I think. That's uh, th- so. I wanted to point out that this is this sort of starts with with the Brothers Grimm, basically 
going around the countryside, listening to these people talk, and then writing down and solidifying in, you know, actual text what people were actually telling each other. And people have studied this. There's like this weird Arn Thompson index thing to tell you how one folk story is connected to another folk story or what type of story one is. You know, like Cinderella, we all know it. Uh, Ashenputl is another name for it, right? Um, there's, but there's many, many, many stories that are connected in at least some aspects to that. What I noticed over and over again in these stories that I've been reading lately, uh, Classics Illustrated Junior, is that so many of the characters suffer from face blindness. Like, it's a metaphor. It's a symbol, right? So this guy dances with Cinderella over a course of three nights, usually, rather than the one night. Um, three is we, a magic number. It, it is. Um, and then he, there's the three sisters, right? The stepsisters. And um, he tries, uh, he has to go all around the land to try the shoe on. He doesn't recognize the girl that he, he was going uh, dancing with for three nights. Like, <laughs> he's suffering from face blindness, but he liked her personality and can't tell her apart. Like, it's not for that. It's a, they're all like, these are lessons, right? These are knowledge being imparted and they're f- stories full of dwarves. Like what the fuck is this dwarf doing here? And why is it talking that way? Uh, it's so interesting. You know, like we know about Alibaba and the 40 thieves. Um, you know, the, what's the Aladdin story? Um, and we think that, Oh, that's in, uh, the thousand and one nights. That's only in the European version of the A Thousand One Nights. Actually, Aladdin seems to be uh, a, a European folk, tor- folk story that is just been repackaged as a. Wait, are you, are, are you sure about that? Yeah, look it up. Type in Aladdin Wikipedia, and you'll see that it was added by a European collector who thought this story would fit in there. And it's so interesting because there's a European version of it called I think it's called the. Tin sold no, it's, it's, I, I tweeted about it recently. It's, uh, uh, I'll just type, how do you spell Aladdin? A-L-L-A-D-I-N, right? Okay, you're wrong. Are you, the story was not part of the original Knights Collection, has no authentic Arabic textual source, but was incorporated into the book Le Mil de... It, um, how do you spell Aladdin? A-L-A-D-D-I-N. You're up. A-L-A-D-I-N? Okay, you know, I, I, I did not know that. that the, I need the spelling again. A-L... A D D I N. Two D's. That's what it is. Okay. So the story that I was tweeting about um, is a Hans Christian Andersen's story um, called the Tinder. Oh yeah, that's that story is amazing. Um, it's called the the Tinderbox. You guys need to read this story. It's so cool. It's about there's these three dogs um, and the. <laughs> The art for it is amazing, too. But basically, there's a witch, and she says, you need to go into that tree to this uh, soldier um, and wraps a uh, rope around him, lowers him down into this underground world that's Aladdin's cave, essentially. She's playing the role in Aladdin that that uh, the uncle does, the fake uncle mm-hmm. in Aladdin. Um, mm-hmm. And she gives him a her apron and says, in... In this world, there are three boxes, <laughs> and the three boxes have uh, treasure in them. And on top of each of the three boxes is a dog of increasing size, 
Um, and you'd need to take the dog off and put it on my apron. That'll keep it from attacking you. <laughs> like what? Okay. And he opens up the first box is full of pennies. The second box is full of, uh, silver and the third box is full of gold and he keeps stuffing uh, he starts with the smallest and he ends up with the last right and then when he comes out she says ha 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 um this this uh, uh that gold will all turn to dust unless you have my magic tinder box and I'm like what well that's arbitrary so she he grabs it from her and runs away <laughs> and then it turns into basically cinderella <laughs> it's like what the hell this is a really weird story <laughs> um but hans christian anderson is remixing uh aladdin uh a scandinavian folktale um and about five or six other you know little uh, tropes and these are magic stories they're designed to create beliefs and behaviors in, in children that's that's why the characters are so weird like why is this witch or this dwarf giving you like a task to do or a behavior test? Because it's designed to deliver a message to the chill child about how to act and how to be social messaging. Yes. And, and, and then we can do this amazing interpretation. Like we all know, um, Hansel and Gretel, right? Everybody knows Hansel and Gretel. There's sort of this weird relationship with the birds, um, when the fa- when the boy leaves food for the birds later on, they're paid off by a magical swan giving them a ride across the river. Um, one of the things that we notice is that there's this evil stepmother, and when she the children come back from the uh, witch's house and you know rich with either food or gold, um, the father is there and she says your your stepmother died. Well, that's because the stepmother is the witch, right? the same person in a certain sense we can interpret it that way anyways story doesn't say right but that's the point of the story so like somehow these these ignorant illiterate idiots who we don't trust to educate our children we're educating their children just fine without without the need for a written text right so that in that way mac in is correct Mm -hmm. and and that's what he's tapping into and he's saying i experienced this shit in childhood right i saw the world a very strange way and then i sort of grew up and i went to the city now everything's smoke and printing presses (laughs) right and sex sex clubs and you know i see the capitalism unrestrained um and now here's world war one and i have these feelings right and he's got a powerful woman at his at his side, right? It's very he's a very intellectual guy. That's why he's rewriting that those two stories. I think, uh, Will, that you pointed out, you know, they, they don't fit together. This whole narrative doesn't fit together until you, it fits together at the end, and then you go back and read it again and see see how everything's connected. It's 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 very conspiracy minded thinking, but it's not crazy. In in because he knows he's not crazy. This is fiction, right? Yeah. But I, people I, I, don't. I mean, the, the, yeah. I, I'm he's not being Doyle. Go ahead. Yeah, he's not being Doyle that he actually believes what he's right. Yeah, no, he, exactly. He, he, yeah, he doesn't. And neither did Lovecraft, right? Yeah, well, Lovecraft did not believe in Cthulhu or Dagon or the cosmic 
but he believed in spending time playing with those things. So if you read his letters, he's always giving his friends like, you know, chthonic names. (laughs) H-P-L spelled with A-C-H-E and P-P-E-E and L-E-L-L, right? Yeah. It is a kind of play and a kind of reality, but he knows it's fake. Thankfully. <laughs> well, no, no, but seriously, because, I mean, I won't touch much of the Doyle besides Sherlock Holmes because, because he's too close to it, if that makes any sense. He, he, mm. He's invested too much in, in unreality, and that hurts the fiction in my, hmm. in my view. Well, I, heard, I hear the White Company's really good that uh crusader book but i have not read it i I think i started it but i didn't finish it i hear it's really good though i I have a provocation about this novel for you jesse okay so i had to look up the word turgid recently (laughs) (laughs) um and i Hmm. did and i thought you know that really doesn't describe um heinlein uh, robert Heinlein, but uh it might describe uh another book that i'm reading right now (laughs) Swollen, congested, um, uh, distended, right? Though it, it's it's a slur against something, right? And the thing is, is if you look at Lovecraft and you say, is he turgid? No, he's complicated, but he's writing poetry, right? His sentences are big. Like if you read Poe, his sentences are big. Are they swollen, distended? That's a judgment. It's not a description, right? Is yeah, this turgid? I don't think so. It's very short reality, right? compared. Say again. We have to we have to strive towards a common reality, right? Like when we make judgments and we compare judgments to each other, like we're we're striving towards a common reality. Uh, I guess sure. Yeah, it makes sense. That's what language is for. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I thought this novel, this novella was uh, was uh, you know beautiful and poetic in a lot of ways, but uh, something about the uh, it. There was something about the way that it was it was done where um, it seemed to slip through my hands, and I, maybe that's maybe that's a, yes, uh, a literary that's technique. A, that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, but I, I was wondering whether what would you think if somebody said that uh, this novel were turgid? I, I I think it's 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 a misunderstanding. I I think Lovecraft is much better at what Mackin is doing than Mackin is in I in think this. I would agree with that. I, I can see how Lovecraft took took this took the story. As you said, he loves it so much that like I can do I can do this sort of thing and winds up doing it better. I mean, we don't we don't find a Lovecraft story that I've read that is quite this Byzantine. I, I'm going to use another judgment word: Byzantine. That might be it's, better. That's it's better not point. even. We, we it's not even that. It's you know, people talking about yeah yeah give, recalling stories within stories. It gets really nested. Oh. Going da- going down but, rabbit holes in the story and but Paul, my little... take on this yeah. is this theme of the of of the veil right yeah it's introduced in the experiment and mm-hmm. yeah it's got this kind of cosmic dimension right seeing the great god Pan yeah but it's also about like class and it's also about sexuality and it's also about gender and the veil runs through those things too right mm-hmm. like look how divided the city is. Especially in one part of it, I wrote this down somewhere. Is it the, the discovery on Paul Street? That chapter? No, the City of Resurrections, chapter City three. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I just—it's so palpable how it, 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 like, divided the city is, right? And and the result of that is our characters can't 
describe things, right? I think if you read this, I think one frustrating thing is like, especially for maybe a modern audience, it's like you kind of want to know what happened. Like what Helen and yes. Rachel were doing in the woods. That's you why you know, need to be but, spoiled on it before you but, read it. But like, I mean, there's, I guess one way of looking at this is like the Victorians really can't go there. And, and therefore Mackin can't really go there because his audience can't. And there it, might be some truth to that. That It kind of reminds me of, it's, uh, it, there's, no, an Escher, there's an Escher painting hmm. where, where they're in a gallery and you see the paintings basically tries to encompass the entire world, but there's a spot because just the way way drawing works where you can't see anything. It just has to be a yeah. it's white space because you can't because just of the limitations of drawing and this kind of reminds me yeah. Well we, we actually we, have an artist in the story, right? Right. We have a uh, what's his name? Merrick? Merrick. Oh, Merrick. And we get this painting of Helen and I think it's a Villers kind of makes the connection. To, to Helen Vaughn through the picture or something, right? Mm-hmm. But even that is not really describable. So I think there, this fails running through this entire story. Mm-hmm. And that really has a very interesting effect, I think. And, 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 and you were, yeah, yeah, and, and I, what I you really my like class it. is something that Lovecraft doesn't take up, but this story, I am, because, because yeah. Lovecraft, Lovecraft is a would-be wannabe aristocrat. He, he can't sympathize with even trying to bridge the divide. He literally was. He was an arist- American aristocrat when he was a young kid, and then the family fell, right? So, I mean. Right. It, 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 it's a real fall of the House of Lovecraft sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would say, though, that Lovecraft still has that, that bill in a way, but it, it doesn't He's, have the effect. It doesn't no. have the effect. That it's you don't have this frustration, I think. When you read Lovecraft, no, like, no, he's you want to uh, see a little bit more except, of what's except going on. Except, there's one story where I, I, I have to point this out because I think I'm a super genius and everybody needs to know this because I discovered one amazing thing: the tree. Do you remember you did a show on that story? Yeah, you said I forgot all the good stuff. Well, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> you know about. It's a murder mystery. It's a murder mystery. No, 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 no. You're thinking of um, the unnameable, which oh, which oh, yeah. this is very similar to. The unnameable is basically uh, it's Pan shows up, two guys in the graveyard. He tells a story about you know basically straight out of uh, what's the which which hunter which which hunter guy from Boston? What's his name? You all know who I'm talking about. Come on. Solomon Cain. Mather or someone? Cotton Mather. Cotton, Cotton Mather. Mather. Cotton Mather. He quotes from Cotton Mather in the story, and then the monster shows up, and it's Pan, and basically raped the two dudes, but it never says that in the text. It's it's a it's just like sort of the uh, the scene in here where one guy's dead, and he's got some bruising on his shoulders, and he's like, oh, yeah, he just got raped by Pan. <laughs> um, that's cool. Um, in any case, uh, no, I'm not talking about the unnamed. I'm talking about the tree, which is such an obscure Lovecraft story that you don't even recall it, even though you did a show on it. Um, the tree is about two artists, one who gets his inspiration from the city and one get, who gets his inspiration from the country. One who gets his inspiration from, uh, going to parties and hanging out with beautiful chicks and, uh, drinking. And the other who gets his inspiration by going into the glades and spending time with the fawns and the such, right? And then they're both commissioned by a king. This is set in ancient Greece. Um, both commissioned by a king to do a, uh, a statue of a god. 
Um, and they both work on it in secret, but they're sharing their work together. They share the same workshop. So they're working on it in secret from the public. And the story is framed by a narrative in which, uh, the, the narrator learns of these two artists and how one of them died and the other one built him a, a great tomb and a monument. Um, and then the other one dies, right? And only the bees know is, is what uh, I read through the story like a whole bunch of times. Like, what the fuck? This story sucks, right? It's Lovecraft. He's really good. So what, why does the story fucking suck so much? It's because there's a secret story inside of it. The, the bees, the beekeeper doesn't know the, who's telling it to the narrator, but the bees know, right? There's this weird line at the end about how the bees know something or something like that. And then I go, went back and re- reread the story and I'm like, Oh yeah, it's really interesting when this, this guy dies, before he dies, one of the artists dies, the one who gets his inspiration from the countryside. Um, his companion is, uh, distressed. We find out, we, we think it's because he's distressed because his friend is sick, but it turns out he's just, well, this is the interpretation. It's not in the story. He's upset because his friend's art is better than his. And, this cannot be, even though they're best friends. So he poisons him. And as the friend is dying, he asks uh, not for the tomb that his friend eventually builds for him, but rather for a stick to be planted in the ground at the head of his, his grave. From that stick grows a mighty tree, the title, right? And a branch from that tree grows over their workshop, and in a mighty windstorm, that branch comes down collapsing, ki- destroying their artwork, both of their artworks, if if the friend was going to steal it or not, and or uh, mo- most importantly, killing the it's like revenge from the grave story. And what's so cool about that story is that's Lovecraft hiding it so well from us that we don't even notice it when we're reading the story. We say, "Oh, this is kind of a shitty Lovecraft story." But he well, he hid it so well that you don't even know that it's there. You just think it's the story of two artists. And, and but it's a very Greek classical story, and he's incorporating that knowledge of the of the um, of the uh, illiterates, you know, this sh- beekeeper in the countryside knowing stuff, and he doesn't even know the truth; he just knows the story. But the bees know. It's like nature knows, and if we're clever enough, like I think I am, by discovering this thing holy shit i'm a super genius i figured this out (laughs) nobody talks about this online and it's like it's right there in the story you just have to know how to sort of interpret it and that's what's so cool about this book is yeah it doesn't it's not satisfactory because every time we're going to get a revelation what happens somebody whispers in the other's ear right and the text is not there for us and then he opens up the book and it's the most distressing images you've ever seen or he meets a guy who's uh was once a rich dude and now is a pauper um and he says you know i could explain it all it would all make sense to you and then you'd never have another good night in your life (laughs) And this leaves it there un- unresolved. And of course, we understand that, right? Because they're like the image that Will sent me by direct message this morning. I don't want to ever think about that again. <laughs> Some weird worms squiggling around in a jar. No, thank you. I don't need that. <laughs> not in my life. Not in my body. They're not in your body. <laughs> yeah, but that—that's why I always keep thinking about when I was listening to this to to the 
uh, from beyond, right? Because that's Lovecraft's point in that story is that they are in your body, right? These creatures from beyond, beyond our perception, are squiggling through you right now. And that is a metaphor and a symbol. You know, this is the time the symbolists were, Lovecraft calls it out in, I'm listening to, I'm listening to a lot of Evans' readings of Lovecraft's and, and talks about the symbolists a little bit. Um, in The Hound, um, when these guys go through these stages of art and eventually they, they, their black museum is filled by, you know, the things they dug up from long ago. Um, and one of the things is, is they, they, they went through the art of the symbolists and the, these guys and those guys, the decadence that this is that period, right? The story is set in. It's set in the, the, the yellow, the yellow book, uh, that is the driving force behind Oscar Wilde's, um, uh, most famous novel. What's his most fa- Maybe he only has the one novel, right? He only has the one novel. What's his novel called? Dorian Gray, right? Dorian Gray. Picture of Dorian Gray, right? Um, that book has a, has a a book in it as well that we never get to read. And it is these yellow books, these, uh, forbidden subjects, basically, uh, what Oscar Wilde is writing. That makes me think of of, uh, Robert Chambers. Absolutely. And that's why it's called the yellow sign, right? And, and the king in yellow, right? That this, it it was like the yellow nineties and it's not yellow peril. It's yellow as in, this sort of corruption and sickness, um, and also a kind of a beautiful sickness, beautiful decadence, right? So Lovecraft's take, picking all that up saying, Ooh, I like this. I love this suggestion, the suggestion of what this all means. And, uh, because it matches our sort of perception that reality is not what, what, I mean, that's, that's the premise of this story, right? Is that there is, the ancients knew that Pan was a symbol behind the veil, right? He's not like the other gods. He he doesn't have. We don't know who his mother and father are. Like he might be the son of Zeus, but not really. And yeah, yet- yeah. When I when I was listening to Stephen um, Stephen Fry's Mythos, he mm-hmm. he, he explains he explains that there's lots of different possible uh, origins for Pan. The role, I mean, I mean, there's lot. There's six different. Myths for every Greek myth, and you only know about generally about one or two of them. But even Pan is just like, who is this? Who is this dude? He's not an, an he's not an Olympian god, but he's incredibly important. Uh, the word I mean, panic so, comes I mean, from him. I mean, we're talking about folk folk traditions and and witches. Yeah, the, and it's almost like he's a folk tradition from before he is, the Olympians. Absolutely. So kind of the. Where did I? I must have picked this up somewhere. I, partially from Curator Lerner, I guess, because she argues that for this, like, origin of patriarchy has something to do with, like, the Indo European invaders coming in and oh. bringing in their, like, male gods and mm-hmm. sky gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, and I've heard that. War the, 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 and, and um, yeah, the, the, the iron technology. The yeah, the Chalice But, it, you know, here. that you do have the Olympian gods and you have the Earth gods in the Greeks, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. I think, the compelling but, argument here. But I think that. that it's like, out of yeah, the earth, it does, and there literally is a war between them, right, in the mythology, mm-hmm. where the the sky gods, the Olympians, have to assert their dominance over, over and these earth a, gods. And there's a, there's a war. Like the there's, yeah, yeah, Norse mythology. There's a war. Be, there's a conflict between the As- the Aesir and the Vanir, and eventually they come to an a, a accord with each other. Yeah. 
you guys, um, anybody, I can't remember who was on the show. Maybe nobody was on the show on the Parasite. By, yeah, I don't think anybody here was on it. This is a, a another one you haven't read, Paul, because you're afraid. Um, I'm not afraid. Uh, of Conan Doyle. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. So yeah. Par- there's an 1894, same year, right, as this, um, novelette, same length, basically, um, by Conan Doyle, does not get much attention at all, even though it's quite interesting, um, called The Parasite. And uh, it's it's very much reminds me of the opening chapter here. Remember when the surgery is about to be done? Our, our viewpoint character, kind of, what's his name, Clark? Is that his name? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, that's his name, or that's one of our viewpoint characters. Yeah, it, well, in the opening chapter, there's two dudes and a lady, right? Or a girl, yeah, I should Clark say. Yeah, Clark is the viewpoint character. So Clark, character, yeah. Clark sits down in the chair, and it's actually very beautiful writing. Um, sits down in this green velvet chair or something like that, and then uh, the surgery begins, but we're actually seeing everything from his point of view, and whatever gas uh, that, you know, ether, whatever brain surgery numbing thing that he's using on the girl is also affecting uh clark and that's pretty interesting because i I almost thought another way of i I still think another way of reading it is the brain surgery was actually on him because that's what my assumption was at from the front it's like he was trying to convince uh clark the doctor's trying to convince Clark, oh, come on, I'll just make a few adjustments, and then you'll be able to see reality for what it is. <laughs> no, 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 it's on the girl, right? But he has this reality distortion from the drugs. I'm pretty sure that's what's causing him to hallucinate or whatever. I think, right? I think that's what we're supposed to imply, yeah. Right. In any case, um, this is very much of the era, so the I'll just read from the Wikipedia entry. I've done a show on it. It's a really good, really interesting book. Um, the Parasite is an 1894 novelette by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Parasite makes use of a form of mind control similar to that of mesmerism. Um, it basically is mesmerism. And then I'm going to read the two paragraphs of the plot summary. The main character is a young man known as Austin Gilroy, another Austin. He studies uh, physiology and knows a professor who is studying the occult. The young man is introduced to a middle-aged woman known as Miss Pence, uh, Pen- Penclosa. Miss Penclosa, who has a crippled leg and psychic powers. She is a friend. She's from the United States, I believe. She is a friend of the professor's wife. The skeptical Gilroy, skeptical Gilroy's fiance, Agatha, is put into a trance to prove Miss Pensacola's powers. This is like at a dinner party or something. Um, this succeeds, and Gilroy begins to go to the professor's house where Miss Penclosa practices her powers on him. This is so Gilroy can look at the physical part of her powers. Miss Penclosa falls in love, quote-unquote, with the unfortunate Gilroy. So, basically, this guy's about to get married, goes to a party of his professor. The professor invited this this um, psychic, right? Um, and she falls in love with the main character. Um, it, or stalks, starts stalking him, right? She starts to use her, her powers on him to make him caress and utter sweet nothings to her. He loses his temper and rejects her love, and she begins to play tricks on him with his powers. That's sort of a little bit... That's not quite what she's doing. The series of cruel tricks ends with him in Agatha's room carrying a small bottle of sulfuric acid. He notices that in 
It is half past three. He rushes to Miss Penclose's home, demands her presence at the door. The nurse answers uh, in a frightened tone that she has died. So basically what happens in this story is there's this powerful woman, right, who's very popular in London society, even though she's not attractive. Um, and she finds the main character very sexy, young doctor, right? Um, and she practices her her powers on him so that he will be her sex slave and because he's he keeps sort of falling out of her power because the you know whenever she's not in his presence the the commands get weaker eventually mm-hmm. he she she decides to kill the object of his affection, which is, or at least attack the object of his affection, which is his uh, fiance, and the w- the method of doing that is by sending him a command to kill her, or at least disfigure her enough so that that uh, he won't be attracted to her anymore. And the only reason he, the main character, doesn't kill or maim his his GF is because the parasite of the title has died and can't influence him from afar. It's, it's not the same story at all as the one we have today, but it's the same idea that this shit is real, right? There's, there's some real effect and notice that, uh, I think Mr. Jim Moon talked about this, like, or dispelled this idea that this is an attack on new, new women's power, Right. At least, not. I'm not talking about the parasite now. I'm talking about uh, Great God Pan. This isn't an anti-women being powerful book, right? It's not that at all. Yes, she's the bad guy. Oh, there is a girl who is the bad guy, right? Or female that's a bad guy. But that bad guy is a product of of male uh, pred- predation. Yeah. Yeah, she's a victim. I agree. Well, she's not a victim only. She's also the. She's she's also acting, but it, it's not it's not an attack on on women, you know, getting the right to vote that they would have been interested in at the time, or women being free not to have husbands and have jobs. It's it's just it's more about like reality is not what we think it is. Um, yeah, if we can get behind the veil, the, the shifting of I, 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 of gender relations. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's maybe not so it's maybe more about the modern girl. Uh, I think it. What it like reminds I get that me of. Vibe. Go ahead. No, I'm just kind of thinking about. It's a saying, lot to think about, Jesse. Yeah, um, but I, I. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, uh, Go. Sorry, uh, a comparison I want to make is um, like. Uh, in a more subtle way, it might have a similar social critique to the time machine. Um, so, like, uh, so obviously, uh, um, Helen is somebody who's like uh, comes into existence in a way that that you could say she's like born victimized. Uh, but yeah. uh, 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 sort of like the Morlocks, if you will. But, uh, I mean, but she's something that's, like, truly monstrous and horrible. She has to be put down. I mean, we don't have to put down the Morlocks, but it's sort of like, you know, if you treat people... Morlocks uh, aren't the bad guys. No, they're not. But if you treat people in uh, a certain way over a certain period of time, they, like, become monstrous to you. 
or like may actually become monstrous. Uh, and so that's like we what create we we create monsters that way. I, yeah. That's, that's what you're yeah. What's yeah, funny yeah. is that is that the you know Weena and the Eloy right are are what are what they are, and so are the Morlocks right. There's no judgment. There there's the subjective judgment of of the time traveler right. Uh, but uh, but for the reader, and that, and there's and no that judgment. Wraps, that wraps into the time the time in that uh, Wells is satirizing the the upper class versus the lower class, and well, I don't think it's satirizing as much as critiquing. Because if you th- like, I think about how the old Doctor Who, when which is the time machine essentially as a series, right? He shows up on some planet, and there's two alien groups one is a human colonists and the other are these like aliens that look like i don't know shambling uh, swamp things or whatever right i'm i'm playing up to jewett <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, shambling uh, man thing right all those right, guys right yeah. um and and the doctor comes into this situation and there's some leader of the colonists who says we need to wipe out these scum they're fucking up our equipment right and it's kind of like that episode of the uh Star Trek, where there's a bunch of miners on the planet. And, and, and the Horta. It's the yeah. Devil in the Dark the Horta, is yeah. the name of the episode. Yeah, the Horla, or Horta, not Horla. Horta. Horla is a different Horta. story from the same period. The Horta, um, you know, it's just trying to lay its goddamn eggs, and these miners are, you know, wrecking their nests. Can't they all get along? Right? Kirk plays the same role that that the doctor does in the old doctor who he shows up and says, look, you're, you're making a mistake. This leader who's power mad. We got to wipe out all the indigenous people. This is wrong. Right. And the Morlocks are, are the result of, you know, if this goes on, which is a very, very science fiction trope, right? If this goes on, then dot, dot, dot. It's why we should all read science fiction old and new. Because if this goes on, dot, 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 then X will happen, is the theory. And it's usually wrong, but at least it's interesting and it gets you thinking about what the consequences of of unchecked untruth is. Uh, going back to <laughs> to the original, this story, it, it, I, it's not really fantasy either, right? No, it's a science fiction story. It's it's not really fantasy at all. It, the only way we can think of it that way is to sort of s- misunderstand who Pan is. Pan is not a god who shows up in this story. Pan is a metaphor for the veil, for the truth of the reality. Um, and the truth of the reality is fucking horrible, right? And that's, that's what uh, the Ligotti end of... Uh, Lovecraftian fiction is is focusing on, but there's also awe there, right? When you read the Dunwich horror, uh, I have sympathy well, for the it, family. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be right. Like you're, we see the world as a normal view, but in reality, in these stories, when you, it's like the Morlocks, right? When you pull back the reality, it's right. horrible. So it's 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 the great god Pan is literally you lifting the veil on your society, and you actually see that. These really awful things are occurring <laughs> in front of you. <laughs> That's why you yeah, just need to close your eyes, go la 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 la, vote for Biden, everything will be okay. Because if you yeah. if you actually t- put on those uh, uh, they live sunglasses, <laughs> you'll see things for how they are. Right. That's what's so interesting about they live 
is that it's the reverse of the removing of the veil, right? It's like that, uh, the, the Philip K. Dick story as well. The, uh, the, is it, uh, something of our fathers? What's it called? Faith of our fathers. Faith of our fathers, right? Where everybody's being drugged by the water they drink and only by refraining from it will you, uh, see for one of the six realities of what the leadership is like. And, and one of them is, real, is tentacled yeah. and the other one is a clanking machine. Right. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, what, what is the reality? That's, uh, I don't think Philip K. That's, Dick is going at it directly the from the Poe. Like sorry. The, well, we've discussed that story because it's my favorite. Yeah, it's a really good story. Faith of Our Fathers. Imagine how much more people would read it if it was public domain. <laughs> That's a different conversation. <laughs> Maybe it is. But I can't remember if it is or not. I'll look it up. No, it's not. Dangerous visions. Yeah, it's not. It's not public domain, but it's still good. You can still uh, find an illegal copy somewhere on the internet. Uh, oh, on sickmyduck.nayrod.ru. Go there right now and read it. Stop listening to this podcast. Hey, don't do drive away. I'll listen. To it. Driving them away to read the original materials, and they, have, they're not allowed to listen to the podcast until they've done their HW. <laughs> is there more to say on this are we done uh yeah i want to make one last uh, uh connection jesse you might not be interested in this because it involves a book published like in the last like you know 30 years so Ooh, disgusting uh, <laughs> um but uh the uh um so i mean so this is there's a lot of themes that are like in the like literature here i mean we've been talking about the connections with uh conan doyle um, I brought in H.G. Wells kind of sideways. I mean, th- and uh, we were talking about a strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, so, you know, there's this theme in the uh, in the literature of uh, uh, mad scientist does a terrible thing to uh, a young girl kind of like heedlessly mm-hmm. um, uh, turning the girl into a monster um, uh, Rappuccini's daughter, and the uh, the modern book I, I want to bring up uh, is the first in uh, a series. So Jesse won't read this, but uh, maybe other people will. I, I will read the first in a series sometimes. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, I think the first book in this series will actually stand up for you. That's Hawthorne, by the way, Rappuccini's yeah, daughter. So it's uh, uh, the strange case of the Alchemist's daughter by uh, Theodore Goss. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is like a person that Paul like might actually know in real life or something, but I, ha- uh, I have met her. Yes. Yeah. The uh, uh, the basic premise is uh, so um, uh, the main characters are uh, Jekyll and Hyde's daughters. So like one is like Jekyll's daughter, one is Hyde's daughter, um, hmm. and uh, Sherlock Holmes is in the mix, of course. And you got these sorts of characters, but the basic premise is all of the characters are uh, uh, women who've had a uh, a bad experience with their scientist, mad, mad scientist father. Um, so you have like the Catwoman from the Island of Doctor Moreau. Mm. Uh, you have um, uh, you know sort of the the person who was built to be the Bride of Frankenstein, like these sorts of characters. So it's it's an exploration of this. Theme Those materials kind of, were destroyed, sir. Um, well, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's uh, something that Theodora Goss talks about when she talks about these novels. Is in 
you know, all these old stories, uh, like the monstrous woman has to be destroyed uh, mm-hmm. before the story is over. So mm-hmm. like with uh, the Bride of Frankenstein, she's like destroyed before she even comes into being. Right. 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 Um, and the materials uh, are destroyed. She, she's uh, the chemicals were on the shelf. You just smash them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So she she retcons that for the purposes of uh, of her book series. Um but uh, I, I think that um, uh, this story sort of fits into the same vein of uh, uh, paternal figure um, really takes advantage of uh, somebody who's under his care kind of heedlessly. So mm-hmm. um, if people are into those themes and uh, like books published, uh, you know, uh, recently, those are some good ones. Yeah, that sounds good. And she, and she, she writes very poetically and very well. I, Jesse, you'd like, you'd li- you like her style, I think. Uh, she's she's a poet, and she. I think has it's speech. probably okay if, as long as it's wrapped up in the first book. Like, yeah, you, you don't need yeah, to read the second book to. Yeah, it's uh, it's not part one of a story. It's three stories mm. with the same characters. It's well, not so, an overarching. Well, overarching here's what I say: anymore. wait thirty years, let it drop into the public domain. If it percolates up into my consciousness, I'm there. <laughs> For, it has to percolate up so, on its own. No, no estate pushing it. No companies pushing it. We'll see what happens. What, what about readers? You have two readers here who have read it. Yeah, this is this is bottom up pressure. Yeah, it is bottom up pressure, but it has to reach reach a certain amount of pressure. Or it won't work, right? Like you haven't you haven't said any. You need to spoil it for me. Doctor Moreau you... is alive. <laughs> that that is a good spoiler. I. Well, I mean, okay. Why is yeah. that good? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, but the uh, he was a kind of a jerk, that guy, and he's also a cannibal. Yeah, that's the, yeah, that's the premise: is that like all these guys are jerks. Um, so it's sort of like uh, uh, like uh, young women get revenge on bad fathers. I I don't know. What do you think of uh, was um. Doctor, not Doctor Nemo. Um, Captain Nemo. He wasn't Captain a jerk, Nemo. right? He was. He was. He's the. He's the secret hero. Yeah, I think Alan Moore has him be kind of a bad dad sometimes. But, bad dad. Uh, yeah. But no, I mean in the original book, he's the. He's basically he's right about everything, right? We're fucking everything up. There. Yeah. We need. We, we. He's. He's kind of like the Goliath, um, or Colossus. <laughs> You know he's 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 pre-computer, but still trying to fix the world, and everybody else is wrong. He, he's almost like an echo terrorist. Yeah, Except, he's like a Razal Ghoul yeah. type character. Yeah, yeah, right? that sounds like right. Or or, or uh, yeah, or Poison Ivy by other means. This Poison Ivy's in that same vein of echo terrorist. Like we have to save the Earth from man. So but he's not just. He's not only about the. The, I mean, that's yeah, his... he kills the last dugong. He's not like, uh, you know, like he's not like a green guy, you know. No, no. He, uh, I mean, he he, he cares about that too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, his his cause is anti-imperialism. But yes. imperialism's destroying India and the world, and I'm going to fight the English imperialism. And also, and it's bad for humans, right? Yeah. Like these na- nations. He's an internationalist, right? Yeah, his crew is drawn from like the uh, you know uh, the, all of the oppressed nationalities. Yeah, uh, including Canadian lumberjacks and <laughs> and uh, you know yeah, I mean there's he's a brown dude wearing a turban, uh, yelling at people, and yet he saves uh, saves 
saves uh, the he, he's torpedoing ships, but but he saves the passengers. He's again, yeah, sometimes at least, right? Sometimes, but you know, depends on the ship. I don't know. Uh, it, it just seems like an interesting character. I haven't read that book uh, ever, or maybe yet. Wait, what? You've never read, or like, you've never I don't read think so. I've read, you know, ad- it, I've read lots of adaptations. Under the sea? Twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Yeah, I'm shocked. Well, I've read lots of classic comic adaptations, and I know the story. Fair enough. I've seen, you know, clips of the movie. So yeah, the book don't is change really people. Long, We're not reading things. The beginning of the book is more of like a, a nautical. Like it's like an adventure. Yeah, it's a mystery like, too, it's like right? Nautical stuff. Yeah. It seems. It seems like uh, like I like Jules Verne. I think he's he's a bit inflated sometimes, but um, but he he is a really interesting writer, and and his stuff is not exactly science fiction, but he's very. Yeah, there's reasons to read them. Like Robar the Conqueror and all that stuff. Yeah, I haven't read that one either. I haven't read Robar well, the I Conqueror. Mean, and, of course, like uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a science fiction novel. Well, that's what it seems like, sure. I mean, they uh, go to Atlantis and stuff. Cool. Cool. Maybe we should do that. To find that a nice on the list. Hmm? That book's a trip. Yeah, <laughs> on the list. But, uh, yeah, and they're... Although it's part of a series, I don't know if you want to read it. Uh, well, that w- 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 mysterious island is that what's is that? Is not the castaways too? The um, search for the castaways, Doctor Grant's children. That yeah. that's the second one. Yeah, there's a bit. It's funny. There's been like a lot of adaptations of Mysterious Island, like more than than uh, the original movie or book. I should that's say. Actually- I think that's his best book. Is it? I, I read okay. a bunch of his books about two years ago, and uh, I I thought that that Mysterious Island was the best one. All right. Like that book is really good. Castaways, the Doctor Grant's Children, the Search for the Castaways is is cool. Is like half good and half really boring. Like hmm. it, it's it's bogged down with like this like uninteresting characters. It's like the stuff on the island is funny, but when it goes back to the soldiers looking for him. I found that to be hard to get through. But mm. Mysterious Island is really spooky. And yeah, it sounds cool. And, like, and that's the one where he's like yeah. revealed to be Indian, right? That's not revealed in uh, 20,000 Leagues. Yeah, he talks to them more frankly. Like, he talks to the characters. He, he's not like he's not like training them to be like weird, crazy soldiers. But he's <laughs> like, you know. He's talking to them more like his, his friend. Like, he's talking to them more like a... You know, this is like sort of the end of Nemo's career, and he's kind of telling them his history, and he kind of tells them where he came from and how he got to be the. He says, "Seek, right?" Yeah, yeah. I, I I think that's really cool. Um, well, so uh, other other connections, uh-huh. other recommendation. Yeah, go for modern it. Modern ones. Um, since we're doing them, what was well. the name of that other one? The mashup, all the different. A women. strange case of the alchemist daughter. All right, that might be worth checking out. Anyways, uh, I guess I have to mention this uh, since I'm the King guy here. Uh, Stephen King thought this was. You're talking about N. Yeah. Well, not just N. There's another one that's maybe even a better connection, which you should read. But uh, he saw it. Great God Pan was one of the great stories. Trying to find the quote here. Said uh, said Great God Pan is like. uh, 
one of the greatest stories ever written in English, even. Wow. Uh, maybe the best horror story in the English language. Wow. So, best horror exactly. story. So he really dug this 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 tale, and Anne is the one that's most commonly seen as like a great god pan connection. Mm-hmm. But revival. That's I think that's his best work of the past, at least since he finished the Dark Tower. Well, I've never even heard of it. Ten, fifteen years. Revival. Yeah. It's it's a mad scientist story. Ah. Where a, a guy, a creature, is. Wife and child die, or if we get a traffic accident. Oh, cool! Brings them back to life. It's pet cemetery, but with humans. It's not about that. No, he doesn't bring them back to life, but he does devote his whole life to because he was interested in electricity. He devotes his whole life from that point on to studying electricity. He abandons his faith, and his entire goal is to know what is after death. Hmm. So he wants to do kind of the Frankenstein thing, but not really to bring the dead back to life, but just to get a report. Uh, Isn't that Sleepwalkers, the movie? Is that what it's called? I remember. Maybe he was playing with that idea in Sleepwalkers. You know, sleep, no, Sleepwalkers isn't him. Is that? No. No, what's the one? It was with uh, uh, Donald Sutherland's kid. Kiefer. Kiefer Sutherland, he was he he plays a doctor, and they're like medical students, and they're sort of... Sleepwalkers is Stephen King. Is that him? Is that the same thing? I'm uh, pro- yeah, probably it's a screenplay, right? It's a, it's like a movie here. It's yeah. not a novel. Kiefer, no, I'm talking about a movie that I I don't think is an adaptation of anything. It's about these doctors who like put themselves under close to death. Oh, that flatliners. Flatliners. Yeah. That yeah, they remade it. Why? <laughs> I thought you were talking about Stand By Me for a little while, and I was like, because <laughs> that was like, what are you? I was like, Keith was in Stand By Me. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, no, it's no, it, no, it's it, very different because the the whole novel builds to like one the climax. In fact, it, it follows a narrator through his whole life and this preacher through his whole life, and they interact like four or five times over the course of their life, but they're drawn, they're tied together. Kind of intimately, but at the end, you got this woman who gets again. This a woman who gets who's like terminally ill, so she volunteers to be the one who that he's going to revive, and he gets a report of the afterlife, and it's really bad. <laughs> so um, I'm going to I'm going to bring but, it back to another movie um, that I think is is kind of similar in feel, but is wrong because it's is sort of Christian based. Um, Really powerful movie when I saw it as a kid. I went rewatched it a whole bunch of times. Uh, it's called Angel Heart. You guys know this movie? Oh yeah, definitely. I know Angel Heart. Oh man, uh, rewatching that movie over and over again. I I'm like, holy shit, it's really interesting. I did a whole film series when I was a, back as a professor on on the Ameri- on the imagery and reality of the American South. Uh huh. So did uh, Old Brother Where Art Thou? Uh, what's the Flannery O'Connor one? Wise, no. I don't know it. I don't yeah. know anything about it. Flannery, it's hard. Like, but a- a- Angel Heart, we looked at. Uh, Nicky Rourke's in that movie, right? Nicky Rourke is in it, and so is yeah. Robert Robert yeah. De Niro. He plays the devil, basically. Oh, but that's, oh, now I remember. Well, that's really, yes, like I couldn't think of this movie, and then you just said Robert De Niro's the devil. Like, oh, it's based on it's based on a novel Robert which I haven't read. But Lisa yeah. Lisa Bonet plays it's it's kind of like it combines Lovecraft's uh, sort of fear of miscegenation with um, what's going on in this book is like 
uh, I mean, from what I recall of it, I haven't watched it. What year did it come out? 87? Probably haven't watched it since 1990. Not even. Probably 90. I, I, whenever it came out on VHS or was on HBO and I ripped it off of there, um, I would have watched it. I watched it over and over again. Like, like, uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> Watched it over and over again. I, I understand this mil- movie now. Angel Heart is, it's super creepy. Um, but it, the creepiness comes from it sort of, there is a reality to this because it's a modern setting, right? It's not like some hammer horror, uh, Frankenstein thing. It's a modern setting, um, with race relations and, uh, Mickey Rourke is good in it. I, it's, it's, I, I think it yeah. just, Sort of has been forgotten in terms. It's on of- Cinemax this week. Is it okay? Yeah. Um, I haven't watched it since then, but it makes me it makes me think that there are, there's a uh, a lot of cool stuff out there still. That it's not directly connected, mm-hmm. but it's a, kind of the same feeling. Um, you know, there was a movie called Crossroads that was kind of the same sort of thing, but doesn't feel like it at all. Where the kid from the Karate Kid learns guitar, and you know becomes uh, learns from BB King or something how to play music, um, and it's like, well, that's just kind of the same story because it's you know go down to the crossroads, the devil will get you. It's a vernacular uh, folk folk. Pe- which, which which makes me think of another modern novel, but it's a single novel, not a series. Good Southern Gods by John Horner Jacobs, which kind of. Com- does Lovecraft and Chambers in that Southern music tradition is really good, and I think you'd like it, Jesse. Uh, maybe. You have to spoil okay. it for me, Paul. Um, ba- ba- basic, basically, um, um, but the Yellow King is trying to take over, take over the world, starting with the Southern U.S. using uh, using music. <laughs> I'm not a music guy. That's a small problem, but. I'm not it a might music be, guy, and I enjoyed it. Yeah, I might be. Well, it, but see, were you intellectually stimulated? That's basically. Yeah. I want to be edified. I don't want to merely enjoy things. I didn't enjoy the Great God Pan. I appreciated it, and I think I will appreciate it again when I look at it again in twenty years or whatever. I, yeah, I think if I reread it, I, maybe in a, a year or two, I, I would, I would probably like it more. I just thought it was a fantasy story going in, and and I was like, oh. This is not what I thought. Like I, I guess I thought it was more like Pan's Labyrinth or something. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I just was like, oh my gosh, this isn't anything. There's no Pan in it at all, There's except no for Pan in it at all. <laughs> except for, except like, for. Like, now we're panning this. There's a lot more Pan in in the Unnameable, and he's should, barely there, and um, it's not really I, him. Maybe. Right. Uh, so should we end the podcast with um, uh, before it turns into something that's neither man nor woman nor beast nor worse than beast? Uh, uh, Evan had a question. Oh, cool. Um, I did? Yeah, he said, <laughs> is this a kissing book? <laughs> the answer is... Well, I couldn't work it then, yeah. Yeah, it is. You just don't want to know where the kiss is being kissed. If you did know where the kiss was being yeah. kissed, you, it would drive you mad. It's it's a it's not a um, it's not a good touch. But this isn't the kind of story you would read to your your kid when he's sick, right? <laughs> <laughs> if you want to fuck them up real bad, maybe wait, a, when they're high. Wait a minute! Uh, wait a minute! 
the kissing book. <laughs> <laughs> that was on one of the podcasts. I don't remember which one. I, I think I think I was I said that at the beginning of a podcast. <laughs> what well, one was that? Paul, do you remember? Which one? I, I'm pretty sure I said, is this a kissing book right at the beginning? No. Um, that fits a couple pockets. See, you don't know because you don't listen to the show, do you? I listen to the show after we record it. No. See? I think you're afraid of what you might say. What? Uh, <laughs> it sounds <laughs> funny to say. The podcast itself. That's why it's I funny. Do it. um, the, is this a kissing book? This uh, kissing. Oh, you gonna go searching through your own? Thing. Yeah, problem is search engine doesn't work properly. Uh, yep, uh, it's from "I Will Fear No Evil." Galaxy, July, December, nineteen seventy. Robert A. Heinlein talking to himself, and then Jesse asks, "Is this a kissing book?" <laughs> and that's all that book is, man. Every fucking kisses everybody in the kissing. fucking planet. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great book. Too. It's a you know what it is a important book and very interesting. It's also really fucking annoying, but th- that's uh, like a lot of people in the 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 those threads. Jewett, you probably still don't know what's going on. Um, <laughs> in those threads, they were saying, "I don't need to read Heinlein. He's no good. I used to read everything he wrote. Now I I don't need him. He's he's not important." I'm like, "You fucking selfish piece of shit! You're saying no one else needs to read Heinlein because you read him? You fucker! I didn't actually write that. I'm just that's my point. Is like they think it's okay you, for that they really enjoyed. Go out on a happy high note rather than uh, oh, we're done. Vitriol. Yeah. We're yeah, done before we become beast." <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF Audio. I'm sure we talked before, right? Holy crunchies hey hey your microphone's doing its crunchy thing uh, what now it's not doing it now yeah you're good now <laughs> do it did i uh, i talked to you on a previous podcast i don't remember yeah you yeah, did i thought so which one was it uh we did the untamed like the untamed the right 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 yeah it it goes through cycles so only thing i can think about right now is is uh, the Great God Pan and the one I was show noting yesterday, which is Horror at Red Hook. Oh, that's an awesome story. Um, you racist fuck. Just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're now canceled. You can't yeah. be on the podcast or talk to me ever again. Yeah. Well, it is that. It is, <laughs> <laughs> that is very racist. Jeez. Yes, it is. Uh, I mean, all right. Lord, I read, you know, 40 comic books a week, and my God, I mean, you want to, I mean, I don't know. They're not, they're they're not usually racist, the comics. Usually they suck. No, but they're, but they're, you know, I mean, they are what they are, you know. I I mean, you you can, I mean, yeah, Horror Red Hook is a racist story, but if you (laughs) want to, I mean, you can say Spider-Man is too. What? 
<laughs> Spider-Man's pretty nice. I, I haven't guess, had any. We've had this conversation in the store that they all are set up for, you, you know, like middle class white kids and stuff, you know? Uh, I mean, yeah, ish. You can, you can say that. I mean, well, well white-ish. Right, yeah. White-ish. It, 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 it's certainly a culture thing, right? Yeah. Culture's I mean, way, way, way more important than I mean, you can definitely your say genetic that. history. It's like, you can say that Batman at its core is a is a rich white person who goes around and beats on mentally ill and poor people. Men, uh, <laughs> Batman at his core is uh, is just a ripoff of um, The Shadow. But yeah. And that was the same thing, right? That was, a, that was a, a sort of a supposedly a rich person going around beating up mentally ill people. You, you know about that that thing, right? Where the very first issue of Batman, it's just a, it's like a, it's a shadow, yeah, exactly a rip off of an exact, like even the drawings and like, holy oh, yeah. well, shit, I mean, man! I mean, at the time when they were doing Batman, they had no idea that they were going to be writing, you know, a mega cultural icon of, yeah. you know, the next three hundred years. Yeah, I mean. They thought they were writing a, a hashed-out rip-off story. <laughs> and they were. <laughs> Nothing wrong with a hashed-out rip-off. Yeah. All right. Who who else do I need to add here? Evan, you're still there, right? Uh-oh. Okay. Uh, oh, uh, Wayne's yellow. Okay, I'm going to try adding these people again. And then who else? Oh, probably Paul, right? Duh. Okay. I haven't. I, I really need to look at this the schedule thing here. Okay. Hello, hello. Hey, my uh, connection was kind of bad. So you think? Like yeah, we barely had you. We barely knew you. Well, I, I turned it off on purpose. To, <laughs> okay. Because uh, you guys are cutting in and out, so I okay. think it's my internet. Okay. Uh, all right. I got I'm just going to go through the list here. Uh, Paul, are you here yet? Paul, I can see your I can see your thing going up and down, but not Paul. I'm here. Okay, there we go. Okay, now Paul. Oh, Mr. Jim Moon. I have to search for him. Uh, looks like Will's muted. Well, that's correct. <laughs> uh, Jim, Where's the, there we go. Had and. Uh, Okay. Will likes to be muted. He's probably communing with those fucking scary monsters he tweeted at me this morning. That's really freaky. No, I don't even want, I don't want to know anything about that. I want to never think about it again, just so you know. So please stay muted if you want to talk about that. <laughs> wow. I thought the great god Pan was traumatizing. <laughs> Save it for the podcast. No, don't talk about those things on the podcast. They're too freaky. Paul, why do you think H. Beam Piper is more popular than uh, Robert A. Heinlein? Why do I think he's more po- I don't think he's more popular. He is. He's- There's more audiobooks by H. Beam Piper on Audible than there are by Heinlein. That's that's not a matter matter of his popularity. Oh no, no. Oh no, no. The, the number. The it's number because he wrote so much more than Heinlein. Correct. 
What's that? It's because he wrote so much more than Heinlein, having died, like, I don't know, 30 years before the other guy? Even it's, though they it's started... A of a, it's a matter of estate issues as to why there's more Piper than Heinlein on Audible right now. That's that's a difference. So you're saying that if he was in the public domain, Heinlein would have more audiobooks on Audible and be more popular than H.B. Piper? Is that what you're saying? That that is a potential hypothesis. I mean, I don't know how you prove that. You could. It, it's. I mean. I mean, we can, we've already. I mean, we haven't had a discussion. We had a discussion of piracy, but we haven't had a discussion of copyright law. Dude, where 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 have you been all week? I'm I'm talking about on the podcast. Oh yes, you're right. Yeah, we haven't talked about you haven't talked about the intricacies of copyright and why things. I mean, we've talked around it in bits of it, but we haven't had a full. You're saying discussion. you're saying that he's not popular though. H. B. and Piper, right? I I'm I am I am saying that his popularity is niche at best. Yes. Uh, I'm sorry to tell you this, but reading is niche niche popularity I, I, at best. I'm not denying that fact. Okay. <laughs> so what, what, how are we framing this then? I'm, I'm framing it as compared to compared to discussions with, with uh, other let's ask the genre it. and his and his public consciousness, both within the small science fiction community, the larger community readers, and beyond that, the general public. Okay, uh, Jewett, who is more popular, uh, the DCs or the Marvels? You should know about this. In our store, Marvel. Okay, uh, isn't isn't it in every store? Uh, yeah, probably because most of the Marvel books are more expensive than DC. Though, um, it uh, this week obviously Three Jokers was the. Three Jokers was the best-selling book all year so far this, okay. from this week. We sold over 100 copies in one week. We haven't done that since Doomsday Clock. Okay. I, I'm so disconnected from a lot of the comic seasons. I have no idea what Three Jokers is. Me neither. Do, and do I, you want I to read tell comics. You about Three Jokers? Okay. I can tell you what it was. Somebody what sort of, I can it. give you the yeah, spoiler Give us, give us the capsule. Okay, so the, so the point of Three Jokers is, is that in – so, an issue of, of Justice League from a couple years ago, Batman got the Nimbus chair, which is the thing that Metatron <laughs> sets in. Right, so he sets in it, and the first thing he asked, they were like, Batman, you can ask the Nimbus chair anything. What do you want to ask? He asked, who really is the Joker? And it went off in his head, and Batman looked shocked. And so, at the very end of the story, Alfred goes, did you find out who the Joker was? And he's like, yes. And he's like, there's three of them. And so... And so Alfred and Batman look like looks puzzled at each other. And so they've never talked about that storyline point for like four or five years in the book. So in this week's issue of the Three Jokers, the Joker commits three crimes at the same time with that each has a callback to a different version of the Joker. Like and so it's Bar um, Batgirl, Red Hood, who's Jason Todd, and mm-hmm. Batman. Go and investigate, or are investigating these three crimes. And there's going to be three issues. And at the end of the three issues, they say that you're going to find out some big thing about the Joker. Like it's going to be a part of his origin they've never revealed. Three different Jokers. Three I'm people. not this excited. Sounds, this sounds very Dictionary of the Khazars to me. All right. I, I, do you know what? I, I, I really only wanted to frame that as compared to independent comics. <laughs> Um, as opposed to DC and Marvel, which which is more popular, DC, Marvel, or independent? Um, here in my store, it's Marvel. Really? And I think that's mostly in, in 
you know, in every store. I think you're probably right. I mean, we just sell some. I mean, their price points are so much higher too. Like, like Marvel will stretch into a five ninety nine price point right really? now. So yeah, there's a bunch. Marvel always has books at five ninety nine and stupid stuff. So that is stupid. They, they always kind of you know, um, I mean DC. It's not as far. I mean, there there's only there's probably very minute amount of money difference between the two. But it, Marvel is almost, for the last, since I've worked here for the last 20 years, I think every year Marvel has been <laughs> number one. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe one year when the new 52 launched, maybe DC beat them that year. Uh, okay, now let's do a comparison of um, DC. We did DC to Marvel. Marvel wins. We did Marvel and DC versus uh, Independent, and Marvel still wins, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, what about as compared to back issues and uh, uh, you know, you know, the stock? Uh, the back issues are pretty. Uh, Marvel and DC are fairly close. There's, they're probably just an equal amount of money in back issues. No, like uh, I'm sort of, I'm sort of asking, like, um, are back issues more popular? Oh, uh, do they sell more money than? Than uh, uh, new books. Than the new books, no, yeah. but it's close. Like, yeah, we we probably we, we're probably. I mean, it's fairly close. But the new books are are you know the new books are the most popular. Like in my store, new books outsell everything. Yeah, like you know even trades and stuff, we sell more new books. Really, like, I, I have I have you know this is you know the store that I work at is very much like your normal like white fifty year old has a pull list of like you know. 40 titles and, and they you know buy everything so those people I mean, are weird <laughs> yeah. i i pull about six I'm like stud- I'm like <laughs> at most that you can spend that much money like, they, I, I, they have jobs where they earn lots of cash yo yeah a lot of them don't even read the books either which kills me that They're is so crazy behind and stuff yeah. i'm like why do you buy books that you don't want to read or you just you know i know a guy don't don't ask Amazing. that. They might stop. Yeah, I know. Well, I know a guy who's bought Amazing Spider-Man for almost the last fifteen to sixteen years, and he's not even read any of the issues. He just buys it out of habit. Yeah. I'm like God bless. I just can't imagine doing. He wants that. to support Spider-Man. There, 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 yeah. there are worse habits in the world, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's also supporting your store, so. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, yeah, no, that that's perfectly fine. But I just, I just always, you know, just somebody who. You know, I just I think it's weird when people have hobbies and then they don't really participate in it. Does that make sense? I guess. Yeah, it would be yeah. like me buying lots of photography gear and not actually taking photos. So yeah, yeah exactly. You know, or people like, buying cars and then putting them in their garage, yeah. not driving them. Motorcycles. Yeah, I mean, just like sitting there and polishing them and actually oh. driving them. I mean, that somebody somebody's having a Twitter time. conversation in the background and not talking on the podcast. I don't know who that is. That's not me. I can hear the little pop up. Where the, where the protagonist buys his car and he says, well, where do you want to display it? And he says, display it? I want to drive it. Like, display yeah. It. That is weird. Well, I guess you could you could say the same thing about a painting. Paint it. Uh, display it. I want to eat it. Display it. I want to burn it. Neverwhere or something again? I'm just thinking, like, it. it is a funny medium comics but uh i i don't know it that well like i know uh, i just think it's funny 
that everybody like what's his name um J something John Wykel Will help me out stop stop playing whatever games you're playing I'm eating a pop tart sir <laughs> sir <laughs> like I said don't 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 play the pop tart game uh, what was that John Michael something Wykel John Michael Straczynski no 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 you DM'd me a link to something earlier. And he was saying the reason Oh, J J Manfred Weishel? That that guy, yeah. He he was saying the reason A person who has been on our podcast. Yeah. That's right. Um the reason uh, Heinlein is is read today is because of the hard work of Virginia Heinlein and the estate. And I'm like, no, that's not why. <laughs> it's because Heinlein wrote a whole bunch of cool books that are still worth reading. Um, and I think that it is it, like, it, there's a pent up demand, um, for, for a lot of stuff. And there's absolutely no demand for some stuff. But what's funny is H. Beam Piper is not a name like Heinlein, but there's more supply because there's, you know, no restrictions. And so there's going to be more readers. For uh, that. That, 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 that a does not that does not necessarily follow. Yes, there's more supply, but aggregate number of additional readers is not proven. I mean, you Paul, guess Paul, the, I, I'm not I'm not comparing people. apples and oranges. I'm saying if if uh, you have two kinds of apples and they're both uh, public domain apples, and one of them is called a Heinlein apple, and another one's called H. Beam Piper apple. <laughs> okay, you get these two things together. I think Heinlein's going to beat H. Beam Piper every single day, right? But because uh, Heinlein is not an apple, he's an orange, that is, his product is restricted, then H. Beam Piper is getting more traction. I, 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 not I'm total number to downloads. Jeff, I don't I'm have that. I'm willing to bet that actually, with even with this few Heinleins are, that are in Audible, that... The number of downloads of those Heinleins are greater than all of the Pipers. I wouldn't be surprised at all. Uh, and that's my point. Right? Th there is a demand for people to read new audiobooks, right? There's a demand, and people are supplying it with what is what supplies are available, which is public domain materials. So what do they do? They take every H. Beam Piper thing that they can possibly get a hold of, because he's kind of in the same genre as Heinlein, and he's free. I mean, there, there, there are a few Paul, Paul, Paul Andersons on Audible on the same brand. And some of Not those are most of his stuff some of those copyright. are. Well, uh, you say most. Uh, I haven't done the numbers on that. We got to be real I mean, careful. I mean, more we got to be real Given copyright length and lots of renewals, I, I would assume that most of his stuff is renewed, but there's quite a bit that isn't. Heinlein is really weird because I've looked hard, and I've only found three. Heinlein is weird in the same way that Zelazny is weird, and both of them have wound up with being controlled by estates that really don't understand. Well, Zelazny's a lot later, though. Uh, what? Uh, so, Zelazny doesn't start writing uh, until, basically, the copyright laws are such that he's he's already safe. Well, but it's not only that. The, the, the estate that controls his stuff doesn't understand how to actually market. So you're saying Heinlein's estate doesn't either? Um, 
Clear, clearly, they could do better. <laughs> like, you mean by just deleting the estate and putting everything into the public domain? Do you think which do you think would create a more uh, a more consumption of Heinlein material? Having uh, things as they are, where it's not managed well, or having no management at all? Probably in the long run, putting in the public domain will probably lead to a lot more exploration of Heinlein for good and bad. It would, it would lead to a lot of drama. People rewriting Starship Troopers would be fascinating. It, it would be an interesting... It's an, it's I'm, an interesting I'm looking for uh, a number between no effect and explosion. What's that? I'm looking for a number between no effect and explosion. Um, I... I it's it, it it it's it's hard to quantify. I mean, we we we, we, we <laughs> would it increase at all? How about that? What's that? Would it increase would, at all? Um, if if Highline went to the public domain, yes, there would be an increased interest in him. How big an increase? I don't know. I don't think I don't think that's that's. I mean, because we don't have we don't have we don't have evidence of what happens when an author yeah of that, we do of that uh. We, that, uh, we actually do. Prolificness goes into the public domain. We actually do. We have lots of analogies. There's a guy named H.P. Lovecraft. Um, but most of his stuff was in the public domain. Nobody knew that until basically but, but, August Derelict died. But but it's not a matter of suddenly flipping a switch and suddenly stuff being a ton of stuff being in the public. Would you domain. think that that's there are more people? That's a different. If that happened tomorrow, that's a very that's a un. Unhitherto seen event and how that actually would play out would, I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I don't think you can see what happens immediately. I think you have to look at ten years from now. Are people reading and responding to Heinlein now that he's in the public domain? I, I don't even need to be responding. I just want to know if the reading is more. Um. Uh, probably, but but I mean. What but would also, what would prevent but, 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 but it? Consider consider, uh, consider um, modern reading tastes and society and time and effort. It's it's hard to say. Okay, I, I I got Paul's uh, lack of assessment. All <laughs> right, well, because there's too many. Evan, you've been following this with with your whole Gedanken experiment too. Gedanken, Gedanken experiment, thought experiment. Okay. I'm sorry, I was listening to a podcast about. About the science of sci-fi, I mean, and the uh, author was talking about Gedanken experiments, which is what Einstein came up with, thought experiments. Okay. To think about his thoughts. So Gedanken experiment was on my brain. Sorry about uh, that. And that's okay. I so, didn't know the, what the book I, I think trying to prove I, – I, like, I don't see how you can know. I would say probably. Like, oh, uh, it's on LibriVox. More people would probably listen to it. Yeah. Like, it, it and then they would also put it on Audible. But I, I think you're I, – why not just stick with the moral argument about – Public domain. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm yeah, not actually. That's a better foundation. I'm not. What's so funny is nobody cares about the actual controversial stuff. Only care about this one statement that I made, which is like it's so obvious. It's like, of course it would grow, right? Like a hundred percent, it would grow because it's free, and it's not free now. Of course, it's going to grow now. Would would it suddenly get uh, you know like forty times bigger? I don't know, um, but I can't I can't say it's gonna. I'm, I'm willing to I'm willing to uh, I'm willing to challenge that. I mean, free free things are 
or grabbed up. Like, for example, a friend of mine has their novel. It just happens that Amazon or the publisher somebody's put their, made their novel free today. I'm sure tons of people are going to download it, but how many people are actually going to spend the time to read it? I don't know. Because oh, that's uh, because uh, even even the free uh, items. Have it's a not the same thing, though. That's not that's not public it. domain. Just because it's but, free. No, no, free is no, not the same but, as free. But but, but, but but it's still things. It's still it's right there, right now. If you had a Amazon account, you could buy this over Scar right now for free if you want it. Could I sell it? No. Then it's not free. Um. I, I, it's it, it, it's it's provided at no cost. Okay, there is a cost. You have to be in the Amazon ecosystem, which is not a good thing. And and jailbreaking them—that's a different story. But that's a different topic. Go going back to the fact that you can get this book at no cost, and I'm sure plenty of people are going to do that. But the question is, how many people are going to spend the time? And the time is not free to actually consume it. And that goes with audiobooks too. I mean. You, you can put all this yeah, but I think you're I think you're mixing up a whole bunch of stuff that's not in the assessment. It's really no, no, simple. It, 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 no, it definitely is in the assessment. I mean, yes, yeah, yeah, so, okay. You put all Heinlein in the public domain for free. Huzzah! Lots of people download. How many people are actually going to spend the time to listen? Because that 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 had that they have to pay. Even even if it's in Librox for free, or, or like the book we just listened to that Mr. Jim Moon, who's fortunately not here. Kindly recorded for us. How many people are going to spend the time to listen to it? Because I, I that can, time is. I can give you the numbers of downloads. I can't give you. There's no way to get well, the. I and mean, that's, and that's my point. You can get. You, yeah, you but that has nothing to do with uh, that. Yeah. That problem applies to everybody, Paul. It doesn't just apply but, to yeah, Heinlein. You can't prove that with a book. Prove to me that all the books that were sold by some of course writer, like we, Stephen King's new. So book, that's a completely different issue. Bought it. Enjoyed it and analyzed people. It. People ask me, Paul, how many people downloaded the podcast? No, don't they I, ask I, me how many people listen to the friend, podcast? I have no idea. The general premise that if you pay for something, you're more likely to eventually. eventually oh, I see. Okay, well, because you 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 because you have more. Yeah, I think that's. I, I mean, think I, it's it's a. I mean, I don't know how I can prove this or something. I don't think that that makes a lot of sense. If I if I if I, if I buy a book. Versus me getting okay, but getting see, by other we can means. we I'm can eliminate that too, Paul. I'm more likely to read it because okay, I, we can I eliminate that too, Paul. It, we can solve that very easily. Okay, let's imagine that you know that Moby Dick is on Gutenberg, and you have that fact in your head. Are you immediately going to go over to Gutenberg and download it because one day you might want to read it, or are you going to wait until the day you want to read it? Um, that depends. It only makes sense to be worried about that if you think it's a scarce problem. It's it's like, so Amazon puts on these one-day deals where they give away, quote-unquote, a free book, right? Because tomorrow... It won't be. And the reason they do that is so that they can have something jump up the charts, and then maybe that'll generate interest, right? So that's bullshit. What I'm saying is, if it's if you've got 700 authors on on the public domain Gutenberg website or whatever, and one of them's okay. named Heinlein, and one of them's named H. Beam Piper, Heinlein's going to win every day. As far as, as far as downloads, yes. No, not downloads, in reading. Um, that's, I, like I said before, that's hard, that's hard, that's harder to actually... I just know Heinlein's I'm, a more... Po- I'm, when I talk about H. Beam Piper on 
uh, Twitter, nobody cares. When I talk about I Heinlein, but I'm not nobody. Yeah, but but you're you're right because right because Heinlein is a. I'm saying as a percentage of the population. Juliet, I sent you the link here in case you don't know but, what the hell's going on. But again, it's in the text chat. Oh, oh, John Scalzi. The public domain will not make you popular. Yes, he's just he's he's sort of misunderstanding uh, reality, and and almost everybody agrees with him, which is kind of crazy because it's a very simple assessment. The tweet, which is sort of like the least controversial thing I said in a whole bunch of tweets about a podcast, um, they they said Heinlein is turgid. Nobody should read him. They should just read Scalzi. I'm like. No, that, that's not what he said. <laughs> no, I, 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 I that is what you've been scalzy that people now know. That is what they said on the podcast. But, you know, that is what they said on the podcast. I quote them. I don't know if it's Anna Lee Newitz or the other lady. One of them said it. I can't tell their voices apart, and I it doesn't Charlie really Jane Charlie Jane Anders, right? It's one of the two. Says Heinlein is turgid. Uh, I mean, I can, I can bring it. I got, I got the exact quotes here. Because I was very careful, because I don't want to misquote people. Uh, Heinlein, turgid. Should come up. Nope. I spelled. Oh, I spelled turgid wrong. That's why. Uh, no, nah, I said it a whole bunch of times. Oh yes. Uh, I followed up. Heinlein uh, was not turgid. Okay, so that's shit. I, 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 I'm, I'm. I'm reading Scalzi's argument here, and he's what he's saying is that Thailand's not scarce right now. I mean, putting him in the public domain will not reduce his overall scarcity by a large amount. Of course, it will. That's what put scarcity. That's post scarcity, right? There's no. That's my. uh, That's the whole point. Is by restricting it, you have less consumption. Um. Paul, but, but healthcare is also not scarce in the United States by the same logic. <laughs> well, healthcare is is heavily unevenly distributed in the United States, and so is for Robert A. Heinlein, because <laughs> someone who doesn't have eight ninety nine can't read Stranger in a Strange Land. But as Scalzi points out, there are libraries, there are used books. Yeah, but is that, yeah, those are library, mitigators. The, the library is a, is is closer to post scarcity than Barnes and Noble, Indeed. right? We agree. Closer to a post scarcity model. Yep. But the, the, the Maybe not question quite there, the, but it's free. But, That's. But he, here's here's the here's the thing. Where do the okay? So you put. So where are the where are the readers that aren't reading Highline now? Going to come from that they're. You, so you're thinking that there's a large number of people who are not reading. Highline it doesn't have now. to be a larger. It just, has to be, domain, going to, it just has to be. Public It just has to be more. Going to try them. It just has to be more. So I, I, I actually, you know, but, but, but I don't think it's going to be. But I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be the explosion you think it is because <laughs> because under the law of economics, basically what you're saying is there's a large pool of people who won't try Highline now because they don't know about them. Because they don't know about all the all the laws of economics are wrong. Yes, there's that too. <laughs> Evan's been going through a economic, bunch like, of economics. Funny, the best text. thing you can do is throw it away. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, a different now, podcast. If you click on 
Did you click on his link where he says, I talked about Heinlein a couple of years ago? Did you read that one, Jesse? I didn't, but I've read yeah. uh, Skulls and, in the past. And he argues it's about Heinlein, and, and he says something like, if, if you want to promote Heinlein, you know, he has different suggestions, one of which was adapt more of his work. That that would be easier if Heinlein was in public. Yes, of course. I don't know that much about production and filmmaking. He's sort of a, he's sort of like, he's got a massive blind spot there. That's a roundabout way of getting to more high, more interest in Heinlein. But I'm just saying just that was his recommendation, right? But and just putting it in the public domain as just that one act is not going to massively increase okay. readership. Okay, let me let me let's talk about a different author for a second. One okay. okay. There's a guy named Philip K. Dick. A whole bunch of his short stories are in the public domain. Do you think people? What? No. We should know. <laughs> oh yes. Oh, do you think that uh, more people have been reading uh, Philip K. Dick short stories since they've been known to be in the public domain, or do you think that the number has remained the same since they were uh, not known to be in the public domain? I have some anecdotal evidence. <laughs> yeah, I, I can kind of just... The answer is, of course, where, way more have been listening to it. And if you go to YouTube and you type in Philip K. Dick and Jesse Willis, I uploaded a few things, you'll see thousands of downloads or views and then lots of comments. Some of them are mean comments, but they also... Some of them are appreciative comments. We just know that if you make something in the public domain, people will distribute it and then people will read it. They'll also make movies out of it. They'll do short films. They'll do audio dramas. They'll do all sorts of stuff. It increases the number of people participating. If you make the most obscure author on the planet public domain, nobody cares because it's the most obscure author. But if you make somebody who's like the one of the three most famous SF authors ever public domain, there will be an increase. Uh, of explosive proportions. You think because uh, well, you say so as I think. one of the most. <laughs> as I think, the only thing I said was ex- explode, and I, that's the only th- the only measure. I think I think there'll be an uptick. Be an uptick. <laughs> because because as you pointed out, Jesse, he's already one of the three most famous science fiction authors on the planet. Okay. It's not exactly where there's there's no desert. It's not like we're uncovering ancient two thousand year old scrolls of Heinlein that. Never haven't been read before. That's what the Heinlein estate is doing. I mean, this is this is not this is not. uh, And those are not those are not explosive. Lucretius. No, but But, that's what the Heinlein estate is literally doing. They just like dragged out some, you know, notes from another book and they combined it together, gave it a new title, and now they've got a new book. Talking about that number of the beast ripoff. Right. It's not a ripoff, but yes. Yes, it is a it's a ripoff of one of Heinlein's own books. I'll, I I will call I will call. Yeah, will that's call what they're the crap doing. The crap. But that's not uh, that's not the uh, the thing is is there are actual download numbers right offer podcast episodes with Philip K. Dick in them, and there are da- actual download numbers for uh, the Robert A. Heinlein that's on the podcast. Um, all of those are possibly being listened to. It's also possible that none of them are being listened to. But if one person listens to it, that number is now increased. So the only question is what, what Paul thinks it's going to be an uptick. Is that 20 people or 20,000 people? I don't know, but I know that it's being restricted by it not being in the public domain. 
there there would be more readers if it was in the public domain, but I don't think it would be as large change as you think. Some people you might. keep saying, I, I, but I, I, I think all, all I'm saying is it's going to be way more than H. Beam Piper, and H. Beam Piper is getting a lot of attention. But but, but also, but also, there's also the uh, the the Uncanny Valley. That's his that. thesis, which I think is interesting and also bullshit. Just the way, you know, a lot of time um, is, I don't uh, think it, let it, me just it, explain it, why. It's very analogous to all these theories that people have about why Biden's going to win or why Bernie's going to lose. Or how about this, the broken window theory. Everybody loves that one. If you have a broken window, that causes the whole neighbor to go, go to shit. Therefore, we need... You know, police up in everybody's business. Or we have the domino theory. There's a good one. <laughs> right? Let's go invade a country in uh, East Asia because they might be turn communist and then uh, that'll cause a chain reaction to cause the whole world to turn communist. It, it The theory's shit. And it just caused lots of people, like, lots of headaches. Where has he got this uncanny valley theory? Basically, it's his way of saying, look... Honestly, I think, you know, he's a nice dude. He's very polite. Uh, he doesn't have an ego. But I think his his operating system said, shit, that little fuzzy reboot I did didn't do very well. Um, <laughs> I, I did really well with Heinlein's uh, reboot, but I didn't do that well with the H. Beam Piper reboot. And H. Beam Piper is public domain. Therefore, dot, 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 he puts the the things together. I, I haven't read Red Shirts, but Evan, you were saying something about it. I just said that obviously Star Trek's not public domain, but the the Red Shirt meme, I think, essentially is. It's like a collective sure. joke, right? Sure. And, and so his, I mean, his that book it seems to be a commentary on a piece of folklore, of of modern folklore, right? And, and that's public domain stuff. Yeah. So. No, he's he's definitely pl- yeah. he he plays with tropes. He's appreciating this. I think he's just he's just made a, a mistake in thinking that that uh, basically his thesis is what's the the public domain is not your panacea. Is that what he says? Yeah. What's that? What's the title? It's the public domain will not make you popular. Okay. Why does he think that? Yeah. It it it, 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 like the logic there doesn't seem to follow. Is it the restriction that makes you popular? I don't think no, the reason I, I don't think the no. reason I like, uh, you know, the writers I do is because they're hard to get. <laughs> I think I like them because they have good writing that I like to read. Um, oh, oh I mean, also his, his, his one, this two-line paragraph is is some is something here to, to note. The public domain is a public good, not a promise of public awareness. Yes, it will not lead yeah, to sure. oh, a Hanasai Renaissance or an Asimov ascendance or a library booming, etc. So yes, yeah, so if you dropped it all in the public domain, it, that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody suddenly knows. No, but everybody knows. already knows Heinlein, and the people who don't now see there's a new title that's very popular on. You know all these new media out, outlets and publications, I, 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 and I'm 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 not sure the propag the, the propagation of free stuff via via the public domain. I'm I don't know enough about how that works or how it doesn't work for that actually to be to 
to answer his question, but it's it, it is worth knowing. Look, let's just suppose the Heimlich tries just dumped everything onto public Gutenberg tomorrow, or, or like okay, how how I mean, how would that be transmitted? It would take a while for that transmission till it, a news. I'll tell you, maybe did it. Uh, I'll tell you, Librivox. Who fucking cares about the news outlets? They they're not. I'm talking. There's two systems here. There's bottom up and top down. Right. Right now we've got a top down where a publisher tries to push a book. There's a guy I'm following on Twitter who's a BC writer. Um, he's saying his book's in the bestseller list. It just came out. Right. Um, he's putting out ads trying to generate. You know, interest in his book, so he can get up on that bestseller list, which will give him attention. And and you know, that's an he's talking about how great his audiobook sales are as compared to his paper book and ebook sales. Um, that's a top down thing. He's trying to inform the masses, but there's a whole bottom up thing, right? Herman Melville is not popular because there's a lot of estate pushing him, and you're saying, well, he's not popular. I'm like. I think Will's point was right. I mean, yeah, most people aren't going to read uh, Moby Dick, but most people don't read it all anyways, and Moby Dick is in everybody's brain, and if it's not in their brain, it will be if they keep reading, right? We're we're not talking about the general public. We're talking about the reading public, and there are many groups within that. Romance writers, we're not talking about. We're just talking about, you know, a potential person who might be interested in Heinlein. Now, you've got a whole bunch of people who care about this stuff uh, looking at LibriVox and saying, I'd like to record something. You know how popular uh, Kurt Vonnegut is on LibriVox? Super popular. You know how many stories are of his are in the public domain? I think there's one. And it always shows up and it gets recorded over and over again. And he's not that good. That story's not that good. But there's a like a bottom-up demand to make this thing happen. And if if you suddenly said every to every LibriVox narrator who's possibly interested in it, you can do a Robert A. Heinlein novel or a Robert A. Heinlein short story. You know how many versions of Moon is a Harsh Mistress we would see? <laughs> it would be fucking stupid, right? Well, there's so many fucking versions of Dracula or Frankenstein. Um, those are like sort of unwieldy, difficult books to parse. I mean, the language is difficult. Right? Heinlein's the opposite of that. It would just be a huge push. And then that would show up on Audible. And Audible is a very popular place for people to consume books. It would absolutely increase. There's no question. You, but how, how, how but could it not? It would, it would increase, but I don't think it's going to... I mean, sure. Okay, so there's plenty of now new material for LibriVox narrators to narrate and create new audiobooks yes absolutely mm-hmm. just like there's new audio new new ebooks is but the question is the overall consumption of Heinlein by the reading public is not going to increase <laughs> as much as you think it will. Well, what, how much do i think it is what how much do i think it is i don't know but, but, <laughs> but, 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 but your argument seems to sound like you you seem to I mean, that's the thing is uh, what I said was not controversial. It was like obvious. And that's why I was so surprised anybody even cared. Like the reason Heinlein isn't read more today is because almost all of his stuff is under copyright. What you said. And I'm not sure that's right. Yeah, that's not a number. I just said explode. 
that that no that's that's the implication that it's going to be a fulmination of interest in Heinlein. That's what your tweet implies. A so form, I don't know what fulmination means. Can you say that's that a sure bet? That's what you said. Yeah, that that is a sure bet. I'm not. Let, uh, let's let's take two authors. Yes, we we'll go sky high. I'm not. What number is sky high? What? What number is sky high? Would it be more than John Scalzi's books? Yeah. Would it be more than Charlie Jane's Andrews books? Fuck yeah. Would it be more than um, Annalee well, Newitz's books? But, but, Holy cow, yeah. Uh, I mean, now, now, now you got N.K. Jemison. I don't know. But we go back to the same thing. It's like we have download numbers, but how many people actually? How much? I mean, I don't know how you would do a study. How much audio fiction is consumed? More than more than paper book paid as far as people listening to hours per month. More more than paper book. More than ebook. Audio books are are now the number one consumer. That it exists. It exists. The audiobooks are now the number one medium for uh, book consumption in North right, America. Right, but, 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 versus Audible or something. Right. Well, yeah, but the, the thing is, is if you go to Audible, if you go to Audible, what you'll see is a whole bunch of LibriVox books. In fact, wh- one of the funny things is some guy tweeted at me and said, um, look at how many Heinlein books there are compared to H. Beam Piper books. And I'm like, yeah, except... Uh, 50 of the ones that you're citing are actually public domain uh, radio dramas. <laughs> Just public domain radio dramas. So that, that kind of shows that, you know, people are so excited about Heinlein that they're willing to repackage something that's free and sell it for 95 cents. Whereas the ones that are not public domain are, you know, $20 or whatever. But you get all the public domain ones for free elsewhere. And uh, same with LibriVox. There's tons of LibriVox audiobooks on Audible, including H.P. Piper ones, right? So it's just like they're different audiences. The people who who go to Audible are not the same people who go to LibriVox. There's not a complete crossover. Most people who are on Audible don't know that LibriVox exists, but that doesn't mean LibriVox doesn't have any download figures. They do. Whether they are sharing them or not, I don't know. But you can see the popularity. And so when he goes in the article, when he goes to uh, Gutenberg and looks at how popular H.P. Piper downloads are, yeah, those are fucking ebooks. Ebooks are not popular compared to audiobooks, which is really funny, right? You think, oh no, everybody reads uh, on Kindles. Uh, most people don't read on Kindles, and the people who do read on Kindles are in the Amazon ecosystem, which means they're downloading them from Amazon, not from Gutenberg. So he, uh, he he's he just sort of doesn't he doesn't know I think I, I it's it's so funny nobody cared about them saying uh, uh, Poe is third rate uh, third rate writer like what the fuck <laughs> he's like there's Shakespeare um, there's Poe Heinlein is one of the HG Wells the electrified rails of science fiction Poe is not Heinlein I mean. I mean, Lovecraft is another third rail. I mean, he's even more electrified. Right. And, and I, well, I think we're going what, a little off topic. I, I know Will's still eating his Pop Tart. No, I'm here. 
<laughs> it's hard to get a word in edgewise sorry. here. <laughs> sorry. Shove it in sideways. I, I, I in fact like made overtures earlier, but that's that's long past. Oh, so, what were uh, the, what were the overtures? So put, a, put a question to me, man. Um, I don't really have a question. Um, maybe we should do. Maybe should we talk about uh, the actual book we're here to talk well, about? Well, I was hoping we would hear from Wayne. I was hoping we would hear from Jim. Um, but I have not heard from either of them, so I guess we could start. Oh, let me get my recorder started. I should have recorded this. Jewett, you read, read any Heinlein? Jewett? Me? Yeah. yeah. I, I've read Starship Troopers and um, uh, some of the juvenile books. Um, Tunnel of Time. Uh, yeah, what's that oh, one Tunnel of Sky. Tunnel in the Sky, that's a good one. That's uh, basically what Suzanne Collins was ripping off. Isn't that her name, Collins? I don't know. The games lady. You know who I'm talking about. Turned oh, into a movie. Oh, Hunger so, Games? Hunger Games. Where did this high nine of sexes come from? I, w- I want that explained a little Fucking bit. Fucking... <laughs> Nobody yeah, cares about that one because it's not even true. I know... I know Lovecraft's a racist. Have you read Heinlein? (laughs) (laughs) He's not a sexist. He wants to be a woman. Here's my point on this. Um, I mean, he's of a certain time. I guess you could say that about everyone. And I I don't like saying that when ideas are toxic. I just don't see it. It's not worse than, like, Phil Dick and, like, the portrayal of female characters. Well, well, I don't think they're saying he's a misogynist. I think they're saying he's a sexist. It, no, the, no, they said misogynist. Used. Oh, okay. no, I think my point on this is like, although I'm not, I'm not saying he caused a sexual revolution, but he's part of that conversation of the sexual revolution, right? I mean, Stranger in a Strange Land was one of the central texts of the early sexual revolution, as, as much as Helen and Gurley Flynn or, or people like that. So it's or even maybe not like with Kinsey, but. He's, he's, I think he's up there as an important like document of the sexual revolution, right? Mm-hmm. And that benefited women a lot more than it benefited men. Like Men always had access to non-monogamy. They had prostitutes and whores and concubines and, and all that. Save it for the podcast. Women are, <laughs> women are a clear beneficiary of the sexual revolution, right? And to the degree that Heinlein is part of that conversation, I think his texts are nearly... Are, should be put in the feminist canon, if anywhere. <laughs> You're right. Um, uh, I don't. Uh, I don't even think that they said that exactly on the uh, our opinions are correct show. The tweet uh, chain that I started that followed up with that Scalzi thing. Um, they said that he was racist. Uh, that they're talking. They're, they're talking about two people on the show, and then they ended by attacking Heinlein and Poe as well, which didn't make any sense, but whatever. They started with uh, Campbell and Lovecraft. It's, it's basic... What's the title of the show? It's, uh, oh, we're done, with, done, done, we're done yeah. with Lovecraft and Campbell. One of them had not read any Lovecraft, um, which is, you know, it's pretty easy to be done with somebody you never started with. Um, but uh, they, they called Ing's speech uh, incredible and mind-blowingly awesome, and then I went back and Looked at it, and she starts off yelling at Joseph Campbell, ends up yelling at John Campbell, uh, editor of Amazing, right? And they said in this podcast that he was, that uh, Campbell was editor, and so was uh, uh, Lovecraft, and L- Lovecraft was the editor of 
Weird Tales, which he was not, ever. And that as a gatekeeper, <laughs> they didn't use the word gatekeeper, but, you know, in his his high power position, he was like mean to ladies <laughs> or something. So I've got a bunch of quotes. Uh, one was Lovecraft was, quote, ugly, gross, weird guy. And I'm like, well, I mean, he did think he was ugly. <laughs> his mom told him he was ugly, apparently. Uh, so I guess you're slamming him for what his mom said. Yeah. OK. And then um, they said it was commonly called cosmic ugly horror. Shame. Yeah, ugly shaming. Uh, This uh, Lovecraft writing was commonly called cosmic horror at the time. There's no evidence for that. I've read lots of weird tales. That's a very modern term. It's a very appropriate term, but that's. And then they said Lovecraft invent, quote unquote, invent the Cthulhu mythos. He didn't do that. That's August Derleth. He did create the stories that August Derleth would call the Cthulhu mythos. And then (laughs) they called H.P. Lovecraft a bully. (laughs) <laughs> and quote uh, boss of his community <laughs> he's not a boss he was the opposite of and quote unquote not a good guy um and then uh quote i have this was the one that got me i was like what um i have no need to ever read lovecraft because his influence has permeated into other better writers like there are people who are much better writers than lovecraft at least from what I understand, this is the person who's not read any Lovecraft. He's sort of fa- famous for having cheesy, florid prose. And then there are much better writers who are borrowing from Lovecraft's kind of ideas or his tropes. And those people are much more worth reading. Nobody ever needs to read Heinlein again. And I don't think anybody will read Heinlein like again. I don't think young people are going to be reading Heinlein now. People can read John Scalzi, who basically has admitted on many, like many, many, many occasions in my hearing that he basically writes Heinleinian fiction and he is writing in Heinlein's ethos. But you know, Scalzi is more progressive, more aware of others' perspectives, and he's a little bit more savvy about some of the tropes that he's handling. And so you don't need to read Heinlein because you can read Scalzi. (laughs) And then Heinlein is turgid. And I'm like, no, he's not turgid. <laughs> no, no, Highline's not turgid. No, that's incorrect. But as far as as far as readers, writers, you need to read versus reading successfully. That's a completely different podcast. We can have a long discussion about that, Jesse. We we have had that. Shit, Paul. You don't have to read, that? read anything. You don't. Country. You don't have to read anything. It's that's a free right. country. Well, well, that, that, but they're that, saying you yeah, shouldn't that, read Heinlein. What's that? They're saying I, you I, shouldn't I, read Heinlein and you shouldn't read Lovecraft. And that's what the premise of their podcast. They're trying yeah. to cancel both of them. And what's so funny is you can't cancel Lovecraft. And Campbell was canceled so fucking long ago, nobody fucking cares. Um, uh, well, his well, his I, name I, was on uh, an award. I, 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 well, given, given the, nobody given reads Campbell. Goes, that's not true, Jesse. And that's nobody that reads Campbell, about. though. He's got one story. It's it's not in the public domain. But 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 you 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 but I mean Campbell the writer versus Campbell the editor and person and he he died before I was born, Paul. He died before I was born. How is he still affecting people? A whole um, bunch of uh, come on. He died before I was born, and I'm old. Not like young Will Jewett's probably like six. 
I'm 39. Dude! No, I'm 38. 38. Okay. So young. Yeah, he died in 1971, Campbell. I know, he died the year I was born. <laughs> so, uh, the fact that, like, like he's got one story worth reading, and it's not but, public but, domain. But, but, but that's, that has nothing to do with his influence. His, his one story does not... It's, it's his time as an editor and a shaper of the field from which we read, Ill. That, we read, we read that, that book. book we read that, that book. that's what that main, most of that podcast was like sandwiched around an interview with alec navala lee which was fine i mean, that, that means, but that, the that means, sand the bread on the sandwich was like it's like just wrong factually wrong and then it ends with somebody saying a poe is a third rate writer it's like that's jealousy. That's anger that somebody else is being popular when I'm writing stuff that's good. Like, come on. And, and the other thing is, is I think they're the, the people here who are doing the canceling, they're, they're talking to other writers. They're saying, you don't need to read anything like the, the, in the comments, somebody said, thank you for giving me permission not to read, uh, Lovecraft. I did was not looking forward to doing that. Like, they uh, thought they felt they needed to, right? Well, well, well the, there is a perception in science fiction writer circles that you need to read authors X, Y, Z, P, D, and Q in order to be a good science fiction writer or be a good science fiction Are reader. There, there is, there is definitely. I think I, I can hear what you're whispering. Well, I'm no, that's me. I'm saying, are they not wrong? Um, like, if you want, if you well, want to well, read. Uh, you know, write modern stuff and you haven't read H.G. Wells, I think you're making a mistake. Um, I mean, then you're making, you're saying, oh, to to do that, then you need to do homework. Yes, do your fucking homework. Let me finish my sentence. Sorry, sorry, Paul. You do homework with writers whose work can be, in some cases, very hurtful, if not racist, sexist, and very distasteful. So you're saying, I mean, just to say... to tell writer X, yes, you must read, especially a writer of color. It's like, yes, to understand cosmic horror, you must read the the horror at Red Hook. That's nobody's that's saying a, that. That's, no, but you, but if you're saying you have, must read Lovecraft, then that's what you are saying. Uh, but Lovecraft is but, not really science fiction writer. No, I think Laval actually said you kind of do have to read him. I think that that's the introduction to the second Klinger. Anthology. Everyone should read Lovecraft. Where Laval basically says that it's must read, but I have this ambivalence about it. I, I, I had this personal experience realizing Lovecraft's racism, and it's been something I've had to incorporate. Of course, it influenced Battle of Black Tom. I, I mean, t- telling but people that they say have like, to read stuff that's... If you're going to write Lovecraft, uh, uh, responses to Lovecraft, you do have to... If you if you if you are going to write Lovecraft, Lovecraft response fiction, you should read Lovecraft, yeah. and that's they're saying the opposite. They're saying you don't need to read that because the idea is permeated through into other better writers. And and to an extent, I think that's true. Do I think do I think that some of Lovecraft the the parts the parts that aren't absolutely abhorrent are would be useful for a writer. To read and incorporate, absolutely. But is it is is it a necessary like? Okay, we're gonna have a test tomorrow tomorrow on the horror <laughs> at Red Hook. And if you don't pass that test, you shouldn't be writing Lovecraft response fiction. 
That's <laughs> that's right. If you're writing Lovecraft response fiction and you haven't read their material, you you've it's like writing the essay without d- reading uh, writing the essay, uh, the, but writing the book report without having read the book. People but, do but, that, and they should. In a more general sense, there are people saying, "Oh, to read science, to write science fiction, you must read." You must read all of these authors, even if you're not responding to them. And that's, and there, there are people who have a very vested interest in, in these authors. We're not talking about outsider fiction here, right? We're talking about people trying to make commercial product. And I think that they're right in that if they're making commercial product, you might not want to read, uh, a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, came before you. And the reason you might not want to do that is because you should be writing. But on the other hand, your writing's not going to be very good if it's not informed by but, science but, but, and but, the but, stuff that but, came but, before. There's the question of how far back do you get in, do you have to inform yourself on science fiction in order to write it? I mean, the Bible. Farther. I mean, I was even going to go that far, but I mean, does, do James, does James S. Coy need to read Edoch Smith? Yes or no? I, I don't think James A. A. James Corey is worth reading because it's a series. It's not really science that's fiction. A different, that's a different It's question. not really science fiction. Uh, so okay. they don't okay, need okay. to read anything. Okay, I'll go with the single volume. Suzanne Palmer's Finder. Did she need to – did she – I have no idea. I've never talked to her about – Did she? does she need to have read E.E. E. Doc Smith to write Finder? I don't think so. I've read E.E. E. Doc but Smith. He's not very good. <laughs> not really worth reading. That, oh, you must read, you must read the giants and predecessors of the field. And if you, if you suggest that that's not, not necessarily true, then you get the reactions like the Hugo Awards where, where Martin, where Martin, uh, and I think are bringing up old, th- old greats again and again and again. I think that the, the, the uh, Janet Ng, the reason she's so reactionary is because she's feeling kind of like she didn't do her homework and it's a way of lashing out, right? She doesn't no, know. No, no, Let no, me just I point can't. out that she didn't know the, the guy's name. She called him Joseph Campbell, didn't distinguish be, between John W. Campbell. Maybe it's a slip of the tongue, okay? I, I accept that, right? Um, but she also didn't know that he was editor of Astounding and not Amazing, right? There's a difference. And, you know, and then she calls him a fascist. And the thing is, is he was a chauvinist. He was, uh, that word doesn't show up in Alec Navalny Lee's book as uh, applied to Campbell. We we talked about his fascist tendencies when we talked about astounding. Fascist tendencies. uh, Okay. uh, What I'm saying is she's reacting like, like, you know, I I, I, I told her you didn't do your homework. She's reacting like, oh my God, I don't know about Campbell yet. I'm feeling guilty. But I'm getting, I'm getting an award with his name on it, right? Yeah, I get it. I, I understand, like, why, why she's upset. But the thing is, is she didn't do her homework. And if you're going to talk about stuff, you should do your homework. That's all, that's what's so, uh, what, what is so astounding to me is a show called Our Opinions Are Correct from the very jump. He's just saying all sorts of, like, Lovecraft was, as editor of Weird Tales was the boss of his community. He wasn't editor of Weird Tales. He was not the boss of his community. And then that's one of the reasons we should cancel him. It's like, no, you shouldn't cancel somebody for something. It's like a straw man, right? It's very easy to knock down John W. Campbell. So when some old dudes who actually, you know, read his stuff and thought that he was influential, perhaps wrongly, uh, you know, positively influential, perhaps wrongly, because, I mean, he was... 
he he was responsible for a lot of shitty fiction. Um, but knocking down a guy who was dead before Jesse was born is too easy. There, there's it's like a witch hunt. It's crazy. So that part, that part was the ridiculous part, and that's not the part that got popular. The part that got popular was a very uncontroversial, you know, statement that if something was in public domain, it would have more downloads and more reading readers. No downloads. That's just more readership. And I think it's like that's totally uncontroversial. Heinlein's a pop. Imagine if Stephen King, Paul, suddenly became public domain. Do you think there would be an uptick? I, I thought that was a rhetorical question on your part. No, no. I think there would be, but like you can already adapt any this works for like one dollar, right? Uh, I don't, I, I don't know, but that's not that. I, I didn't even mention movies because it's I'm not yeah. really interested in them, um, and movie people are not the same as readers. So, um, I mean, it brings attention a little bit, you know. Yeah, I haven't thought about that in a while, right? So I can do it, but of course. You're going to get more readers of Stephen King. But he's available at the library. Yeah, but when I go to check out that book I wanted to read, it wasn't available. Right? Because someone else had it. Because that's, that's scarcity. Yeah. Here's, a, like, here's what I just checked out. Like, Henry James wrote a whole lot of shit. Yep. <laughs> right? Only and one worth reading. It's, all, it's like basically all in LibriVox, except the reviews. Mm-hmm. Like all his plays, all his poetry, all pretty much all his novels. I don't know. I'm sure more people are reading Henry James. Yeah, uh, but even so, the only one that uh, you know that gets any attention that I know is his science fiction one. You read Henry James? Uh, I think you should read that that uh, one book. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean if if we're talking about science fiction, should you read so and so if you want to do? cosmic horror or whatever but if you want to do like realistic realism i don't know maybe if you're in 1940 and you're interested in kind of realist fiction or modernist fiction the turn of the screw is worth reading you have to read you have to read henry james i mean in weird for ghost stories i'm just saying more broadly yeah i i I can't imagine i i don't think you need to read realism or shakespeare Shakespeare is uh, Shakespeare. We have to read Shakespeare. Yes, we do, and the reason is he's really good. I mean, you, do you have to read every bit Shakespeare wrote? No, especially you don't need to read his poems because they're mostly like they're like, as far as I can tell, they're mostly all those uh, you know sonnets. The reason they're numbered is because he's selling them as basically sex sex tools. Right? Sex tools? Yeah, so he, he, some dude comes up to him, like, uh, what's the French guy with the big nose? You know, Cyrano de Bergerac? D- Cyrano, right. So Cyrano, he's basically doing a Cyrano. Some dude loves another dude, and he wants to send him a love note saying, I think you're amazing. So he goes to Shakespeare, and he says, how much? And Shakespeare says, 10 pounds, or 10 bucks. Right? And he writes him a sonnet, and then hands it to the other dude, and he says, thanks. And he goes and gives it to his boyfriend. So I, I commissioned this for you. It's like it's like a it's a sex thing, right? 
But if you read his plays, you think, holy shit, this guy's, he's really funny. <laughs> he really makes good sex jokes and fart jokes. And also we've got this drama, you know, all the special effects or the, the, you know, the scenes. So good. Right. You should read Hamlet. And, you know, you should probably see it staged as well, but read it first so you know what the fuck's going on. It's hard um, to tell. I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not so sure that reading a, a Shakespeare play is, is less effect, is more effective than seeing it witnessed. We're not, we're not, no, I, no, you need to read it first. So I didn't really grok them until I saw a production and then, then it came to life. You, but you is need it, to read it first to get, the, uh, but 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 I but I but I. Oh, think, that word wasn't isn't public domain. You can't use it. What word? <laughs> thanks, thanks, Grok. thanks. Grok. So oh yeah. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the first read along we ever did to change the subject back to uh, maybe doing a podcast. You should do a podcast. Um, was the turn of the screw, and uh, that's by Henry James. It's a very good book. You should all read it. And if you haven't read it, I'm looking down my nose at you and saying, you'll never be a real writer. (laughs) You'll be probably fine, but you'll never be a real writer. You'll probably have great book sales, but you'll never be a real writer. That's what they're really afraid of, is that they, they feel like they didn't do their homework and they're embarrassed. And it's hard. There's a fuck ton to read and nobody agrees on what's good. And some of it's boring that they say, you know, people say is good stuff and it's not. If 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 you say everybody have to read To Sail Beyond the Sunset <laughs> to be a real science fiction writer, I'd say fuck being a si- real science fiction writer. Uh, that book looks too big and Heinlein was going crazy then. Anyways, uh, who's still left on this podcast? Uh, I think Jewett's gone. <laughs> Will's gone. <laughs> you Did we lose half the podcast? <laughs> no, we're here. Just yeah. <laughs> we just hiding we just got into this Jesse and Paul Bat- argument. Batten down, the, the batten down the hatches. They're having a Titanic struggle. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, did you see uh, Godzilla, King of the Monsters? You know, um, uh, you're saying I'm, I'm, I'm King Godzilla? Wow. Okay. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know who's who here. I'm just saying. You know, um, Jesse right. wins, so he's Godzilla. So <laughs> I have to be whatever, whatever yeah. Godzilla. I, I, I don't know what winning is in this kind of argument. So. So, um, yeah, I, I tweeted, I think I direct messaged you saying Jesse wins with some tweet. <laughs> yeah, you, you did. You did do that. What was um, that? What was yeah, that I mean, about? Nothing will prevent anyone from claiming victory. Or defeat, <laughs> but uh, I, I really don't know what the stakes are here. <laughs> oh, yeah, it was. Um, it was uh, uh, reading the comments on Scalzi's blog post about one of my tweets. One dude says, as I was reading, I immediately thought of H. Beam Piper. The first thing I got to got paid to write was as part of an RPG supplement based on several of his short stories right after they became public domain. <laughs> and then he continues. And while, like you, I have been an abiding love... He's talking to Scalzi. An abiding love for Piper's stuff being in the public domain certainly hasn't been a, seen a resurgence of interest in his work. That's the most ironic thing I've ever heard. <laughs> it's one paragraph. says... As soon as it became public domain, I got paid to write a part of an RPG supplement based on several of his short stories, and he's, there's no resurgence in his interest in his work. And and he's telling this to Scalzi, who 
wrote a novel as a you know a reboot of a public domain H. Bean Piper book. There's no irony there. There's that is Jesse winning. There's a lot of dumb comments. That's so funny. That is so funny, man. That's Jesse winning. Like even the people who are agreeing with Scalzi and Scalzi himself say, "No, no, Jesse's wrong," are supporting Jesse's argument. And it, it's like it was so uncontroversial that it's like I had no idea that anybody would care about that part. I thought they'd be incensed like I was about. Poe being a third-rate writer, or Heinlein being turgid. Come on. Why Why is everybody thinking of it? getting in public? Do- oh, whatever. Let's do a podcast, shall we? Let me get my recording started. I know, I know you've saved something for the podcast, so. There's plenty of other people to talk, so. Yeah. All right. You ready? Paul, you got a recorder? Will? Um, yes. My... Uh, my- like my my software was doing something funny today, and I had to reinstall Skype. I haven't reinstalled the recorder, so okay. uh, we, I we'll will not go, be making one today. We'll go uh, without suspenders. That sounds like a Scalziism. Uh, without suspenders. Oh yeah, yeah. But we have a belt on, so yeah, we have a belt, a girdle. In fact. Oh wow, yeah, yeah. Are we the? Uh, what's the? Um, are we the minstrel boy? The minstrel boy. You know, his his father's sword he is girdled on. Oh, this sounds good. Oh, I, I think I know what you're talking about, but it's it's eluding me. Yeah, like the it's a just it's like a folk song, the minstrel boy oh. about a you know, a boy who goes off to war and dies, but before he dies he like uh cuts the strings of his harp so that Ooh. like it won't like be like played in slavery. Dude, that sounds so good. Yeah, it's a re- I really like folk songs. I was thinking, you know, what a really good podcast for maybe you and Jewett could do it. I, I don't have time for more podcasts, but uh, just going through reading those um, classics, Illustrated Juniors, and doing one per show. It's so good. Have you ever, have you looked at those yet? I Do have it. a bunch somewhere. You know the classics Illustrated, right? Yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, they're on archive.org. Of King Solomon's Mines, but I uh, gave it away to... No, those aren't Paul juniors. Perry. Yeah, I, I've got a bunch in, of physical copies as well. But Classic Illustrated Junior, I used to, like, disdain them. Because, uh, oh, it's just fucking rehashes of, you know, the public domain shit. And turn, well, I mean, that's all of Classics Illustrated, really. <laughs> but the, but they were, they're all f- folk tales and, um, there's a, some Hans, Christ- Hans Christian Andersen is fairy tales. And they're really good, really interesting. Like, I go through it with students and it's like, damn, that's awesome. Did you, did you read that, uh, that Emily and the, um, skeleton story? Was it a comic you drew? Uh, no, it was a student wrote a story, and and it wasn't it wasn't good. And the reason it wasn't good is it it was missing something, right? And I said she, she just used her vocab words, and it was like and the story ended, but there's no danger, there was no scariness, so the story sucked. I'm like, what? this is missing something. Uh, it needs like, and she didn't have a title for it. Um. So I just said, how about you just add a spooky skeleton in there? And then uh, we rewrote it, and now it's really awesome. Listen to this. Emily and the Skeleton. Once upon a time, there was an enchanted forest. In the woods, there was an abandoned house. 
Nobody lived in the house except for a scary skeleton. Also, inside there was a barrel, a keg, and a cask for keeping a magical liquid safe. One day, a girl named Emily needed medicine. She was very poor, and her mother was very sick. So she went into the forest with her flask to get some of the magical liquid. Emily found the house, knocked on the door, and the scary skeleton answered, saying, Who is it? Emily, not wanting to give her real name, said, It's no one. So the scary skeleton opened the door and said, Come in, no one. <laughs> Emily went inside and asked for some of the magic liquid. The spooky skeleton said, Sure. Oh, wait, I changed the voice of the scary skeleton, spooky skeleton. Sure. Oh, shit. Sure, but I'll need some of your hair as payment, no one. Hearing this, Emily cut off a lock of her black hair and handed it to the spooky skeleton. Is this enough? asked Emily. The spooky skeleton said, Oh, yes, my dear, that will do, this will do nicely. And then it placed Emily's lock of hair in a wooden box on the mantelpiece. Next, the spooky skeleton showed Emily the three drums of magical liquid. Each, each considered e Emily considered each and then chose the keg and filled her flask with the magical liquid. On her way out, she thanked the spooky skeleton. I'm, uh, it told her in parting that she would need more of the magical liquid one day and that she should definitely keep growing her hair. Emily said she would. Then she brought the flask filled with magical liquid to her ill mother, and when Emily's mother drank it, she was completely healed. The end. So if you take out the skeleton, the story sucks. But if you put the scary skeleton in, it's awesome. <laughs> All right. You guys are not entertained. Let's move on. Uh, to I was just much... thinking about the no one bit, and I was waiting for uh, the kind of uh, like the piece of the plot to be stolen from Homer, where she betrayed the spooky skeleton, it's, and the spooky right. skeleton is screaming, "No one has hurt me! No one has hurt me!" That's exactly <laughs> right. Um, and what we discovered afterwards, in talking about it, I'm talking about it with my student, is that I asked her, like, "Does Emily have any brothers or sisters? Is that what the skeleton is talking about? That one of them is going to get sick?" And she says no. And I said, "Well, what happened to Emily's dad? Is is he is he uh, not home? Is he going to get sick?" And she says, "He's dead." I said, "So is the skeleton the dad?" And she said, "Yes." <laughs> I'm like, "Holy shit, that's awesome!" Wow, right? <laughs> it's like I can just add the spooky skeleton in. Now it all makes sense. Right? Your job rules. I know, right? And that's what I'm saying. It's like that. The, reading those stories on the the Classics Illustrated Junior, they're like they're transformative because I, I've been tweeting those pictures. You've seen them, right? Where it's just uh, uh, I tweeted one Evan of um, of Quiqueg uh, and uh, Ishmael, and Ishmael standing by the bed, and Quiqueg says, "Get in," <laughs> and then we see another one of of uh them in bed together and then we see another one where we uh where Ishmael's just standing there saying he's a man just like any other why is this so pro why is this a problem and it's like wow these are transformed like you just see these as frames right it's like a, a little scene from a it's iconic everybody should read those fairy tales and if you try and write modern day James Thurber fairy tales without doing it you're making a mistake i think Okay, let's do this thing.